Hello, everyone. Before we begin today, folks, let me just tell you, I love being a film enthusiast, critic, podcaster, writer, librarian. But a year ago, I decided that I just might retire from being a film critic when I turned 50. So, I started a newsletter called Five Years that is all about my favorite songs and movies, and I write about them at length. I even chose to, uh, yeah, kind of impulsively write a lengthy review of a film called Dream Scenario, which comes up later in the episode, and I also include interviews and new reviews as well. But it's no longer hosted at Substack. It's available now at fiveyears.beehive.com, and it's spelled B-E-E-H-I-I-V, and it's linked in the show notes, so follow me there. Also, be sure to visit the Now Playing Network for a show called 96 Greers, co-hosted by today's guest, Patrick Rapole, as well as past episodes of a show called Supporting Characters, hosted by today's other guest, Bill Ackerman. Without further ado, may I present to you our favorite films of 2023, Spectacular. Give me some spicy lemon pepper, extra crispy, extra wet. And don't forget the waffle fry. You wanna be an MC? What the fuck you think it's the thing? Do it to that big lead. He on this work, but they can't pop in that old man flow. What an auto tune that. Give a fuck about a trash. Cause I love the scams. Catch up on me. Set in the bubble bars. Cause I love the brains. Set in the bubble bars. Cause I love the brains. Come on, fuck about a thing. Put the money in my seat. Put a new tank. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Directors Club Podcast. I am Jim Laskowski. This is the episode that you have all been waiting for, in which we don't talk about a specific director. No, 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 no. We talk about many directors and the films they've made from the past year that we consider to be favorites. I'm not talking to myself. That would be ridiculous and cause for alarm. I have two guests that I consider to be personal favorite cinephiles and friends that have co-hosted this show in the past. First, let's welcome back the OG of DC, Patrick Rapole. Hi, how's it going? Former host of Directors Club, current host of 96 Greers on the Now Playing Network, where we cover every movie with Judy Greer in the cast. Thank you for wow, having me, Jim. That's a great podcast. I'm enjoying it immensely. Thank you, Jim. I appreciate your support. And, of course, we also have the return of current guest host and supporting characters host, Mr. Bill Ackerman. Uh, this is a, uh, an annual tradition where I don't have internet in my house, so I'm uh, in a basement in my parents' house in uh, Rehoboth, Delaware. So uh, I'm surrounded by notes, and I'm very stressed out and tired, and I'll, I hope that will make for great radio. It probably will, but could you do it again, this time in the movie phone energy that I brought <laughs> to the beginning of this podcast? I don't know what's wrong with me. Sometimes I just slip into movie phone. Uh, a certain a, there's a certain degree of phoniness that uh, I, I got to shake. Um, <laughs> I, Bill, before we were recording, you you brought up yeah. this is the only the second time we've all been together. But I feel like spiritually we have all been on this journey <laughs> together for years and years and years now, and I'm I'm happy to be on with you. Yes, no, I, I, this is the only reason I, I agreed to do this is because I get to talk to both of you today. So. Oh, that's <laughs> wonderful to hear. And the only reason I agreed to do this was to talk to the both of you today. Mm-hmm. Also, mm. it's an obligation. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> As, uh, no, I, just... I, I am a member of the Chicago Film Critics Association. I got a show that I care about new releases, and I do. <laughs> um, especially when towards the end of the year, because they get, most of them get pretty good. 
Yeah, that's true. What did you think of 2023, Patrick? Um, so this was the year that I got AMC A-List Plus or whatever they call their little movie pass where you get, oh, right. you pay a certain amount a month and then they you can get three tickets to any movie a week. Mm. So if you watch three movies in a month, you have paid, you've paid off what you put into it. Um, and that divorcing individual screenings with the cost of them um, led to me seeing a whole lot more this year. Usually I like top out around like, oh yeah, I saw 48 movies from this year. Pretty good. This time I saw 90 movies. I was wow. seeing all sorts of crazy stuff. And like, I have been pretty doom and gloom about the medium in general. Um, I feel like that has been a common thread with me on this particular podcast for the past like five years or whatever. But um, something else I did, uh, it, okay, so basically like I, I, I look at film as a medium and I look at the industry and I look at the financial realities of it and I look at sort of culturally where it stands and I go, will film really exist in 30 years? That's like a thing I think about. Like when I am an old man, will film actually be have any kind of relevancy whatsoever. But something else I did this year is I read this book called The Heat Will Kill You First, Life and Death on a Scorched Planet. Damn. And it's about global warming. And guess what? I am no longer anxious about the next 30 years of film. <laughs> <laughs> I am feeling that more than ever. I, you know what? It's actually totally fine. Whatever happens with it. So I saw 90 movies this year. And I would say, like, about 60 of them I enjoyed on some level. Thanksgiving is not a good movie, but I'm sort of glad I saw it. You I know am what too. I, mean? I am too. And so, like, just taking it on, let's just see a lot and sort of just enjoy ourselves and not worry about, like, the future and what does this mean that this movie made this much and this movie only made this much. Like, just divorcing myself from that mm. and just going to see whatever I'm interested in. Uh, I'm actually very up on 2023. I had a great time this just year. Just live in the moment, man. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's how I feel. I got to be more present in the present and consider uh, our time together to be a gift because mm -hmm. it is. And uh, for the most part, I also agree that I don't think 2023 was a stellar, amazing, groundbreaking year by any stretch, but there were a number of movies that, uh, yeah, I, I, I gave a favorable review to and would consider like, hey, this is this is quality, quality stuff. So I'm 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 pretty pleased with the year overall. I don't know if there were like outright, holy crap, life changing masterpieces necessarily. There's certainly one that, you know, stood out above all, all the rest for me personally, but uh no, I mean, it was, it was a good year, and it was just exciting to see people excited about... Are that, you talking about Barbenheimer? Yes, that weekend. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That <laughs> it was exciting to see people going into a movie yes, theater. Yes, yes. The new 400, which is no longer around. That's but true. I went there, and it was nice to see everybody wearing pink and, you know, everybody wearing a fedora. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it was great. It was nice to see people excited. Christopher Nolan, Greta Gerwig, Taylor Swift... We're yeah. bringing movies back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they all got together in a room, and that's what happened. They just, I guess they so. figured it out. They they got in a meeting. Uh, Bill, what did you think of twenty twenty three? Um, well, I I think I think by the midway through the year, I was thinking that I I just was not finding a lot of films that I really connected to. I got um something similar to Patrick. I got a the Regal um uh, like. You, you pay like, I don't know, like 23 bucks a month for unlimited movies or whatever. So I, I've been going to the movies without the same kind of cost 
barrier. And mm. I, I saw a lot more movies that I didn't like than uh-huh. usual in the theater. Um, most of the New York Film Festival kind of left me indifferent. Uh, a lot of directors I like didn't make films this year. Um, so I, I, by, I would say like about October, I was thinking, like, oh, am I going to even be able to do a list <laughs> this year or do this podcast? But I think by the end of the year, I, I had found like, I'd, I saw like around 150, 150 movies maybe. And um, I, I liked, I liked maybe like 70 of them. <laughs> so uh, I, I, I liked enough to, uh, to make a list. And I mean, there's some things I felt like I wanted to give a shout out on a podcast that, you know, maybe would help some people, you know, f- hear about them. So, I mean, that was kind of an incentive. Um, I don't know. It was, it was a weird year. I mean, I, I feel like I saw a lot of things that reminded me of other films yeah, that I'd sure. already seen. Um, I think one thing I noticed that was kind of a weird trend was I noticed a lot of films that were shot on film, not really calling attention to itself. And then a lot of films shot on digital manipulated to look like 35 millimeter in a way that was real obvious. And I thought it was like a weird, like, is this going to be the new black and white? Because like, this is the year where you have Oppenheimer, Sick of Myself, Killers of the Flower Moon, uh, Fallen Leaves, Asteroid City, all shot on 35 millimeter. Only Asteroid City really looks strikingly different from digital. But then you also have Eileen, May, December, Priscilla, and the, um, what is it? The Holdovers all shot on digital, but manipulated to look like seventies or were, uh, I guess seventies or like late sixties film stock. And I'm like, is this, I, I mean, it's not always a period setting. Sometimes it is, but like May, December, like it's like not shot that way other than just because, that's just the aesthetic Todd Haynes wants. And I'm thinking like, Oh, that's interesting that this is going to be, I guess a thing now, but it's weird to me that it's like not the films that are shot on film that remind me of this aesthetic so much. Do you think the, uh, the like false, uh, digital film grain is like distracting for you? Um, it's, it's, it's just odd. I mean, it doesn't, I mean, it only kind of bothered me when I saw May, December, at home because I saw it at the film festival and I didn't really even think about it. But when I saw it at home, uh, I really noticed it because I think in between I realized that that's what they were doing. Like they were adding digital grain. I'm like, what? I mean, I, who is that for? <laughs> because I, I don't know. But um, yeah, I mean, it doesn't bother me. I mean, I like that. I like films that look that way, but it's just it's just strange. I mean, it's I, it feels like the new shooting in black and white to feel classy. Like these are the new Raging Bull elephant man kind of you know kind of thing for art for this generation i i don't know because um yeah how how long has digital been the 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 dominant medium for shooting mainstream film it's been like what 20 years uh yeah i would say like 15 i feel like 2007 is what the year i always associate with where this changeover happened okay um yeah, so I'd say like fifteen or so is would be my estimate for when for when digital became the predominant uh, format. Okay, yeah, it's just interesting how it's evolving. But yeah, I mean, this is the year that you had the writers' strikes and the actors' strikes, and um, uh, you know, I mean, I I think I I, I went to the uh, the Barbenheimer double feature also. And I think that that's I don't know. I mean, it's nice to have. I mean, those. They're not on my list, but those are, I mean, maybe they're on your lists, but I mean, I thought that those were like interesting blockbusters. I mean, I'm not mad at either one of them being a phenomenon. Um, It's interesting to me that concert films came back and not just Taylor Swift, but Beyonce and and actually even Stop Making Sense had a pretty successful year theatrically. 
Yeah, um, the 4K restoration. Yeah, yeah and even uh, The Last Waltz was in a lot of theaters this year for some reason. Maybe because of the talking heads, I don't know. But hmm. um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, a good year for slasher movies, I guess. I mean, there's a whole lot of them that came out. Um, there, at least one on my list. I don't know if there's any on yours. But I was um, thinking it was kind of a weak year for horror in general. Well, uh, I mean, unless you count a couple of outliers that... Uh, you know, were very distinctive, especially mm. early on. Uh, I, I was kind of, I mean, because I, I talked to somebody at work who's, you know, a, a big horror fan, and they sort of felt similarly. It's like, oh, it wasn't like, it wasn't like last year where we had, you know, your your smile and barbarian and all those things that sort of just tapped into a wider audience, I guess. But well, the uh, great thing about horror is there's at least a hundred people that every horror film like that's their favorite film and this is their favorite year they're ever going to have <laughs> yeah. this year sure <laughs> no you're right about that you know yeah. i mean no, there was some, think, there was some distinctive and good horror movies but just well, i i mean i just i mean patrick i don't know if you agree with me on this also but i feel like just like with time i mean horror is such a time capsule kind of genre that like mm. it becomes easier to go back to films that were mediocre at the time and then they become like these little oh remember back when they made films like valentine and if you go back that, now and watch those like uh 13 ghosts and house on haunted hill remakes house of Wax, the yeah. uh horrific cgi that ruined those movies back then you look at it now and you're like oh my gosh this is like a marilyn manson music video i love this shit <laughs> sure <laughs> um uh, yeah, so it's like, uh, time will tell. I would say most of the really hyped horror movies of this year I found pretty disappointing. Talk to Me is not on my list. Uh, one yeah. Where Evil Lurks is not on my list. Um, uh, we're doing top 25. and Yes. That's so specifically yeah. not in my top 25, but I did enjoy them uh, both. Um, mm-hmm. Some of the worst movies I saw, though, were, were the mainstream. I think maybe this is the year where mainstream horror, the sort of James Wanning of everything, Ugh. is like finally just collapsing, and it's like no one has the stomach for Insidious, The Red Door, or The Nun Two, and all that shit. Um, and I'm like, I, I w- I'm a big Conjuring fan, but like, I think that has run its course, and there's there's this. Uh, I don't know. There's the I forget exactly who was being interviewed, but there was this like interview with someone about the. Uh, atmosphere of like late 90s rap where it was like the puff daddy flashy suits thing was starting to get kind of tired but nothing had yet come and replaced it and there was just this like feeling in the air that like something had to shift over and change and it was like the summer that dmx happened and all of a sudden it was like no no go really hardcore go really raw go really intense like absolute opposite of puff daddy in so many ways like there's this feeling in for me with the genre where it's like there needs to be a new paradigm shift to take over what is happening because when even the like critically acclaimed uh a24 quote unquote uh, which i i i uh, i dispute the idea that a24 horror movies have a personality to them that is all their own um but they certainly have a marketing approach that is is uh in unison um like none of like the most acclaimed of those didn't really even hit uh very well for me so i'm like something exciting has to happen that then all of a sudden everyone can chase and we get something new but uh you know um I, I still enjoyed several of the horror films I saw this year. You know, even like Knock at the Cabin is probably a top three M. Night Shyamalan movie. It's it's a little disappointing in that it isn't quirky like a like an M. Night Shyamalan. It isn't it doesn't have all the idiosyncrasies that you would 
sort of want if you're that kind of auteurist or whatever, but like just as like a really well shot, composed, extremely well acted kind of a thriller. Like I feel like, yeah, that was a movie that kind of took me by surprise and I really enjoyed. Yeah. I mean, I have a lot of opinions about him and yeah. just listen to the newest episode of 96 Greers and you'll get to hear There's those There's also too. an M. Night Shyamalan episode from like, I don't know how long ago now, from six years ago. Yeah. That's a different world. Yeah, it is. Totally different world. Anyway. Hi, um, <laughs> Hi we're going to talk did about it, 2023. Did anyone else have any like big picture looks at like 2023 and like feelings about what it was in a year because this was the year I stopped trying to do that and Mm. I just sort of watched movies and sat down and you know got high and ate some popcorn and had a good time so like that's how I'm approaching movies now I'm trying not to overthink them as like to the point of what does this all mean? And what is in context of where we're at as a society and how does this art reflect this point in time? It's more of just, am I enjoying myself <laughs> or if I might getting something out of this in this moment, as opposed to thinking more deeply, which is probably going to be annoying because that's what people want from a podcast, as opposed to just me being like, I like this movie, the end. I think you can think, I think you can keep your brain on watching individual movies without like worrying about the larger picture. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I I agree with that mostly. I think it's, but it was also the, the one thing that came up this year that I probably messaged you about and Bill too, uh, and it's very strange because on the last film junk uh, junk mail episode they had, uh, somebody wrote in that wasn't me that was complaining about Music Box audience behavior and the fact that they were laughing at everything in May December. And I thought that was hilarious because that was my exact same experience. And so this was the year of me questioning, is this supposed to be funny? Because that happened to me a couple of times, particularly made December and The Killer. Uh, two movies where I was like, okay, everybody is saying that they're laughing at this. I don't think they're funny. So <laughs> what? And then my experience of seeing May December with a crowd, mostly laughing at everything, including things that I thought were horribly sad and tragic to, you know, knowing what he, that character went through. But it was just a, something that I kept thinking about throughout the year is like tone and w- what is a filmmaker's intention? Is it is he trying to make me laugh at this? And if if, if I'm not laughing, that's bad, <laughs> you know? So it was just I a think weird... that kind of neurosis, you should just totally disengage and throw it in the side of the road and never look back. It's I, hard, though. I, I feel like, in, like I'm audience, absorbing their energy in the movie theater. I, I understand. I feel like theatrical experiences are like you can't give nuanced uh, reactions in a movie theater or you yeah. you might be having nuanced reactions inside yourself but if you are reacting to a movie in a way that the people around you are noticing you are probably either gasping or laughing you mm-hmm. were probably either screaming because something scary happened you're probably cheering because Captain America did a thing or <laughs> or you're laughing because and you know people laugh because something is funny people laugh because they're, they're shocked uncomfortable. people laugh because they can't fucking believe what they're watching like, true that's true there's, there's a, lot, a of reasons- lot of kinds of laughter that you sitting you know two rows away you can't distinguish what is actually happening there yeah and I think it's like it's the thing where it's like you read the you reviews you read this? the reviews of like Roger Ebert like when he reviewed like Last House or uh, I guess he liked I Last House left. I, I spit, spit on, on your grave, grave. Yeah, and yeah. he's like these sickos that I was watching this movie with are the filth of the earth and that's why this movie is trash and it's like you read that shit and you're like oh that's so lame that dude was that dude was corny as hell <laughs> and it's like try to uh i would say try to 
uh, stifle the uh, the corniness in yourself when it comes to judging other people. I, I should be able to separate. On it, the other but... hand, I'm the person who fucking hated watching Phantom Thread at the music box because everyone at the music box was laughing the entire movie. That movie's just not so funny. It is, is it a music box? thing like you know Wrigleyville yeah, people it happens at Metrograph in New York too huh. it's 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 I think just a kind of it's a certain kind of film audience yeah. that I mean I don't know what to tell you I mean there's it, a certain kind la- of theatrical they their way through possession yeah now, yeah there's like, a oh, certain geez. kind of theatrical audience that will go and see a Shakespeare comedy and laugh and they're not laughing because those are really funny plays they're laughing because they want everyone to know that they get it you know there's okay. like there's a there's a certain sort of like we're all clued in, but I have to be the most clued in mm-hmm. like person who we're discussing, you know, the people in the row in front of you who are discussing what they just watched, but they have to be like extra loud so everyone can hear their brilliant opinions or whatever. Yeah. Like all that sort of stuff is just like, yeah, let people do, let, pe- let people be corny and, and just like, I don't know. But also I have a vested interest in saying that because I am definitely the person who like will just be like I remember when I saw the lighthouse at the music box and I was the only motherfucker who was laughing through that whole thing sure. and I and I was a little bit self-conscious where I'm like god I hope people don't think I'm like doing this to prove a point or something I just think this movie is extremely funny oh yeah you can't help but react that happened with right. killing of a sacred deer so I've been on the too, I've been right? on the, yeah I was I was laughing throughout killing of a sacred deer uh, we talked about M Night Shyamalan I was laughing throughout the happening that audience who was watching the happening in the in the multiplex they were not laughing with me they were glowering at me hmm. and it's like I've been on the other side of that so really it's yeah. just like give everyone the fucking space to react how they want to react just look at the movie okay and and honestly like don't even worry about what the director wants you to do because fuck them too <laughs> I mean there's no way to know intent really. right if a movie's you know uh, you know a movie that's very uh, funny is uh, you know Black Swan is a movie that's very funny Darren Aronofsky does not take himself you know, Darren Aronofsky mm. takes himself very seriously and that's kind of why his movies are so funny <laughs> um, yeah so you know I don't know but um, I I I find when I look at my list and I'm looking at the top 25 and especially the top 10, I am like definitely valuing movies that did challenging things with tone. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the other thing, place I'm coming from with this, which is like, I like it. You know, we'll talk about May, December. We'll talk about the killer. Like, I like it when movies are sort of balancing uh, two ideas that seem in conflict with each other uh, at once. Um, my number one movie of this year is all about tonal whiplash. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I have a feeling I know what that is. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I, I struggled. So um, so anyway, that's that's where I'm coming from with that stuff. That makes sense. Um, we can just start. We probably should. Yeah, I think we can. Mm-hmm. Hello, everybody. We're not doing subcategories and categories and all that fun stuff like we have in the past. Sorry if you missed those, but uh, a lot of those things just sort of come up organically as we were talking about these movies in particular. Mm -hmm. Uh, First, we go through 25 through 11. We go through them a little bit more quickly, one by one, kind of monologue style. And then the uh, top 10 favorites, we tend to go on for a little bit longer and maybe have more conversation about. So we'll begin with Bill, then we'll go to me, and then Patrick. 25 through 11, Bill, you begin.
Okay. Well, I don't have long notes on any of these, um, so I'm just going to just give you very brief impressions of them. For um, sure. For, for 25, um, I'm going to go with one that I didn't even really know if I liked when I watched it, but I've not stopped thinking about it since the time that I saw it, which is a film called uh, Where the Devil Roams. Uh, it's by a group of filmmakers called the Adams Family, which even that seemed a little bit too cute for me when I heard this. But it's about like this family of uh, carnival performers. Um, it, it honestly, what I would compare it to, and I don't know if this would be heretical to the fans of this film, it felt like the Rob Zombie films about the Firefly family. If you took out all the profanity, all the stunt casting, and all of the um, maybe maybe like that like that kind of soundtrack you know that he likes so the, of like popular songs like it just it's like a very arty mannered take on that kind of territory and I just it just is full of imagery that I just can't stop thinking about. I might like um, that one it's, then. <laughs> if you're yeah, you, thinking you, all the you, things you, I don't like about Rob Zombie, I don't know. It's it's got musical numbers. It's like I don't. That's one thing I was going to just say right at the outset. Like, I don't like talking about plots for movies very much. I don't either. Like spoiling things that, um, like I went into all of these cold, pretty much the films that are on my list. So I don't really want to ruin too much of what wouldn't, wasn't ruined for me, but like, but I would just say that it's, it's like slightly more art house for a horror movie. Um, I, I wouldn't say throw it on at a party if you want a scary movie, like put on Megan or something. <laughs> but like, uh, I don't know. It's just it's just full of images that I haven't been able to shake off. So, but interesting film. But I, anyway, like, so for twenty four, I'll I'll go with Rotting in the Sun, um, Sebastian Silva. Um, it's about this kind of downbeat uh, uh, filmmaker guy who goes to a uh, goes to a nude beach and he meets this very bubbly social media. Uh, personality kind of character and uh, a, a series of comic incidents ensue. I don't want to spoil any of it, but it was just one of those films. A few of these are just films where I, I just didn't know where they were going. I think Patrick and I once talked about this on supporting characters, how critics sometimes just maybe tend to over um, maybe overreact to surprise, like like surprise more than anything else is something that I think, criti- and for whatever reason, like these are a lot of films that I just couldn't predict. Um, and Rotting in the Sun was one I just did not see any of the changes from beat to beat coming. So uh, it's one that I was a nice surprise. Um, 23, I have Poor Things from Yorgos Lanthimos. Um, probably one that I don't need to tell people what it is. Um, and it's one I hated for like at least the first 25 minutes when it's like doing dog tooth as an Amelie <laughs> Tim Burton take on that. I thought it was like so annoying. And then mm. it just won me over. I think she's just so funny in it. I think it just goes in interesting places. Um, you know, I, I, I think all I knew going into it was that it was like a riff on the Frankenstein story with Emma Stone. I'm like, okay. And I like all of his other films. I don't know if I like this more than Killing the Sacred Deer or The Lobster, but I, I do really like it. I think she's great and it might be my favorite thing she's done. And I, I tend to like Emma Stone. So, um, I mean, I'm happy that it's, you know, having the, the splash that it is. When I saw it at the New York Film Festival, it was one of the few films that felt like even when I was wrestling with it, it felt like a real big statement. And a lot of films that I saw just did not have that impact for me. Um, 22, I have The Holdovers, Alexander Payne. Um, 
which I really like, even though it reminds me a lot of Wonder Boys, which I think is way better. But I really like this hmm. for what it is. And it's it's one of those films that does the digital imitating film thing. Um, it's one I wanted to rewatch before we sat down to do this because I've only seen it the one time. Um, but I I did really like it. I like Alexander Payne as a director more often than not. I think he's just a good director and a good writer. Um, I, although I don't think this is one of his screenplays. Um, but yeah, no, I like the atmosphere of it. Um, I like the supporting cast in it a lot. Um, you know, I mean, I felt like by the time I saw it, I was so disappointed with so many films that just for it to be like a pretty good, you know, comedy drama, I think, which it just felt satisfying in the moment. And um, so I'm looking forward to seeing it again and seeing how it holds up on a second watch. Um, 21, I have Hannah Haha. Ha. Uh, by Joshua uh, Pikowski and Jordan Tedewski. I don't know if I've ever said that aloud before. (laughs) Hopefully I didn't butcher it. But um, this was one that uh, Jim had turned me on to, and it's a um, kind of a low-key character study comedy drama about a 24-year-old who just does not have ambition to to move on with with her life. Uh, She's working on uh her like with her father like on a farm and is just kind of being pressured to like make a change by her kind of yuppie older brother and um it's it's just like a likable low-key indie film i think the title initially threw me i think i was just going to be a parody of mumblecore films because you know it's you know hannah takes the stairs and funny haha but uh, or Francis Ha, but like, no, it's, it's just a, a nice little charming sleeper with likable characters. It, I, I feel like a lot of films on my list are just films I think are personal favorites. They're not masterpiece films that change culture, do interesting things with form. I would say this is probably like a three and a half star movie, but it's one I really liked. Yeah. Same. Here. Um, uh, 20, I have shortcomings, Randall Park. Um, I, I think I, it's just, it's just a smart, kind of slightly biting romantic comedy. Um, I think this was one I, I heard of because Patrick had put it on my radar. And I think, um, uh, you know, it, it's just, I, I, I found that kind of character when I, I had, I had seen it before. I'd never seen an Asian American take on that story. It felt like very much like a post Woody Allen kind of walk and talk romantic comedy, like not like anything that reinvents any, uh, anything in terms of the, the genre. But I felt like, um, I just felt like it was smart and funny. Like, I mean, sometimes that's all I really need. <laughs> um, what am I going up to? 11? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so 19, I have Earth Mama, Savannah Leaf. Um, just kind of this downbeat melodrama about a single mother who's lost two of her kids to the state. And she's probably going to lose the third one um, because she's just kind of barely getting by um, with this kind of menial job and just... Uh, it's just, it's just about, it's about the situation that I think probably a lot of black, uh, single mothers in like, uh, I think it was set in Oakland. I don't know. Like there's like a lot of characters talking to the camera, like in like a, like a, like a meeting context. And so it's a little bit earnest, but there, I don't know. There's something about the tone of it. I just found really kind of compelling and, uh, it stuck with me. I, I don't, I don't know. There was another, uh, melodrama about black motherhood. Uh, was it a thousand and one years or something or a thousand one days that I seem to get a lot more attention in those lists, but I thought earth mama was the more it's, it's kind of maybe too subtle for a soap opera, but I, I think I, I think I sometimes prefer that kind of austere approach to melodrama. Um, 
but yeah, so I, I really like that one. Passages, Iris Sachs, um, kind of a fun, again, another melodrama. It's about a gay couple uh, where one of them, Frank uh, Rogowski, uh, is kind of like this kind of incorrigible asshole kind of character. And he starts an affair with a woman uh, and it just, you know, problems ensue. Um, it's just sharp writing, good acting, just involving character film. I, I don't have a whole lot <laughs> more to add on, but just one that I, I think about a lot and uh, I think about that character. Um, so that's just one I put on the list. Uh, Turn Every Page, The Adventures of Robert Caro and Robert Gottlieb, uh, number 17. Uh, it's directed by Lizzie Gottlieb. Um, just, just engaging documentary about uh, this author and his longtime editor. And it's just interesting insights into the writing process, the editing process, hmm. uh, obsession with one topic as a writer, and a great New York film. And I am a sucker for that. So um, probably not reinventing the wheel with documentary form, but just one that I was kind of gripped with from beginning to end. I like the people and I found it interesting as someone that writes on occasion, but not with the uh, tenacity of, of the guy in this movie. Um, 16, I have blue jean by Georgia Oakley. Um, this is set in Thatcher era, uh, United Kingdom. It's about a, um, a uh, gay phys ed teacher and how she kind of has to keep her uh, private life secret. But then she has a student that kind of threatens to expose her. And this is at a time when there's a real homophobic crackdown on, on uh, not only homosexuals, but uh, homosexuals in education, you know, so mm. it's kind of like very topical in that it's, you know, what are, you know, these uh, people of the LGBTQ community like teaching in schools and like this is a political wedge issue. So it, it kind of ties it to now in, in some kind of loose way, but it's it's just you know, a, a really interesting character, a really interesting relationship, you know, at the center of it. I, I would say that as an aside, I saw a lot of movies this year about adults and minors and sometimes they're teachers sometimes they're not but a lot of explorations of what's an inappropriate adult to minor relationship um mm -hmm. i don't know if this is like a tipping point like in terms of our culture i mean one film that's probably not on any of our lists is that about dry grasses oh that one well, no no what is that like sound of uh sound of freedom <laughs> that that uh yeah, that yeah. right wing oh, 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 that right wing oh, oh. indie movie. but isn't that about like child sex trafficking and how that's a real big issue that we have to be worried about I yeah so. it's like, it's it's tied into QAnon, adrenochrome oh, kind of right. stuff I okay believe. yeah yeah so like that's coming from like that's coming from the right wing people but then the left wing people have films like may december and um, there's another one that's going to be on my list that deals with, again, with like these uh, explorations of pedophilia or I don't know if there's a different term for like adult and teenager versus child. But like it's the, but dealing with like these kind of themes um, about dry grasses came out this year. Um, there's a couple of others. Um, and there's things like the teacher's lounge also that de like aren't dealing with sex, but are dealing with um, adults and children getting uncomfortably intimate in terms of their dynamic and I, I don't know it's just an interesting kind of thing to come up and i don't know where it's coming from but it seems to be in a lot of films i saw this year yes. but blue jean is not really dealing with that 
so much as it's dealing with just homophobia, uh, but just also trying to like live your life, but like like in in secret in in the eighties. And I, I don't know. I thought it was interesting kind of snapshot. Um, so that's my number sixteen. Uh, Fifteen, I have totally killer. I don't know if I'm going to say her name. Is it Natashka Khan? I might be missing a syllable, <laughs> but I thought this was a lot of fun. I mean, I, I mentioned a bunch of slasher movies at the at the uh, the beginning of the show. This was you know the year of um, was it Scream Six and Thanksgiving and It's a Wonderful Knife and um, Sick. I think was another one. It might be one other one I'm forgetting, but all like uh, for the most part, like I saw a lot of stuff in the post Scream. You know, a lot of chatty characters and, you know, kind of quippy dialogue. So a lot of humor. This one is doing, I guess it's trying to do Back to the Future meets Scream, but it's really kind of more directly aligned with the final girls from a couple of years ago because it's dealing with the mother, uh, mother daughter dynamic and also reminded me a lot of, um, things like 13 going on 30, but with like bloody kills. <laughs> so it's a very weird kind of like, I mean, it's, it's a, you know, I mean, it is, you know, ex- a horror comedy slasher comedy, but I thought it was like funny and likable and atmospheric and it's got the Halloween setting. And I don't know, I was just really, uh, I was really entertained by it. I feel like these kind of films kind of get taken for granted, but uh, you know, I had, I had to like throw at least one of these on there and this was one that was a nice surprise. And so that's uh, my number 15. Uh, 14, I feel like we'll probably talk about this later on the show. So I'll just say Falcon Lake by Charlotte Laban, um, was, I thought was a really, uh, I, I think I went into it expecting it to be like that, um, ghost story movie from a couple of years ago. Like I was going into it, go, oh, it's going to be this kind of cute ghost movie. Cause I think that's how the marketing kind of pitched it. And it's really just, I mean, borderline Eric Romer territory, really. It's like, you know, it's, yeah, I, um, yeah. it's, it's like, it's a, uh, Again, age gap relationships, but this one's a little bit less creepy. But it's, you know, it's just, you know, uh, it's just a, a sweet, well-observed, you know, summer of like, you know, infatuation with it, you know, you know, between two young people. And I thought it was totally charming and atmospheric and I, I was totally with it. And uh, I, I'm sure this will come up again, so I won't go any further on it. Um, 13, I have Happer's Comet. Uh, another name I've never said in that aloud. Is it Tyler Teoramina? Um, this one is unusual. It's the same guy that made, if you ever saw a movie called Ham on Rye from a couple of years ago. Oh, I've been meaning to see that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think you might like his stuff because the director hmm. he reminds me the most of, and I don't know if this is a comparison he gets a lot or not, is, is David Robert Mitchell. Oh. Um, so H- Happer's Comet, it's only an hour long. And if I had to describe it, this is going to not do it any favors. If you can imagine the beginning of the fog where it's just like all the shots of the town, <laughs> if you took the look of it follows and applied that to that opening of the fog where like you are just seeing a location here, there's no one here. Now there's nothing over here, but you're seeing like empty spaces. And um, that's kind of what it's doing. So it's observing this town at night it's not got spooky sounds or jump scares or creepy music. Like it's just, it's, it's closer to like Edward Hopper territory. Like it's like, you're watching this town and you're watching like, what am I watching for? And I don't want to spoil where it goes, but it's like, it basically is closer to an experimental film in that there's not really a narrative and there's not really dialogue. It's kind of, you have to be patient with it, but it, if you're into that kind of, 
um, slightly eerie small town, just observing spaces, observing characters like they're waiting for something, but you don't know. Um, I just, I've seen it twice. I still don't quite understand, don't quite understand it, but I, I find it really compelling. Um, and it's, it's something you can stream through, um, was it movie or Fandor? One of those, but, um, you can stream it and it's also out on Blu-ray. Um, 12, I have sick of myself, which probably should be higher, but, um, uh, Christopher, is it Borgley? You've interviewed him. Is so. it Borgley? Yeah. I think yeah. So. Um, you know, and he has two films that came out this year. I prefer his Ruben Oslin film to his Charlie Kaufman movie, <laughs> but, um, yeah, yeah. I, but I but I like them both. But the, I thought this one, this one just seemed uh, darker to me in a way that I kind of responded to more. But, but I like Dream Scenario a lot. And I'm, I'm sure that's on your list. But um, now this one, and it's funny because I was thinking about this, like this guy was born in 85. So he was 14 when being John Malkovich and this whole Charlie Kaufman era even happened. <laughs> so I was thinking about like how old I am as I'm watching his movie. But um, this one is about... It's a social satire, like about narcissism. It's just a relationship between two very narcissistic characters and appalling behavior. And it's one of those films, like where you laugh because the people are so terrible and they ratchet up their uh, their behavior accordingly. And I, I don't want to spoil any of the jokes in it. It is a comedy, but um, yeah, early on this was like my favorite film of the year, and I still could probably stand to put it higher. I really didn't think too much about the order of this list other than the, maybe the top two. Um, so yeah, sick of myself, uh, I think is a really good film and I don't, I don't know that like, I, you know, uh, I think John Waters liked it. I mean, it, it's, it's got some, you know, attention, but I know that the, uh, dream scenario is, is a bigger film because the English language and the movie star Nicholas Cage. But I think sick of myself is for, for me, the, the more compelling of the two, but I mean, they're both good. Um, 11, I have Last Summer, Catherine Breyat, No Relation to the Frank Perry movie. Um, this one, I thought was, I saw it so soon after May, December that I can't help but compare them. But this one, I find to be the more challenging film and maybe the more interesting film for me. Um, it's the less accessible film. Um, it's, it's dealing with a woman that gets involved with a teenage boy. Um, hmm. But Catherine Breyat is such a provocative filmmaker that like it really challenges your your sympathies in a way that i think even may december doesn't do um it's just i i think it's coming out next year theatrically i mean this is maybe a bit of a cheat but i think a few films i saw on a festival circuit in 2022 i left off my list when we did the last director's club like this and then i they they kind of didn't get talked about um like rmn was one that uh, i regret not talking about more on the show last year so i thought you know i should mention this one because um i don't know that this will get a big push uh i think criterion acquired it but i it'll it'll probably come out through janice's sideshow so maybe it'll get some attention but i thought this was a really perfectly realized film very provocative and it's probably not as much fun as may december but um i for me i thought this was the better of the two films that are like that story oh. is not my number 10. Well, okay. Oh, well, oh, 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 hold on there, partner. Hold okay. your horses. You can edit that out if you want to edit this. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Editing. What's that? I have yeah. no idea what he, Oh, okay. pump your brakes there. <laughs> That's my Elvis impression. Jesus Christ. Ah, that wasn't bad. No, <laughs> thank you very much. Like thank you very much. <laughs> I've had 15 hours of sleep in the past three days, and that's my Elvis impression, everybody. 
I loved it. I'm going to go next, though, Patrick. I bet you're... Were you ready to go next? You should go next, Jim. Okay. Thank you, Bill, for that wonderful list. There are a lot of titles on there that I have to uh, check out myself. So, mm. great job. I forgive you, little mom. <laughs> uh, and it's funny because you, you mentioned uh, during your description and thoughts on your number 11, you mentioned my number 25, which is uh, May December by Todd Haynes, a movie that I'm shocked, just utterly shocked that I didn't love uh, as much as most people seem to. But on the second viewing, I did respond to, I responded to it more favorably watching at home with my partner. And we had interesting conversations about it. Uh, I was surprised by uh, her reaction to a couple of things in particular. And it really helped not to be surrounded by an audience laughing at everything. Although there are very funny things in the movie. The performances are great. Um, I'm not sure if I feel that it's like the best Todd Haynes movie since safe. Uh, I think we'll be talking about it more with Patrick, I'm guessing. So I won't go into great detail as to why I still have some reservations and don't seem to embrace it entirely. Uh, but yeah, I still think it's well worth seeing, worth discussing. Uh, it's a great conversation stimulator with whoever you're around to watch it with at the time. It just didn't surprise me the way a lot of uh, previous Todd Haynes films have. Then again, on the third viewing of Dark Waters, I ended up loving that more uh, over time. So it's very possible this could happen. I was this about one. to be snarky and say it's very funny to me that you think you thought May December wasn't surprising when the previous movie he made was Dark Water, which is like <laughs> the most straight down the middle movie Todd Haynes has ever made. That's true, but there yeah. were some, some yeah, there were some surprises in it a little bit. Mm -hmm. But uh, number twenty four, Sam. Now one of two documentaries on my list. Uh, I, I discovered that one of my favorite writers, uh, author and screenwriter, John Raymond, who works uh, frequently with uh, Kelly Reichardt, was a writing consultant on this documentary to sort of help the filmmaker you know, as, serve as like a guide as to the best way to approach this because it's an intimate sort of autobiographical story about generational trauma that kind of starts out as a little mystery as to why a mother abandoned her sons. And one of them happens to be the uh, filmmaker here. And along with uh, his brother, they go in search of their mother. And what happens as a result of that search uh, is pr it's pretty remarkable and moving. Uh, it's a kind of a film about seeking closure. But what happens when that might not even be possible? And at the same time, it, the, its approach to documentary storytelling reminded me a little bit of Ross McAuley. Because it, the, 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 the filmmaker himself is a huge part of the story and it sort of evolves into something else later on. It's just a very sensitive uh, and vulnerable movie that really got to me. I was very moved by Sam now, which is 24, 23 is skin and Marink. Here's something that definitely surprised me, a horror film that, uh, yeah, could have been made by Michael snow or Chantal Ackerman. It's just, uh, it taps into something that uh, I, like as I'm watching it, I, I just rem like flashed back all of a sudden to my time spent alone in a basement with my parents asleep upstairs and feeling very scared. And sometimes my parents would make strange sounds in their sleep and I was worried about them. <laughs> so I don't know. It just and I was watching whatever was on TV and sometimes it would be something weird and, and disturbing. So this movie just infected me as I'm watching it. I just felt like even just watching it at home with the radiator clanking. I don't know. There was just something enveloping about this movie that 
I, I mean, I'm still thinking about it, and it still creeps into my subconscious in in the ways that great horror films have, and uh, I can't wait to watch it again. Uh, number 22 is Robot Dreams. My favorite animated film of the year is a Spanish, mostly dialogue-free, and very charming. As much as I really like the new Miyazaki, I was just surprised I didn't get as walloped by it emotionally. With this one, I was. It's a cute little story about a lonely dog and his robot that by the end, uh, I would say has parallel themes to past lives. It's really surprising. It's another story about learning to let go and move on and move forward. And it has an amazing use of Earth, Wind, and Fire's September, which is just, this movie for me was pure joy from beginning to end, and there are dreams in it. So that's a bias right there. Number 21 is Monster, Coriata's amazing new film that kind of takes the Rashomon approach to storytelling, um, or even like what Tarantino does with the heist and Jackie Brown. It kind of gives us three distinct perspectives surrounding one inciting incident and we kind of just learn more throughout each story like there's layers upon layers through each story and the more we stay with the characters the more we learn about each of them because initially in the first story we have judgments about one character and then we get to know about that other character in the second story and so it sort of creates this like domino effect of empathy that really just like oh it really got to me as it went on uh, and I was openly weeping by the very end. It was just, uh, I, I want to explore more of this filmmaker's work because every time I watch a Coriata film, I'm pretty, pretty uh, amazed by it. But uh, yeah, and it's, it's really just about a mother sort of just trying to figure out why her son is acting different and what, what results in that. Um, 20 is, uh, are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. One of the early surprises of the year for me because uh, I I didn't know if I was going to love it the way I loved uh, this director's previous film, The Edge of Seventeen. But uh, hey, if you cast Rachel McAdams and Benny Safdie as parents, I'm all for it. Are you a are you a believer Benny Safdie actor? You like his? Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. Cool. For sure. Um, yeah. I mean, we'll get to another one of his movies that he's in. But sure. anyway, <laughs> we're mo- we're mainly focused on Margaret, of course. But I, I think the the filmmaker chose to also include the parents, particularly Rachel McAdams, and in a way that I just I, I like. I just this movie felt like a warm hug, and also one of those movies where I can be like, "Hey, mom. Hey, aunt. Let's watch a movie together, and we can all enjoy it uh, on, on the same way." So it's it's rare that that can happen for me, where I'm I'm basically like, uh, "Yeah, this." makes me feel like I'm watching the wonder years or something. And that's something I grew up loving. So every once in a while, just something mainstream breaks through. And I, I, I felt really, uh, really uh, amazed by this story and the way that she told to, or she chose to approach it. Uh, number 19 is nobody's hero. How do you say his name? Elaine Goulardi. Goulardi. Uh, it's probably Goulardi. <laughs> I don't think that is at all. He comes from Oxnard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Go on. Mm-hmm. It's 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 Alan uh, Giraudy. Giraudy, thank you, yeah. Bill. Uh, yeah, though this is one of the more interesting filmmakers working today. I don't think he makes probably as many movies as we would like, but he's wow. Uh, the tonal balance because he just finds the right rhythm between character-driven comedy, uh, drama, awkwardness. I mean, it's it's a lot of things going on: sociological commentary, French is Islamophobia. And uh, misplaced affection, of course, is here. He he's kind of droll, but very distinctive. And like I, I, I just kind of get his 
st- approach to uh, tension amongst different people with contrasting personalities. And I really love his approach to storytelling. Uh, and as things escalate through this movie, I just felt more and more uh, uh, like a, a sense of anxiety, but yet I was laughing more and more too. So Nobody's Hero is number 19. I hope people seek that out. It's available at your local library if you like. Uh, number 18 is a movie called Red Rooms. This movie is uh, a fascinating film out of Quebec, and it's about true crime obsession. It's about a woman who is fascinated with the criminal trial of a serial killer. That And it starts off in a courtroom, but mainly focuses on this woman when she gets home in front of a computer uh, diving into the dark web. Uh, using Bitcoin, playing poker in chat rooms, all while trying to figure out if she can solve this mystery. And it becomes very Zodiac-like. She's just like so enveloped and she makes a a, a friendship with somebody who feels very differently about this case and sort of we find out whether or not she's right or, uh, you know, what ultimately happened with this particular uh, murder and it's just an, it's just an exercise in feeling very uneasy, and I don't know. It's a very compelling thriller. I hope people catch it. I think it comes out in February, or at least it'll be on VOD in some form. I highly recommend Red Rooms. Number seventeen is showing up. Uh, the latest from another favorite filmmaker that I just mentioned earlier, Kelly Reichardt. Maybe a bit lower than expected, especially given that my favorite actress is the lead here, but. I don't know. It's similar to Todd Haynes, and I just didn't feel a sense of surprise. But it's more of a comfort watch. Like I, I watched this just feeling like, oh, this is nice, and I'm enjoying my time with this very. Um, I don't know. Like she's a very moody, <laughs> struggling artist that has trouble connecting with other people, but she is certainly able to express herself artistically, and that's exciting to watch. Just her process and how she does it alone. Uh, and how the outside world seems to like impede on her a lot of the time, or she can't get things done, like you know, getting her uh, hot water heater fixed through her landlord. Like little things like that just felt real and grounded in the ways that Kelly Reichardt does kind of effortlessly in all of her work. Uh, the ending is really beautiful. I love that, and the entire ensemble is an ensemble here is great. Plus, we get a glimpse into the new Andre Three Thousand flute record because he plays the flute. It's really cute. Uh, number 16 is Love Life. Uh, Japanese director Koji Fukakata. Uh, and it's just this really heartbreaking domestic drama that at times felt like, again, this name will come up a, a, probably a couple of times more, Eric Romare. But, uh, you know, a little bit of Drive My Car, but also just a really intense melodramatic moment th- that kind of just floored me and shocked me. And it happens during a family birthday party. And then it's about how the couple involved with this tragedy cope with the consequences. And the wife decides that maybe the best thing for her mental health is to help a particular deaf and homeless man that has a very personal tie that I won't give away, but it's just a really sublime, simple story about grief and struggling told with a lot of heart without being sentimental. I just really got involved with that one. That's called Love Life. Uh, 15 has already been mentioned. The Holdovers, the latest from Alexander Payne, definitely a a huge step up from his last couple of films, making it probably my favorite since Sideways, I would say. Um, And he's going back to the kind of humanist stories that he does well. He's just a great 
uh, assured writer, and it's wonderful to see him working with Paul Giamatti again. And yes, as we mentioned, the cast is uniformly strong. It's this you know cozy Christmas story with a lot of heart and well-observed character moments, um, and certainly a, a subplot involving uh, the the student's father really got to me. Uh, he's just really good at capturing, you know, fully realized flawed human beings in in, re- in ways that f- feel real to me. Um, number fourteen is Killers of the Flower Flower Moon. Uh, you may have heard of it. It's by Scorsese, and it's epic. It's packed with a lot of things that we've come to expect from Scorsese. Uh, but you know, of course, just the betrayal, the greed, the uh, the horrific nature of Leonardo DiCaprio's character here and the fact that he's just a dumbass and I <laughs> like I just kept getting madder and madder as this whole thing went along. Uh there's no denying his talents as a storyteller. Uh the score, the performances, everything about it worked for me. You know, people sort of harped on about oh it's too long or whatever. I never felt disengaged by it. And then the final 10 minutes or so come up and I thought it was like one of the more audacious ways for him to end a movie. So uh, I, I, I wanted it to watch it again for a second time to see how I felt about it now that I know what I was in for and where it went. But uh, yeah, right now it's at 14, Killers of the Flower Moon. Number 13 was also mentioned, Hannah Haha, a film that uh, I, the more I think about it, the more I go, I want movies like these, more, more movies like these, please. I just like something this simple uh, and you know, just experiencing a 25-year-old living with her aging father in a small town, pulled into different directions by outside forces, including her older brother. And just like, yeah, it's just very, again, I use the word a lot, but grounded and compassionate and just, you know, a slice of life that feels like somebody we would all get to know in real life. And the, uh, the lead performance by Hannah Lee Thompson is just wonderful and it's a movie about how like contentment can mean different things to different people and sometimes we should just let people live that the way they want to number 12 is the zone of interest uh another movie that i wonder how i'm gonna feel about once i watch it again that's kind of a theme for a lot of these titles is i want to watch them again but the the sheer discomfort i felt throughout and it's jonathan glazer like his kind of his take on the act of killing really. Um, and it's, you know, a lot of people know kind of what it's about, about Auschwitz and how this couple are trying to build a normal life in a house that is really literally right next door to the camp, never really acknowledging the horrors that are going on. Uh, it's again, incredibly well shot, uh, astonishing sound design and score. It's just, I mean, I felt like just, I had to, yeah, like I had to have a therapy session after this movie because of how much it got to me. Um, and Jonathan Glazer is just a fascinating filmmaker. Uh, number eleven uh, is a film called Retrograde, not to be confused with a documentary of the same name uh, that came out a couple years ago about the U.S. withdrawal in Afghanistan. This is something very different. It is a minimalist, almost mumblecore-like Canadian film. Uh, it's a little bit of a, again, a slice of life character study, but uh, about a, a woman who's kind of irritating and insufferable because she's, you know, feels a sense of privilege. And it's just all about what happens after she receives a traffic violation ticket and what she decides to do to fight it. 
Uh, and there's no score. There's no soundtrack. This like you hear the hums of an office space, and it really just captures awkward tension as a result of feeling entitled or wanting to be right. And like all the different little conflicts that ensue as a result of that feeling, like just whether she's on the job, whether she's with friends or roommates, it sort of like infects everything and everyone around her that it's just like, oof, it's, it really got to me. It's my kind of small, intimate story, very much like Hannah Ha Ha. And uh, the themes kind of tie in wonderfully to my favorite show of the year, The Curse on Paramount+. Plus. So that's just a, shame, a little plug for the show I love this year so much, featuring Benny Safdie, Emma Stone, and Nathan Fielder. So that's uh, number 11 is Retrograde. I hope people seek that out, and I'm glad you did, Bill. Yeah, it'll come up again. Oh, cool. All right, I'm done. Woo! Okay. Patrick, it's your turn. Okay. Do it. Um, and then just for the record, number one, apologies to all the names I'm about to mispronounce. Everyone deserves to have their name pronounced correctly, and I'm <laughs> I just did, not I'm, going I did to be able too. to achieve That's, it. Yeah. yeah, people are used to it. Um, number two, I'm going off of when I was sort of accumulating lists of like, what are some things that came out this year? I was going off of, did it have a Chicago commercial release this year? So there are some of these films that I think are listed as 2022 or even 2021 movies, but their first time I would have an opportunity to see them as someone who doesn't go to festivals or anything was when they played at the Gene Siskel in April or something like that. So Mm. um, I believe that is true of my first film, which is The Cow Who Sang a Song Into the Future by Francisca Algeria. Um, It's a Chilean film. Um, I think something that I really disenchanted me about... uh, watching movies I certainly in like since Trump was elected but especially since COVID is the feeling that everything I'm watching exists in an alternate reality where <laughs> everything is f- still fine um, and we are not in fact on the precipice of extinction and I feel like I'm being gaslit when I watch movies like that and it's like I get it you're making a romantic comedy you don't necessarily need to for the people who are pairing up to be like, but by the way, we shouldn't have children because all this is collapsing, right? And they're like, yes, agreed, no children. Like, I understand why you don't mention it in all these movies, but at the same time, the like absolute terror that most filmmakers seem to have at actually looking at the world as it exists for most people is very frustrating. And I was very impressed by the cow who sang a song into the future and its ability to sort of look at climate change and look at a potential human extinction and sort of approach that with this amount of grace and the understanding that like um, the future is is not bright. There there might in fact be nothing in the future, but like before that happens, we as people still have opportunities to evolve and change and become better and to correct the mistakes that we make. And even if correcting those mistakes will not, you know, for example, reverse climate change. Uh, then it, we can at least become better people than we were uh, when we caused all of that. And it's mm. a slightly surrealist, um, slightly queer, uh, just kind of weird, vibey kind of movie. Um, I really uh, enjoyed the hell out of it. That's so my number 24 is The Holdovers by Alexander Payne. We did an episode of 96 Greers on The Descendants that was mostly built around reading critics' uh, reviews at the time and wondering how the fuck anyone <laughs> ever watched The Descendants and took it seriously because it was so terrible. And like, I love um, Citizen Ruth. I really like Election. Um, like I, there's a, there is a part of Alexander Payne's career that I was very enthusiastic about and that all fell off a fucking cliff with the descendants and actually watching the holdovers 
was kind of vindicating in a way because it is this sort of like underhanded pitch like this is a fucking dramedy you know like i told my mom recently i said there's a new movie that's on peacock right now it's called the holdovers i think you'll like it and guess what my mom likes the holdovers Yay. and she, she doesn't like art <laughs> she, you know she's just like not that person but she really liked the holdovers and it's sure. just a good version of that instead of a shitty version of that mm-hmm. and it turns out you can make a good version of it um, there's not a single surprise to be had in it, but um, it is yeah, just like thoroughly enjoyable and well made. And Paul Giamatti, I'm a bit of a skeptic of. I tend to not think he's very good, but I think he's quite good in the holdovers. Okay, good. Um, Hannah Haha is my number 23 by Jordan Tatuski and Joshua Pikovsky. Bill brought up a sort of apprehension at like, oh, is this going to be some sort of weird mumblecore parody with the title? I do think <laughs> it is sort of like a post mumblecore movie, but there is something like really interesting about a movie like this that does kind of felt like it uh, it does feel like it fell out of the early part of Andrew Bujowski's career. That's right, exactly what I was going to say. Um, yeah. But is in fact shot on 70 millimeter. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a very weird looking movie. You normally yeah, don't have... Yeah, it's very foggy. This kind of movie normally does not have a distinct look and I really enjoyed the look of this. Me I too. thought it sort of captured... There's something about the weird fogginess of it that captures how it feels to be in like a Midwestern small town to me. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, uh, my partner, Reg, uh, used to run a blog called Panda Bear Shape. It's still available at pandabearshape.com. A lot of good essays on there. And they were essays about fat people in film and about how fat people are depicted and how uh, filmmakers tell the audience that someone is fat and how they feel about it. And Hannah um, Lee uh, Thompson. What's that? Hannah Lee Thompson. Hannah Lee Thompson, but specifically Hannah, the character, mm-hmm. um, is like, it's like, oh my God, someone actually sat down and made like a really great fucking fat character who is like their size and their weight affects who, who, how people treat them and how people react to them and what their life is like, but they are still just like a full person and right. they're still able to experience like, they're a not f- entirely defined by exactly. That. Like yeah. it's not a non-factor. It's not like, boy, no one mentions it in a way that in real life people actually are shitty or whatever. Like there's the, there's so much about the way that that specific aspect of her character is depicted that is really interesting um, and impressive. And uh, so that was fun to watch that next to Reg and have them sort of talk about all of the frustrating movies that came before Hannah Ha Ha <laughs> and, and how they failed to do the same thing. Sure. Um, let's see. What number is this? My number 22 is Oppenheimer by Christopher Nolan. Um, I really, really liked this the first time I saw it. And then I saw it again. And I still really, really liked it. And then every subsequent day I thought about it, I'm like, wait, why did I like that again? And (laughs) I think about, I look at this and the position it is on my list now, and I'm like, I think 22 might be way too high. I don't think this is a particularly good movie. Now, I'm a... Weird. I'm I'm someone who, I just like Christopher Nolan's thing. I like his vibe, but I kind of think he works best when he is divorced from having to like tell a story like i i'm the kind of sicko who it's like i'm probably going to watch tenet more than i watch oppenheimer i kind of maybe think that uh a movie like dunkirk is better than oppenheimer as well because they are more about the things he's good at which is like the sensation and the largeness and the and the scale and the the score and everything but on the other hand maybe if i sat down and watched oppenheimer tomorrow i would be like Oh, no, 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 no. Actually, there's A, B, C, D, and E, and that's why that movie's good. I just can't remember it. But Oppenheimer's my number 22. Um, Might deserve to be higher, might deserve to be lower. Who can say? My number 21 is Dick's the Musical. In fact, there's a lot of things that it does that I think it's like, oh, 
the, they fall into a lot of bad like musical comedy traps where they'll end a line uh like they'll have a couplet right and the first line ends in truck and then you're like all right i get what kind of movie this is the next line's gonna end in fuck and then sure enough it does and it's not a shocking joke because you know how rhyming works and like they fall into that trap a bunch and megan the stallion has an absolutely fucking awful song in it um that so like there it's not like a cross the board great movie but i did find it pretty consistently funny and there's a single scene in it that I and it's again Larry Charles the director of Borat directed this and I could not fucking breathe I was laughing so hard and I don't want to spoil it It involves Nathan Lane he unfortunately has already spoiled it um, in appearances on talk shows and stuff like that for this movie but if you don't know anything about the movie just go into it and I think you'll know the part when it happens because it's just so fucking insane and I laugh so hard. So I wanted to acknowledge Dick's the musical for that. Um, number 20 is also a, a, a comedy Barbie. Um, I think Barbie does everything right. And the fact that it's not higher is due to the fact that it's a fucking commercial. It's a commercial. It's a McCur- It's a toy commercial for Mattel the way a Transformers movie is a Transformers commercial for Mattel or whoever owns the rights to those toys. It's like, they, they, they trot out Rhea Perlman at the end to be like, did you know Barbie was invented by a woman? Whoa. She's kind of like the first girl boss, don't you think? And like all that shit is like corny as hell and I do not like it. Mm. But it is really fucking funny. And I was so down on the prospect of this movie before it came out. I was like, no, Greta Gerwig, please don't do this. And the fact that I did not trust the screenwriters of Mistress America to like sit down and write a comedy that was very funny, like shame on me because Barbie is very funny and I enjoyed it a lot, even though it's just a fucking toy commercial. And not just, but predominantly a fucking toy commercial. Number 19, uh, slightly more interesting comedy, You Hurt My Feelings, um, directed by Nicole Holof Center. 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 Um, I really was disappointed by the third act of this. Um, I thought yeah. it, there's I the ending of it is just like the last 30 minutes of this movie is people sitting down and telling each other how they feel, which is like the worst fucking way to dramatize any story. And so like I, I was disappointed about where it ends up. But before that happens, it is such a really clear eyed and nuanced and interesting look at the ways that lying is an essential part of being an adult. And I, <laughs> yep. there's just, there's so many specific interactions that are so subtle and interesting and there's so much subtext going on. And I, I was really enjoying the hell out of it. I love the idea of making a movie about people who are in fact just shitty at their jobs. And it's not like, Oh, they don't have the confidence, but maybe they can get like, no, he sucks. He's, He's a, a bad terrible therapist. therapist. She's not a good writer. <laughs> like I, I think there is a certain bravery in just like saying you are going to follow characters who are not, who are mediocre. And like, we are going to make that a defining aspect of their character. I really enjoyed You Hurt My Feelings. Number 18 is The Killer. Um, I just fucking love the vibe of this. I thought it was very funny. I thought um, Michael Fassbender is such a weird character. I love the constant recurring gag of his internal monologue being about what a cool, badass, cold, professional killer he is. And then the actual events of the movie is just him fucking up again and again and having to improvise his way out of another catastrophe. And like the dynamic between that, I found very consistently amusing. I think that one fight scene that happens in the guy's house is like one of the greatest fight scenes I've seen this year. And I've seen a bunch. Um, 
it's it doesn't reinvent the wheel. It is still just like another fucking quirky hitman movie in in many ways. And I think like by the end, it kind of goes maybe into killing them softly territory where it's like, really, this is about what it's like to live in corporate America and late capitalism. And I'm I think, just like you. Uh, yeah. And that sort of stuff, I think, is like a little more hackneyed. But um, a lot of the other material is just fucking delicious. And I really like the killer. My number 17 is Everything Went Fine by Francois Ozon. Uh, Francois Ozon has been sort of a uh, beloved in, uh, international art house filmmaker for a while now, and I just haven't seen any of his fucking movies except for this one. So I can't really say like where this sits in his career. In fact, he has another movie that came out this year uh, recently that I think gets has gotten more praise. I haven't seen that either, so I can't, can't say. But um, Everything Went Fine is, is about Sophie Marceau and she has a really fucking horrible father who was kind of emotionally abusive growing up and he's just a dick and he has a stroke and he has decided that the quality of his life is such that he no longer wants to live and he puts it on her to work out the arrangements for an assisted suicide and it is a very interesting dynamic the two have because she loves him because he's her father. He's not like, it's not like he beat her growing up or anything like that, but he is just passive aggressive and shitty through the whole process. And he, she's sort of like, I get, I, look, we're going to have these conversations, but also you're going to keep doing your physical therapy and eventually you're going to get better. And lo and behold, he does get better. And it turns out it doesn't matter. He still wants to fucking die because he is just a miserable pile of shit. And the, the like navigate, it's a really thorny, dark, comedic, but also very moving uh, sort of relationship they have. And I, I just, I really, really love Sophie Marceau in this role. And I loved uh, it. It felt like a sort of there. There are a lot of movies again, like an Alexander Payne kind of dramedy where it's like it's a prickly family. But at the end, it, it's all heart and love. And it's like this is a movie about what if in the, at the center of everything, there isn't all heart and love. But because you're still a family, you still have to go through those obligations anyway. And like, what does that mean emotionally? And um so everything went fine. I think is sort of a slept-on movie that I thought was fucking great. I'll look. Th- I'll look, look into that one. Sixteen is Skinamarink. It is in fact mm. just the most scared I have ever been in a movie theater. I had muscle cramps the next day because I was so fucking tense in my seat. Uh, whatever you know, I'm like I am someone who had already spent the year dialing into slow cinema. Like I saw this as I was prepping for the Chiming Liang episode. (laughs) Um, And like, this is sort of like a slow cinema horror movie. And it is also just like the specific touchstones uh, nostalgically. It's like, yes, I, I, I think I am sort of exist in a, uh, a similar era as this. There are just like little parts of the decor that I'm like, that's right. In 1993, every fucking home, uh, all of my friends' homes had that little like mm. plug in light and yeah, stuff yeah, like yeah. that. Um, I talked a lot about it on we on uh, genre grinder. Me and Gabe host Gabe powers did the 101 actual scariest movie moments countdown. And I'm very proud of those episodes. So go and watch, I believe the fourth and final part of that countdown. And you'll hear me talk about skin and in detail. I, I recommend that immensely. It's great. Um, my number 15 is theater camp. Um, it is not directed by Christopher guest. It is in fact still the best Christopher guest movie since best in show. 
Um, I don't know how it plays to people who didn't do theater growing up as children, but I certainly did. And I worked at a children's theater later on. And I feel like the environments I was in were like maybe one tenth as intense as these overachiever little uh, like I don't even know what what generation they'd be. They might be too young to be Zoomers, but like definitely um, super career oriented children who take themselves extremely seriously as they do a lot of bad child acting. Um fucking hysterical i was dying laughing the entire time i wow i fucking love theater camp you and, and eric childress yeah. love this movie i i mean a and rare it, occasion that you agree that's true i'm not i'm not uh on in sync with uh, eric childress but i just thought everyone knocked it out of the park nice. and i thought it was so funny um my number 14 is spider-man across the spider-verse i had kind of a weird experience with it where i saw the the previous uh spider-verse movie when it came out and not since and i remembered zero plot from it because that's not a movie that i feel is defined by the story Mm. it's defined by the visual style um and also i was fucking stoned out of my mind when i saw this movie and i had a transcendent psychedelic experience in which i didn't really understand what was going on because i couldn't remember what the character dynamics were from the previous movie and also i did not realize that this is going to be another one of those movies that sort of just like abruptly ends and doesn't actually conclude because they're setting up the next movie so that was kind of disappointing but like as just a visual feast, it is more ambitious um, than Into the Spider-Verse. It is more interesting. It is so gorgeous. Um, apparently, that comes at a cost. Uh, go ahead and, and read some articles about how the animators of this movie made the movie and what they went through. And again, Uh-oh. like, please, animators, uh, unionize. <laughs> um, but at, at any rate, like, I was, I had tears in my eyes during parts of this movie just because it was so fucking beautiful. So across I the Spider-Verse, I really loved my number 13 is Falcon Lake. Um, really well observed, really beautiful, very touching coming of age story. Um, very interesting, nuanced uh, look at like what a three year age gap means from 13 to 16 and what a three year age gap means from 16 to 19. And like, like it's insight into that stuff is so fucking good. And the line it walks where it is very it's not about like the tender sweet love it is about a fucking horny 13 year old boy oh yeah and the way it is able to like have him gaze upon this 16 year old girl like honestly and not sort of like shy away from the potential icky sexuality of like we have a teenage actor. i'm sure she was overage i don't know what the situation is there but at any rate like i thought that line it walked was very interesting and it was able to like be have like a sort of full-throated libido uh, while still being somewhat tasteful and in- uh, was interesting. And then the uh, sort of supernatural aspect, the way that was laced in got more and more interesting as the movie went on. We'll hear more about Falcon Lake later. Oh yeah, you will. My number 12 was, and I'm definitely going to mispronounce this, Bagavanth Kasari, uh, directed by Anil Ravi Pudi. So the most important thing that happened to me this year, as far as film going goes, is that I got into Indian cinema. And we'll talk more about another Indian film later on, mm. but... I just happened to go to my local multiplex, which because it's a major city, they were always showing some mainstream Chinese or mainstream um, Indian film. Um, Bhagavanth Vasari is not a Bollywood movie. There are, in fact, several film industries in India. 
it's it's in the language is Telugu, not Hindi, so it is a Tollywood Tollywood movie, not right. a Bollywood movie. I am not the expert on Indian cinema who can like actually unpack all this shit for you. And in fact, I still haven't seen RRR, so I'm actually coming to all of this a year late. Everyone else already got into Indian action cinema last year, and I'm sort of getting there uh, on a delay. But I embraced it wholeheartedly. I saw like six Indian action movies that came out this year, and I I really like them all. Um, Bagavan Kasari uh, sort of typifies what I find fascinating about these movies, which is it is so tonally uh, abusive. <laughs> I might even say oh it is about a cuddly, lovable papa bear who is also this like Nietzschean superhuman Superman uh, corrupt, dirty cop. It is like <laughs> if Harvey Keitel. Uh, Bad in Lieutenant. Bad Lieutenant was also Christopher Reeves in Superman and he murdered like <laughs> 800 people in the name of feminism but a very specific patriarchal uh, vision of feminism and it's also a movie that like stops dead for six minutes so he can deliver a monologue to an elementary school about what good touch and bad touch is um, it has absolutely insane action sequences very violent people just constantly getting mowed down very it's got that uh thing i came to associate with indian action movies again not an expert so can't really speak to it in detail but like a very loose uh uh reality in terms of the physics of how things happen and why hmm. very cartoonish very silly but also just like really aggressively nasty and gritty um i fucking loved this movie this movie i think it's on prime yeah the great thing about indian uh cinema is they come out in theaters in america and then a month later they are either on netflix or prime so if hmm. you have both you probably have access to like 20 really fascinating action movies the fe- thing i feel about this is like if it was the 90s and i was a teenager and my understanding of action movies was Steven Seagal movies, Sylvester Stallone movies, <laughs> and like shit like that. And all of a sudden, I went to the video store and the guy was like, hey, did you check this one out? It's called Once a Thief. Now, it's subtitled, but I think you'll like it. And I put on a John Woo movie sure, and I'm sure, like, sure. what the fuck is this? Now, is Once, that the, happened to me. Is Once, the, Thie- is Once a Thief the best uh, Hong Kong action movie? No, probably not in the top 10. But if you are mostly only exposed to... Uh, other movies that don't have the uh, the uh, ambition and the imagination and and the uh, the drive to like fully uh, embrace melodrama and all of these things that uh, definitely a Steven Seagal would would find too corny or whatever. Like so, anyway, Bhagavanth Kasari is one of my favorite Indian films of the year. Uh, insane! You should check it out. My number eleven is Killers of the Flower Moon by Martin Scorsese. I thought the opening was extremely interesting. The uh, the montage that sh- sort of shows that like the first corruption that happens is not the white people who come to town, but it is in fact the Osage who buy into the lie of the American dream and mm. buy into conspicuous consumption. I thought that was fascinating. And then there are three hours and 15 minutes of the exact movie I thought it was going to be. And it's Martin Scorsese. It's immaculately constructed. It's very moving. There's several extremely good performances. There's like, you know, a dozen memorable scenes, but it was just sort of like the reason it's not higher on my list is it was exactly what I thought it was going to be. And like a lot of later Scorsese movies, it did so with like a little more repetitive than it needed to be. 
Um, yeah. A little longer than it needs to be. And then the last 10 minutes of the movie, I thought, were also fucking incredible. I, I think it is extremely clear-eyed in terms of its vision of like the evil of capitalism and white supremacy and how those two are like the main forces that shaped the nation we live in. Mm-hmm. But um, it's not higher because... Uh, like Bill mentioned earlier about like maybe over prioritizing being surprised. There was very little about this movie that surprised me. Yeah, I would agree with that. Actually. I agree with that assessment. Um, wow. My mind is just blown every time I hear from both you and Bill in just terms of all the movies I want to see too. Mm-hmm. It's just so great. Before we move on, let's hear from Chloe warrior previous guest from the James Wan episode and what she thinks are some of her favorite films of 2023. Hello, this is Chloe from Chloe's Not Scared, where I read about horror movies and books on the internet. Follow me on Instagram if you want. I was on the October episode of Director's Club talking about James Wan, so thank you for having me back, guys. Um, Without further ado, here are my best movies of 2023. Number 10 is Godzilla Minus One. Now, this was like a very bad year for horror movies, but Godzilla was great. Godzilla was the best Godzilla movie we've had in a really long time. And the best CGI in an action movie in a really long time. Marvel, if you're listening, take note. Number nine is The Holdovers. I'm such a sucker for academia in the 70s, New England, private prep school. And I also watched this by myself alone on Thanksgiving. And so it hit really close to home. So I really liked it. Number eight is Priscilla. I firmly believe Sofia Coppola is the only living director that could have made this film. She was able to glamorize Graceland without glamorizing the abuse and neglect and loneliness that Priscilla Presley faced. And also they built Graceland for this. Like, I've been to Graceland. It looked exactly the same. I'm in awe. Number seven is Asteroid City. A little begrudgingly, I'm not the biggest Wes Anderson fan. I like him, but he's not my favorite favorite. But I have to admit that the stuff he's doing here seems self-aware. And I also just like the themes of performance and acting. I like movies about movies, basically, as a lot of movie fans do. Number six, way too high on this list, and I'm sorry, Jim, it's Saltburn. Okay, hear me out. I agree with all the criticisms of this movie. Does it have the best message? Absolutely not. Is it interesting in any way? Eh, kinda. But mostly it's just pretty, it's nice to look at, it's nice to hang out in. Reminded me of a Ken Russell movie, like a bisexual fever dream. It reminded me of The Secret History, which is one of my favorite books. And I was also their age in 2006, so it was like, Oh, we're going back there. Okay, MGMT. Let's rock. Uh, number five is Anatomy of a Fall. It is another bisexual dream, or rather nightmare, and it is not as fun. It does have great needle drops, though, specifically that one song, The Steel Drums, and 50 Cent, I think, and a great dog performance. 
Uh, number four for me is Barbie. I love Greta Gerwig. I love Lady Bird. It's one of my favorite movies of all time, but I didn't like Barbie at first. I really wanted it to be more radical in its feminism, but then I watched it again and I was like, I see the singing in the rain homages. I see, you know, the, the dream ballet, the practical effects are all beautiful. So I don't know. That's what really made the film for me. It's really, really impressive if you focus on the practical effects. Number three is Boy and the Heron. Why? What is there to say that hasn't already been said about Miyazaki? It's a beautiful movie. He is my favorite director. Um, he didn't really do a lot of like explaining the plot in this one, which I liked. It gives you know, agency to the audience. And it just seems like a great final film from him. Number two is Past Lives. Celine's song, I can't believe this is your debut. I love movies that are made by playwrights. I think they tend to be more character driven. And this is really just a movie about two people talking. And it's really interesting and emotional. I cried. You'll definitely cry. But number one for me is Oppenheimer. Cillian Murphy just nailed it. He nailed this performance. I love Christopher Nolan, but I love silly Christopher Nolan. Like I went to Tenant opening weekend in a face shield, but like Oppenheimer is is so good and it's gonna win best picture. And it's another one of those films where it's like the auteurs are doing their thing and I'm not sure if it's on purpose or not, but everything clicked into place and it, is awesome. It's just a great movie. I think it's fitting that Oppie and Godzilla are both on this list. Definitely see them as a double feature. It's very thought-provoking. And that's my list. Again, I'm Chloe. Thank you so much. Oh boy, here we are at the top 10 films of 2023. Patrick, you get to go first this time. Sure thing. My number 10 is Nobody's Hero, um, directed by uh, Alain Guillardi, or however we decided we pronounced it. It's Goulardi. It's Goulardi. He stays sick. (laughs) Um, Staying Vertical is like easily one of my uh, favorite comedies of the past 10 years. I absolutely adore his loopy sensibility and his surrealism and his sort of uh, storytelling method where just things keep cast catastrophizing and spiraling out of control and the movie keeps sort of unfolding and revealing new wrinkles and layers and like the reality you keep questioning. Yeah. Um, this is a movie I watched a long time ago and I honestly remember very few details of it, but it is more of that really pleasant loopy energy i again i think it is like i really appreciate how daring it is in terms of just like being willing to like look islamophobia in the face and Mm -hmm. not be and not in like a it doesn't feel like a weak liberal kind of like oh of course all of course all people they're all good they're all good people there's no bad people who are islam you know there's no bad muslims they're all good muslims and anyone who like it acknowledges that it's like actually we live in a a tense and complicated world and it but like it's 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 sort of uh it's sort of 
provocative like it, it it wants to make you uh the presumed uh sort of uh leftist art house uh audience member it wants to make you uncomfortable and like figure out where you agree and disagree and like as a comedy of manners there's uh it's like it's not a realistic comedy of manners it's, it's sort of like a turbocharged <laughs> insane comedy of it's manners but like yeah but it is that awkward humor where like people do absurd things because they are too afraid to do the thing they want to do because they, they don't know how it's going to come across uh, socially. And um, the sort of central dynamic of the whole thing where this guy is absolutely madly in love with the sex worker um, and her ridiculous uh, attempts to keep leaving her husband uh, for him. Just, it's so funny. And so nobody's here. I don't have a lot Again, saw this a long time ago, and a lot of the details left my brain. But I really like Nobody's Hero, um, and this uh, director's work in general. Yeah, it sort of escalates into like a farce. Yeah, at, yeah. At some point, that's just really entertaining. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, wait. Actually, I'll go next. Right? Yeah, I'll go next with number ten. My number ten happens to be a little film called Oppenheimer. I don't know if anybody's heard of it. It's a little indie film from an unknown director named Christopher Nolan. I was very entertained by this movie and enthralled throughout the entire running time. I was, uh, I mean, is it possible to walk, you know, when a movie's over to feel exhausted and invigorated at the same time, that's kind of how I, I approach a lot of his work <laughs> where I'm just kind of like floored by his storytelling technique in terms of the editing and the time displacement. And he does less of that. I agree. It's not like tenant. It's not like uh, Dunkirk, but it's still like just so controlled and, 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 and really engaging in how he tells his story here. Um, I think I, th I just always drawn to his editing and, and, and a lot of people complain about the score as being too enveloping and too consistent throughout the whole thing. But I think it's, it, to me, it feels like it's orchestrated uh, like a symphony <laughs> in ways, you know? I get a sense of, like, he's a very musical director in that sense. It's a movie about chain reactions, and in yeah. a very operatic way, it wants the smallest thing to be the same. Like, in a fractal, it wants the smallest part of the movie to be the same shape as the mm -hmm. largest part of the movie. And it all flows. And so, like, that operatic approach with the sit with the score just sort of on the entire thing and it being conducted and going back and forth in time and stuff... Uh, in that sort of Dunkirk uh, editing philosophy, yeah, um, it it all fits. It made me think of JFK. This would be a very boring movie if it was more traditional. Yeah, and that's kind of what I loved about it is that it's it doesn't take a traditional approach to telling a, a story of you know a character who's clearly conflicted and yet wants to embrace embrace his talent and his intelligence and have it be appreciated. Uh, it's just a like it, it's funny when I think of him coming up with his theories and his ideas being so well thought and engineered. I think of Christopher Nolan figuring out how to put all this together, like put all these pieces together uh, in, in a way that I just find like invigorating. I mean, there's a line of dialogue later in the film during a meeting with everybody where a politician says, Oh, we, we can't bomb there. My family vacations there. And I felt like that just sums up how those in power, think and control situations like like this and just make horrible decisions based on their own you know thoughts and feelings and and desires and it's just like oh i i think about the trinity test and i get goosebumps 
I I mean, I will say like the the big strike against it for it not being like maybe in my top five or whatever really is a it's sim- similar to what I've been talking about because I it's unintentionally funny is that uh, moment with Florence Pugh in the in the meeting room writing him and the whole audience just broke into laughter at that and I thought that was very strange and not something I'm used to seeing from Christopher Nolan like that sort of break in reality you know like that it was almost like a surreal touch that you would see something like in the master right but it just didn't feel like it belonged I don't think it like bothered me to the point of like oh I don't think this movie is that great it was just like one moment that felt really jarring to me did you feel that way at all I I think I think Christopher Nolan is kind of unsuited to tackle sexuality in in any form. I (laughs) thought so too. (laughs) Yeah, I I, I feel like he's a sexless person. I find find the the philandering aspect of Oppenheimer to be like one of the least compelling Mm -hmm. parts of the movie. Yeah, it felt underwritten. And, you know, I don't know if Florence Pugh's character was well done, even if she's always good. Um I don't know. I'm kind of a Nolan fanboy. Yeah. I really do embrace a lot of his work, and I understand when people don't connect with it. Uh, I just I, I get kind of overwhelmed when I'm watching his movies in in ways that are refreshing because I always I, I normally don't respond to big escapist blockbuster entertainment. I certainly don't care about Marvel movies or comic book movies normally. So this is like me getting excited about that. Like if a Christopher Nolan movie comes out, I know I'm going to be there front and center. and I'm probably going to be really thrilled by it, even if I had a complete disconnect with Tenet. Um, so, yeah, this is just I mean, I love I love the ensemble here. Like almost every character actor imaginable has a really good scene. It's nice to see like Macon Blair in that um, hearing room. You know, there's just like a lot of nice touches. Uh, David Crumholtz is really good. Uh, just, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm the, again, like I can't remember like specific details because it feels like a movie that just like flows into me. And then I don't know if I can like say, well, this specific thing and that specific yeah. thing I loved about it. I think it's a matter of just loving it as a whole. I, I think when I talked earlier about like, I can't remember why I like it. I think you've actually touched upon it, which is if I look at any one aspect of the movie, I, I kind of feel like Christopher Nolan always has been limited. Like he never mm-hmm. swims very far away from Hack Island. He <laughs> can't like abandon the thing where it's like, character says a thing but words it in a very specific way that no human being would word it and then someone's like well what do you mean and it's like i'm gonna say the same thing again but then i flip two of the words like like that kind of like hacky screenwriting thing like those are like when i focus in on like what are the parts of the movie that exist it's like all that robert downey jr stuff a lot of that is like really hacky screenwriting stuff where it's just like people shouting like exposition at each other or whatever man Damon screaming like this is the most important thing in the history of the you know but i get it as as but the way it all flows together is the movie. Mm-hmm. It is it is the sensation of of the of the sweep of history is much more important than any actual individual thing that happens yes. in it. And it's like Christopher Nolan's ability to give you that sensation is the actual strength he has. Right. He's not a particularly deep person in terms of like screenwriting. Mm-hmm. I don't think he is like a big ideas man, and I don't think he is like a politically astute person who can look at a very thorny character in history and like nail them down in an interesting way. I yeah. I, I think like politically this movie is is like kind of a softball. Um but, more or less. But yeah. that sensation of the way everything goes together is the movie. Right. No, I agree. 
it's it's really great i mean if it wins things i'm not going to be like oh that was such a safe choice i don't know i'm i'll be happy if oppenheimer goes all the way like i I, again, like I, I wonder how I will feel. Oh, uh, I, the Oscars. I know. Okay, sorry, 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 sorry. I won't talk about awards. No okay, I'm done. I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm done. All right. Sorry. It's all right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what is Bill's number ten of the year? Well, I'll just say. Um, oh as, yeah, talk as about someone that has happening. never. Well, that I've never really been a, a Christopher Nolan fan. Um, uh, but I thought that this one. Uh was my favorite of his since Memento. Um, I think, I, well, I haven't seen Tenet yet. Uh, I want to. I've seen all of his, but I like the idea of Christopher Nolan. Like, I, I'm not, um, like, I like the idea of smart spectacle entertainment for grownups. Like, I, I, I have no problem with him. I just, I don't really tend to connect to his work generally. And sure. this one, I do like more. I think it's, it's odd because I feel like almost the entire thing is edited like a trailer. Like there's almost like nothing ever breathes for more than like a minute in it. Like every scene is so short that it yeah. feels like almost distracting to me. But I feel like that's that's how you tell this kind of historical three hour epic to people that have no attention spans is just make every scene short and punchy and just do the entire film that way with like maybe two exceptions for like the Trinity atomic test. war. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Or atomic uh, you know, explosions. But um mm-hmm. but and I actually enjoy the Florence Pugh stuff more than I think you do. You do. I think I just find that, I mean, it, I just thought it was like fun bantery stuff. I thought that the sex scene in the hearing or whatever just felt like bizarre and like almost <laughs> like a latter day Cronenberg kind of image. And I thought like, I don't know. I think because I hear so much about people getting upset with sex scenes in movies now that I thought the idea of putting a sex scene where there's really no logical reason to put it re- struck me as really funny. I mean, I <laughs> yeah, that's why people the laughed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I wasn't laughing. At, I wasn't laughing out loud at it, but I just thought it was like a peculiar. I, I it was kind of like how I felt about like the extended musical numbers in Barbie. Like I'm like, well, sure. I don't really care about this, but I'm like, I appreciate the bravado of if just going for it, and uh, it felt like. You know, that was probably not something that like tested in studio notes. Probably like it's probably something he had to force through. But I think uh, that makes it more interesting to have something that quirky in, in a film. I guess that I was just really... taken aback because I'm not used to Nolan doing something like that. And not that I yeah. found it like entirely bad, like a bad choice. It was just like, what? More like I a... don't know if it works, but I just thought yeah. it was on. Un... Yeah, I don't know. And I do like that that uh, Killian Murphy dresses like Bowie and Manny fell to Earth, which is a film I love. Excellent. So, Excellent do you choice. like um, that Killian Murphy's Oppenheimer voice just sounds like him doing a Robin Williams impression? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I, he... I love that. <laughs> yeah. Have any of you noticed that the Oppenheimer voice Killian Murphy's using sounds suspiciously like Robin Williams? It's kind of like if we drop a bomb, everyone's going to go, wow, <sighs> people are dead. Yeah, I mean, if it, I, I, it, will, it will probably, you know, I mean, uh, win awards, but we don't have to talk about that side of it. Ten uh, for my list is, um, uh, as, you, as you may know, is Priscilla from Sofia Coppola. Um, I thought this was the best thing she's done really maybe since Virgin Suicides and, and maybe as good, uh, although it's not as much pleasure to it because that has all of the joys of the seventies music. And like, it feels like it comes from her adolescence in a way. This feels like just a story. She's like well positioned to tell is like someone that like knows 
the world of rock started in the world of being a rock star's wife, the world of like uh, just growing up too fast, but because of the kind of culture you're surrounded by. Um, I, I, I realized this year that I'm increasingly out of touch when it comes to movie stars. Um, and this is one of those films where I didn't know anyone in it, um, which is kind of, and then not the only film on my list that is like that, um, which is kind of fun. Cause I just don't have any baggage with any of these people that I'm seeing. Um, so it just feels like a cast of unknown starring in a big budget movie to me. Sure. Yeah. Um, Makes sense. but I thought, um, and again, this is another one that deals with like that, you know, creepy adult minor dynamic that, you know, I think I saw it the same clump of weeks as I saw May, December and last summer. And, um, I think seeing them all, you know, kind of close together made me really think, Oh, this is like, this is a thing that's happening in movies now where we're dealing with this in different ways. But, um, yeah, no, I, I think I was surprised this wasn't a bigger film. I think um, maybe it's too austere. Maybe it takes down a, a, a hero that people don't want to take down, especially yeah, like a year after the, case, the Baz That's Lerman the case film. for my mom. She didn't like this because of that. Yeah. <laughs> Refuses um, to take Elvis off the pedestal. Just yeah, yeah, and I that surprises me, but I mean, I, I, you know, whatever. Like, yeah. uh, I I thought it was interesting how Sofia Coppola uses space to like make Elvis Presley look just so much more gigantic than mm. Priscilla. Like the way his hand, like the way his form, just seems to dwarf her. I thought it was like without any dialogue ever really commenting in a tut tut kind of way about the age gap. I mean, a few people acknowledge it, but it's for the most part, it's just an accepted part of it. But like, it's the way it's handled visually to make it seem strange. I thought was an interesting way to, to tell that story. And I, I thought, um, yeah, I mean, it just helped me like from beginning to end, as far as like just her mastery of storytelling. And it's like, feels like, it feels like a film that was like made with like less resources than you'd think given that subject matter and given like her track record. And um, no, it, it feels like kind of a passion project in a way. And I, I, I thought it was, um, and not, I mean, it wasn't like a, not like a surprise, but I mean, I think after the begotten and that, that Bill Murray comedy and you know, even somewhere in the bling ring and all these films that she's done over these, I, I thought this was like, like so much far advance over anything she's done since the very beginning of her career. And um, I always check out her stuff, but this is the best thing for me in a long time. And um, so that's my number 10. I actually agree. I think it is her best film since the Virgin suicides. It's number 26 on my list. And it's number nine for me. My number nine is Priscilla. Way to go. Um, (laughs) The last time I talked about Sofia Coppola on this podcast, we were discussing somewhere and in the meantime, two th- important things have happened. One, I hadn't seen Virgin Suicides at the time. Uh, that movie's fucking incredible. I right. love the Virgin Suicides, and it totally changed my like dismissive attitude towards Sofia Coppola. And I always knew Sofia Coppola is a very talented filmmaker. What she doesn't often do for me is find material where those talents are well utilized in a story I give a fuck about. <laughs> like I, I think she, I think there's value in someone who has like observed lived experience with privilege and who can depict all the nuances of that. But the way you don't do that is somewhere or lost in translation. Like, I don't think these are very good movies. Um, And so I sort of wrote Sofia Coppola off as like, 
when she approaches material that is sort of divorced from that, even if it doesn't feel as vital, I at least like can appreciate that it's like a well shot, tasteful thing. Like I, I enjoyed the begotten just because it is just like, she has a good eye and she makes beautiful movies and it's fine. (laughs) You know, and it's like, it's a, it's a very good looking version of the thing it is, which is fine. Priscilla is like a massively compelling context for all of her talents. Like Mm. everything that she is good at everything that she has lived and experienced and how she puts her own life into these stories, um, like pays off massive dividends here in a way that it really doesn't anywhere else. And like, I, I think, I think that was a really interesting point you made bill about like how it feels like it is made for a lower budget than you would expect a movie like this to be. And like that Mm -hmm. to me is there is a part of the way you get inside of Priscilla Presley's shoes is there is a stifling nature to the idea of an Elvis movie that is mostly shot in the same three fucking rooms in the same house. And even if it's a mansion (laughs) on Graceland, like it's still the same three fucking rooms in that same house. And you really feel antsy the way she does, because what you want to do is go traveling around with a rock star and see all the rock star stuff. Well, watch the Baz Luhrmann version of that. If you want, I I don't, I (laughs) don't don't want to see it. I watched the first, I watched the first 90 minutes of that movie and I called it quits, but um, good, good choice. At any rate, like I, I thought it was very funny in addition to being like, you know, it's it's obviously like it's a very it's very easy for modern audiences to point at that relationship and go, oh, uh, you know, uh, someone abusing their power, you know, the grooming, the grooming. There's all these things that it's like very clear that it's it's we can all shake our heads and wag our finger and then she leaves and we feel better because she's no longer Elvis's wife and like. That it's a very easy uh, story to tell in some ways in a in a uh, modern uh, you know approved moral way, but I think the way that she consistently finds ways to make it extremely funny <laughs> is like like when he is leading his little uh, Bible lessons uh, with his little cult of blondes, like that shit is so funny to oh, me. Yeah. <laughs> um, they're like. There, there's just so many bits and pieces here and there. I love that the Memphis Mafia to me is like, I, I just, I know for a fact that she took her experiences like sort of tagging along with the Jackass crew <laughs> and like put it into the Memphis Mafia. Like, the, it's like this is this is someone who was married to Spike Jones and had to endure more of Steve-O than anyone should have to, <laughs> and like you get that vibe in this and like. You know, she has great taste in music and the musical choices are all good and stuff like that. And yeah, I just think it's like perfect material for her talents. It's it's the kind of lightning in a bottle that's like, uh, for my taste, as someone who is not a Sofia Coppola fan, like I'm not saying I'm not looking at this and being like, ah, it looks like she's really turned her career around and I'm very excited for the next Sofia Coppola movie. Like, I'm I'm probably not going to like the next one the same way I don't like most of them or the w- way I think they're just fine or whatever. But this particular movie just absolutely hits on all levels and is, I just, it really surprised me, um, especially, and I, I and I wanted to give her her credit because the last time I was on this podcast talking about her, I was a lot more dismissive. <laughs> um, so yeah, I fucking love Priscilla. I do too. And uh, nice, nice use of uh, I will always love you at the very end. It really is a great touch because I guess um, Dolly Parton 
said, you know, you can't cover this song, Elvis. <laughs> she actually, because he wanted, he wanted to cover this song. He loved that song so much, but she refused to let him do it. I know that uh, Colonel Tom Parker was like really insistent and she just said, nope, I am not giving you permission to cover that song. So I thought it was a really interesting touch for Sofia Coppola to, de- <laughs> to decide like, hey, we're going to play the song here at the end that she's driving off. It's a really, really interesting choice on her part. But, um, And the actress that played Priscilla is tremendous in this. Uh, I, th- I think she was in um, an Alex Garland thing that I've seen. I think, uh, yeah, like his uh, miniseries Devs is where I, I've seen her before, and she's wow, really, really great in this. As uh, the gentleman that played Elvis, who is also in a movie I didn't like, Saltburn. So, yeah, no, they were great. I mean, I echo everything both of you have said about this movie. And uh, I have been a Sofia Coppola fan for a very long time. So I'm, I'm, I was floored by this movie and in, in all the right ways and all the ways that you both have mentioned. So it's my turn, right? Number nine. Number nine. It's a film called The Teacher's Lounge. And um, I think it'll be opening up at the Music Box, Patrick. I highly recommend it if you want to feel anxiety. I do want to feel anxiety. For Thank about you, Jim. Minutes <laughs> for a sustained period of time. Um, is this out of Germany? Am I right, Bill? I think. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It's German. Um, I think if you've ever, and you you've taught you you mentioned to me you just mentioned on this podcast, Patrick, that you've taught theater to ch- children before. Uh, improv, but in a okay. children's theater. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. That's. Uh, yeah. I can I can see your connection to theater camp for that for sure, but this is also <clears throat> a a story about teaching that I think will resonate with you um, if you've like ever second guessed a choice that you made or something that you've said to another person uh, and how you're very weary of that like you're overthinking it when you get home like did I say the right thing did I do the right thing. Did I create a domino effect that's going to lead to a lot of tension the next day? And, it's, and in some ways, this this story is like a little bit of a Safety Brothers movie or something by the Dardens in that it just like pits these desperate people trying to stand their ground and all come from a different place while doing it. But it's really, again, similar to what I talked about with Monster is that it's about one inciting incident. And in this case, it's a teacher who decides to call someone out for possible theft. And we don't know for sure if it happened or not. She's convinced it is. And it becomes a bigger issue the more people get involved with trying to figure out what happened, how it happened. There's video footage, but we we don't see the face of the person. Uh, so it's you know part a little bit of a mystery, but more about character dynamics and how like you know the principal has a different idea and how it's going to affect the school uh the child's parents the child themselves and the school newspaper the it's just like all these people start getting involved because it spreads like a virus just like what happened and why did it happen and it's just like a really sort of uh, just like I, i get nervous even just thinking about what this teacher goes through because I've been in this situation in a different way. Uh, 
like teach you know i said something to a child and oh no they're gonna take it out of context or whatever but this is more about like just the fact that sometimes maybe you should just let something go or sometimes if you got to be prepared for what's about to happen and nobody can be prepared because you don't know what is going to happen uh the 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 performance here by uh leona banesh is so layered and internal and interesting she's just a seventh grade teacher who's pulled into a very tense like conference with other staff and other parents and other students and you just feel the tension in that room it's very claustrophobic it all takes place within one school it is like I thought of it as like this microcosm of miscommunication that's taken place in the, in the school system itself. And yet I think people can relate to this in any workplace, in any setting. If you've ever had one of these moments of doing something or saying something or calling somebody out, and then you have to deal with what happens as a result of that. But it's also just really uh, well observed about what teachers experience um, with students in different ways. So again, and another movie I will I'll talk about soon, the lack of knowing. Um, some part of me was like put off by not knowing, but I think that's also the point because it's a, a movie about like a lack of closure on certain things, and in in reality we're not going to have closure in a lot of situations, so we have to come to terms with that. Um, but yeah, just everything about this movie really got to me. And I, I really hope people seek it out. Uh, it's the teacher's lounge, which you also saw, Bill. Correct? Yeah. No, I thought it was great. Yeah. It's um. Yeah, it would be a runner-up for me, but yeah, no, it's j- j- very much worth your time. Agreed. So uh, let's move on. Uh, who goes next, Patrick or me? I forget. You're number nine, Bill. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> um. So my number nine uh, is Winter Boy. It's um, hmm. Christoph Anori. It's the um, it's kind of a, it's this story of a melodramatic teenage boy. Uh, he's kind of precocious. He's kind of uh, self centered. He's very horny, very self destructive, and uh, he has to contend with a uh, a real family tragedy. And so it kind of tests him, and he ultimately gets sent to Paris to stay with his older brother, and problems ensue. Um, it's just one of those melodramas that unfolds in a way that um, I just found quite compelling. I mean, that character is a brat at times, so it's maybe not a film everyone's going to love. I think I just like certain kind of, you know, uh, atmospheric uh, French art house dramas, you know, very sexual film. Um, the director had made a film a couple of years ago called Sorry Angel. That's one of my favorite recent hmm. European films. And so this was something I sought out because of that film. I don't know too many of his other films, but um, based on these two, I, I, I feel like I need to catch up finally on his other works. But this one, um, yeah, no, I, I, I've seen it twice and I thought it was just a really compelling story. Um, not like a, a major work of art. Like I'd probably say like it's a three and a half star movie, but just one that I really found uh, compelling. So I'll seek that out I'd for sure. Out yeah. Oh, Julia Pinoche, right? Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Julia Pinoche plays the mother in it. Okay. But it's not really a Julia Pinoche vehicle. If you're checking it out for her, it's kind of, I don't know. I mean, I probably would put it in the ballpark of things like me, Hanson love and, and uh, Olivia Yassias, like that kind of, you know, middle brow art house drama, maybe a little bit sexier than those filmmakers. But, um, 
quite good and uh, and one that I don't really hear people talk about. So that probably makes me more likely to stick up for it in sure. a list context. My number eight is Godzilla minus one by Excellent Takashi choice. Yamazaki. Um, I when I when I think about like the really great Godzilla movies for me, and I'm not I haven't necessarily seen them all, especially uh, once you get into the 80s and 90s and stuff. I'm very unfamiliar, so. This is an incomplete list. But for me, the great Godzilla movies are the original Godzilla versus Hedorah, Shin Godzilla, and this. And the thing that they all have in common is that they tie the kaiju aspect into a very specific cultural anxiety. Mm. And I think that the original film, Godzilla versus Hedorah, and Shin Godzilla all do this in a more interesting way. I think those are all thornier movies. I think those are all movies that are acknowledging true darkness and a sense of pessimism and hopelessness. Um, that is not the case with Godzilla Minus One. Godzilla Minus One is just the most entertaining, big, like, Roland Emmerich-style fucking swing-for-the-fences, broad, uh, like, Hollywood-styled, mainstream uh, uh, spectacle movie it's just the best one of those I've seen in forever. And I it's I, I really like the idea of following up Shin Godzilla with something that's sort of its polar opposite. Like Shin Godzilla in its editing style and its like relentless proceduralism is like for a kaiju movie almost experimental. And like its vision of Godzilla as this like goofy-eyed kind of shape-shifting blob is just it's it it, it, it takes a lot of bold choices. And like that's an intellectual movie, and that is a movie about uh, montage, and that is a movie about systems, and that is a movie about uh, like true dread, um, and this is a movie that is like all about sentiment and feeling and like sort of uh, family ties, and like let's all look at a collective national shame and redeem it on screen, which is like so many fucking movies. And again, it's like Hollywood. Like you can look at like all sorts of movies in the seventies that are about filmmakers being like, what if we did Vietnam, but right this time, you know, <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> like there's, there's a lot of these kinds of movies around. And this is absolutely Japan looking at the shame of World War II and being like, but this time we can do it right and we're going to feel good. And it's like a weird, it's weird to do a feel good uh, nuclear era uh, Godzilla movie, but it just fucking works. And like all the individual sequences are really tense and scary and the sense of scale it gets across when they're like out on their boat all alone and you just see Godzilla's head is terrifying like it is so effective in everything it tries to do the fact that it's less ambitious than some other Godzilla movies is like it doesn't really bother me so much um, I this was just like a great time at the theater and even at the very end when it sort of pulls its punches and it's like no you thought it was a happy ending it turns out it's a really happy ending <laughs> I was like boy it sure is Godzilla minus one thank you um, and this is also a movie that was very successful and popular in a way that I thought was really cool and so in that way I don't need to explain Godzilla minus one to you if you're listening to this podcast you probably are aware of it but uh i just enjoyed the hell out of this movie this was like popcorn flick numero uno as far as 2023 goes for me number 35 on my list i had a great time 
And that's like, I don't know if I have anything deep or profound to say about it. It's just like a cool movie. It's fun. It's just the right kind of, yeah, like skeptical or skeptical, <laughs> spectacle entertainment that, uh, yeah, I kind of just went with it. I liked the, the, the Spielberg feel I got from certain moments. I mean, one, I mean, one sequence in particular is very, very Jaws. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So, and yeah. then before that, Jurassic Park. Yes, indeed, <laughs> indeed, and I, I, I win with it. I, I mean, I'm not a Godzilla person. I don't know much about, you know, the, the, just the legacy and how many movies there have been and that insane um, Criterion box set that I, you probably have, right? No, oh, no. Okay, I thought maybe you were one of those people <laughs> that I, like is just obsessed. Uh, I, I don't know. I'd be curious to watch at least a few more Godzilla movies that are high quality. Have you seen Godzilla versus Hedora? I don't believe so. It's right up your alley. Okay. I think I think if you it is not I don't want to oversell it by bringing up Haosu, but it is closer oh. to Haosu than you might think a kaiju movie from the 70s would be. I just got a boner. Yeah, exactly. Just can't anywhere else I'd be Is it my destiny to live a life of I'm just kidding. Where I see love, she sees a friend. What will it take for her to see the man behind the tent and fight for me? I'm just kidding, and I'm enough, and I'm great at doing stuff. So hey, check me out, yeah, I'm just kidding. Oh, um, what's your number eight, Jim? It is Anatomy of a Fall. The best courtroom drama of the year, and uh, yeah, very similar to Teachers Lounge. It it, it, it was f- f- was very unnerving, and it's anchored by a terrific central performance from Sandra Huller. Um, it's about a German writer who finds herself on trial for the may- maybe the murder of her husband um, after he has uh, a fall from the attic window of the family home, and the couple's only son is uh, a witness. And blind, so we have to rely on what he's what he heard and felt, and especially during uh, his testimony late at one point. Um, so yeah, I'm like, you know, his his, his basically his mom is trying to prove her innocence at this trial, and it sets it up as this mystery as to whether or not she killed her husband, or did he kill himself? And it's it's a really interesting approach especially for someone who has no experience with what the court system is like <laughs> in, in France, because I mean, this is very similar to St. Omer in that I, when I saw that, I was just like really taken aback because everybody like kind of talks back and forth. It's less about monologues. It's less about one person talking at a time. Like the judge will interrupt you uh, and just different people, different like the defense attorney, the prosecuting attorney, all are sort of like having conversations and interacting a lot and interrupting. So, I mean, that kind of like is just very different from what I'm used to seeing in a courtroom drama period, because this is not a John Grisham story and you don't have like the big speech at the end of the movie that sort of like sums up everything we've been thinking about and feeling and what it all means. Uh, This is again, another movie about miscommunication lack of closure, uh, uncertainty about, you know, what your parents are. Um, and there's a really incredible moment where the son is basically trying to piece things together 
and it involves the family dog. And I don't want to say more than that <laughs> because it is just one of those moments that I was uh, like, cr- I was on the edge of my seat watching that sequence. But it, it you know, again, like, it's a movie that gave me anxiety. It also shows how flawed we are as a species, especially in the way we communicate to one another or have very different perspectives on the same thing. Um, there's that element. There's a use of an instrumental that is escaping my mind right now that is pre- used pre- prevalently and to the point where it will be stuck in your head when you see it. Um, it's it's a rap instrumental. I'm sure you know exactly what it is if I told you, but I can't remember off the top of my head. But it is also has one of the best child performances I've seen in a while. Um, and it's a great mystery. It's a great procedural. It's a great courtroom drama and a portrayal of like the kind of dynamics that really draw me in in something like Anatomy of a Murder, hence the title. I wonder if that's, you know, piecing it together and like finding a correlation. Uh, but I just loved everything about this movie i really did i thought it was just tremendous and kind of one of those that compelled me i put my phone down i had no distractions i was totally absorbed in it and i think most people have the same experience with it and i think it's going to get some awards attention i would think oh sorry 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 i said the wrong i said the bad word you're getting fined is what's really going to happen you're getting fined there should be like a swear jar yeah there's a swear (laughs) jar there's if you say the word oscar you say the word Word awards awards. yeah i'm sorry is it 50 cents pimp this song you're thinking of yes instrumental it's just used a lot (laughs) not what i expected from this movie no exactly that's what makes it kind of funny i haven't piped in because i have not seen this movie this is this is one of the like 30 or so titles that i wanted to see and i just i'd be very curious to get what your take is on this because there's yeah especially in a testimony late in the film that sort of makes you reframe a lot of the movie and certainly the ending gives you a lot to think about and that's what i loved about it did you like it bill i loved it yeah it's not on my list but um it's on it was like a runner-up list i mean i thought it was great that 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 actress was also great in um zone of interest yes which um tony erdman is that, she was in that too right yeah yeah, yeah tony yeah. erdman yeah, as well she, so great. yeah no she's she's great yeah. um yeah, no, I mean, I I don't know if it's a film that I would immediately be in a hurry to go back to, but I was sure. never, when I was watching it, I was totally gripped by it. I mean, it's definitely, uh, I, I, I get the hype behind it for sure. Yeah. All right. Um, is it my turn or? Uh, yeah. Um, yes. So my number eight, um, it's already come up, is a Retrograde, uh, Adrian Murray. Um I don't know. You've already talked about the the premise of it. There's not a whole lot of plot to it. I just definitely not. The, yeah, Molly Reisman, the uh, the the actress in it. I just thought created such a fascinating, irritating character. Um, and it's just I don't. It's just so funny because it's all it is is just a woman who gets a traffic ticket and just can't let it go, and it just takes over her entire life. Yeah. And it's such a it's it's such a simple premise, but it's it's all of these. Um, just perfectly realized tense kind of situations. I guess you call it cringe comedy. I mean, I guess that's what it's doing. But I did think um, of Curb Your Enthusiasm, you know, but less obviously heightened in that sense. And there's no like silly score to under underline things. Yeah, I mean, I just thought of a less stylized version of a lot of uh, angry young women, like the uh, Thor Birch character from Ghost World, or something mm. like that, where it's like just her inability to function in society seemingly yeah. like she's bad at, she's bad at her job she's 
not great with her friends. You can feel from a great roommate, one interaction sure. what her relationships in the past were like as far as romance. Um, and I wasn't sure if it was like meant to be like, um, like she's a prototype for like what will grow up into the stereotype of the Karens kind of stereotype mm. as far as like that kind of busybody and retail situations that just makes people's jobs harder. Like if it's that kind of thing, but or if it's meant to be something else that she's meant to represent, or if it is meant to be like just a character sketch and that's all it is. But I, I just thought like for what it is with this very small idea, like I just thought it was as perfect as election or something in terms of like capturing oh, yeah. that kind of difficult young woman and just finding humor in every situation that they put her in. Um, and yeah, you know, so um, yeah, you already mentioned like more in detail about, it, but that's when I really found just kind of knocked me out. I had never heard of it until, until a few weeks ago. And um, so, yeah, I'm curious what else Adrian Murray uh, will do, but yeah, I mean, um, that's one thing I just noticed in my list in general. It's like not a lot of directors that I have like an auteur kind of history with. Yeah. Um, it was point. not a year where I really connected with the latest from a lot of people that I enjoy normally. Like, um, but so I don't know. I'm kind of left to just fend for the films as, as standalone things without some larger context to put them in. But yeah, no, I thought this was great. And um, I think it's on Prime or. It's a, it's on a streaming service. It's like not an, it's it not a hard film Tubi. to track down. I think it, it might be on Tubi or one of the. I mean, maybe you're right. Uh, maybe. You might, maybe it is on Prime. Yeah, but yeah, it's easy to see it, and and it's not like a uh, especially long film. So I I think if you're looking for sleepers that are in the kind of uh, black comedy vein, I mean, I thought that was like one that yeah I haven't heard a lot of talk about it, and I thought it was uh, really really compelling stuff. So yeah, it's my number eight. I know I, w- I wanted to put Sick of Myself higher on my list, too. This one sort of just, I don't know, maybe it was just easier to d- digest. I don't know. Like, there's stuff there's stuff in Sick of Myself that obviously is very uncomfortable. And, again, another moment involving a dog that just, ugh, I wanted to throw things. But, um, yeah, this one Sick of Myself worked. is more of a, I mean, that gets into, like, really outlandish yeah. kind of territory. I mean, uh, retrograde is grounded like it's a it's a realistic version of that kind of character right exactly patrick i think you'd like this one by the way i'm i can't wait to see it yeah it sounds great my number seven is john wick four or maybe john wick chapter, chapter four. four they kind of they go back and forth on how they decide to name these things i think that every john wick movie they get better and more refined at the thing they do i don't think every john wick movie is a better work. I think the second film is still like as a complete movie. It's the best John Wick movie. I think so too. Um, I think this is better than number three though. I, I am just like, I am just absolutely on board, totally sold for this vision of action cinema. I, I sincerely think the bulletproof suit is just like the greatest thing to happen to action movies since like bullet time or something like that like (laughs) i think the way it turns gunfights into kung fu is absolutely captivating and i will absolutely sit and watch hours and hours of it as evidenced by the fact that this movie is number seven on my list and it is nothing (laughs) but hours and hours of it i don't really like the plot i don't like the tone of a lot of that shit i think a lot of that is really corny i i think number two is where i 
thought the mythology was the right balance of expanded but still mysterious and weird. Mm-hmm. And throughout uh, John Wick Chapter 2, you're sort of like... Uh, your understanding of how this world is oriented is constantly shifting all the way to the final shot. And I think by the time you get to John Wick 4, like you can't play that game anymore. And it is just sort of a over encumbered like comic book mythos sort of a thing that kind of sucks. But like, I just fucking love this action. And I think they're better at doing the action now than they have been ever before. I, again, super stoned, like, tears streaming down my face in that like overhead shot where he gets the the incendiary bullets and there's just now like trails of flame igniting everywhere as he's shooting Uh, like that shit is just like some of the happiest i've ever been in a movie theater (laughs) um it's it's like it's it's not sophisticated but like i i adore it i think the music choices are all really fucking great i think the justice i think it's justice is the song that plays during the big stairway thing that whole stairway sequence and having to go up again like i i was so delighted and thrilled and it's just it Again, it's John Wick 4. You don't need me to explain. You're either on board or not. The, I, a lot of this list is oriented in terms of what, what are the strongest, most memorable reactions I had while watching a movie, which is why it leans towards movies I saw in theaters and why it leans towards movies that are going to maybe get uh, big, uh, less nuanced reactions from me. Um, but, uh, yeah, I just, I just fucking loved it. So I don't have a lot more to say. John Wick chapter four is just my shit. I'd never need to see another John Wick movie. They there probably done. will be another one. I, I know. Wouldn't be surprised. I don't, I, I have no interest in that He's fucking come Peacock back. show. I have no interest in any of those fucking spinoffs. I don't need any of that shit. I hope they're good. I'll probably watch them out of curiosity, but like, I just think they invented a new way of shooting gunfights and they innovated on that consistently and they have reached the end point and i hope that someone now comes and comes up with a new new thing mm-hmm. um and what i don't need is like more of the universe filled in which is what i think they're actually going to do with the series yeah who cares about the mythology or the universe or the but mysterious it, we live hotel. in a and even if we live in a world where the sort of mcu uh is sinking now and like it it has sort of reached uh peak comic book and it is and that all of that shit is collapsing that is still the model for what you fucking chase if you're an executive with no imagination (laughs) and that's fully what i believe is going to happen so i'm not necessarily like here to tell you that this is a great franchise and i can't wait to see it continue but i do think across these four movies they got better and better at what they did and this one they did it fucking astoundingly well i i dug it very much and i love the warriors homage at the i just thought it was great is it all warriors? What, what's I mean, the specific just, warriors of us? You're well, thinking really, of? like they they drop the they they the same needle drop nowhere to run. I think. Oh, that's right. No, there's the yeah. DJ and all that shit. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, it's I, fine. I like it. I I've like se- it. I, I feel like I've seen that specific warriors homage enough. Sure, um, but, but yeah, no, it's it's a cool. It's just it's cool. It's, it's fucking cool. The yeah. whole movie is cool. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, I mean, I'm I'm definitely curious. I'm looking forward to them. Like, I didn't. I wasn't mad about the first one. I just. I don't know. I didn't really feel anything, but like, um, yeah, no, I, but I, I mean, I, it was, you know, it was discounted for like black Friday, but I'm like, you know, I, I, I am curious. Everyone I know loves these movies and I, I feel like I need to give them a proper look. And so I, I, at some point I will, I just, I've been so busy, but yeah, I'm excited to see it. They're just fun. 
Mm-hmm. I know. There's like again, nothing deep about it at all. And too long. <laughs> this movie. Well, is, yeah, they're definitely too long. This movie Unlike is Walter too Hill's fucking movies. Long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they always go on way too long. I but, mean, that's that's true of a lot of movies. What, what are you gonna do? This was that. If you want to talk about trends of 2023, yeah. movies got fucking long. You want yeah. you want to talk about a, an environment that maybe lends Indian cinema to cross over to Western audiences? It's the fact that all movies are already two hours and forty minutes. <laughs> Yeah, yes. maybe that's why stuff like Retrograde and Hannah Haha ha and like there are movies that don't that aren't three hours long that stood out and made me feel like a sense of peace and not like oh I gotta sit through all this yeah you know but it's it's it's, it's I mean there's a place for long I mean Killing K- Killers of the Flower Moon didn't feel long to me really I was mostly engaged by everything about it even though like you said yeah there wasn't huge surprises but uh, a big surprise for me is as I was watching this documentary, it's my favorite documentary of the year, I just kind of, I sat back and I went, I really do watch too many movies because I am very ignorant of politics. I don't know what's going on in certain countries unless I watch a movie, unless I watch a documentary, and this documentary is called Beyond Utopia. I have no idea. I mean, I knew North Korea sucks, I knew, like I knew there's a lot of horrible things going on there and but like seeing it firsthand I'm I'm watching this kind of with my jaw on the floor like realizing how awful it truly is like the political system is built entirely on centralization and dictatorship and just repressing the people to the where they collect their poop I mean, they just like completely control every aspect of their lives. I think you, I think you lost the thread a little bit there. I know, I know, but, but still, just I, I, just, I know it's like a silly thing to sort of like focus on, but it just kind of like stood out to me. It's like, why are they? What are they doing? Why are they doing half of the things they're doing to these people, these innocent people? And so, this movie really is about defectors from North Korea, mainly focusing on. Uh, a few families, one in particular, just trying to desperately to get out of this dictatorship, risking life and limb just so they can get to safety, just so they can have a normal life, just so their lives aren't completely controlled. And it is like a thriller. It really gets intense because y- you really don't know if they're going to make it. So you're watching this. It is a documentary, but you're watching this as a thriller, as a genre movie at times, because you're watching them go through certain uh like scenarios of uh, are they going to get caught? Are they going to get caught? Are they going to get killed? I mean, other people have been caught. Other people have been imprisoned and killed because they tried to escape. So there is a central figure, uh, a character, I believe he's a minister and I can't remember his name, but he sort of helps a lot of different people get to South Korea and the way they do it is not just simple as crossing a border. They have to go through different countries in order to get to South Korea because obviously I can't just walk across the border from North Korea to South Korea because North Korea controls that and has landmines all over the place. A little also- thing called the DMZ is a mm, bit of a pickle. Yeah, a lot <laughs> of things. Uh, I mean, like, I don't know. I mean, I know we're living in a shit show of a world lately. Um, and it, it seems like we are on the verge of World War Three every time you know, I do click on the news and see what's going on, but this this kind of just opened my eyes, but also felt like I was watching um, like a thriller because 
I don't know if these people are going to make it. And I don't, I've, I'm so invested in whether they make it. I mean, there's an elderly grandmother and there's a little child and watching them try to, you know, just get on a boat and not get caught and try to be as quiet as they possibly can. So they don't die is just, Oh, it's such a heart rending movie to watch. And yet I was just like, so invested and so amazed at their bravery to even try this because not a lot of people even have the courage to even try. And this, this particular minister that helps them is just like, that's what I think of a superhero, like a real life superhero is risking so their lives so many times for so many people. Uh, so yeah. And just the level of systemic abuse going on in that country in so many ways is really hard to, to, to watch. And the way they are, um, they certainly don't like us Americans to say the least when you learn about what they're teaching in schools over there about the American people is, is like, again, I was shocked watching this. Um, but what's great about it is that it focuses on the people, but, but you're also getting an education, uh, on the geopolitics and all these things going on sociologically. And it makes it really like a, a great commentary on, the macro level situation while also focusing on the emotional impact of the micro level of human beings just trying to survive. I'm not sure if I can get sit through this movie anytime soon, but it left me deeply shaken. And um, yeah, I just, again, I don't, I don't really keep up with politics and know what's going on most of the time. So when I see something like this, I am just beside myself and this movie worked on so many levels. It's fantastic. It's called Beyond Utopia. It's a great documentary. Oh, I need water. Okay. number seven okay um so for mine i have you can live forever uh directed by mark uh, slutsky and sarah watts and this is um kind of a sweet low-key romantic drama indie film set in i think it's set in 1990s canada between a girl uh sent to live with her uh jehovah's witness uh relatives uh and, and, a, and a girl that she meets at one of those uh services and uh i just i mean you can probably kind of guess where it's going i mean it's it's you know it's a clash of of values with the family and uh, homophobia but not just homophobia but just like the rejection of those that are not of their faith um so it's you know it's a melodrama kind of scenario but i just thought it was so uh just compellingly realized i just thought the characters were well drawn i thought um I, I thought it had real heat, you know, to the romance that uh, was kind of surprising. I mean, I I wouldn't say like again, it's like not a film that I can make great claims for as a, you know, formally uh, radical film. I just found it a, just a story that kind of stuck with me, you know, as one of the sleepers of the year. So, um, yeah, that's my number seven. And you'll be hearing about that one again later. That was my number thirty-six. I found it 
very tasteful. I found its sensitivity. It's very easy to look at that religion and to like talk about why it is like so restrictive and and I thought the sensitivity with which it approached like why people actually have faith in the first a lot of movies about faith are either some evangelical bullshit or were they like footloose <laughs> or no I, I mean like God's not dead or something like that yeah. uh, they're either yeah. that or they're about how all religious people are stupid and it's like isn't it a shame there's so many stupid people yeah, like they're just automatons. And, and, yeah. and like, yeah. I understand yeah. if right. you live in America, you make a movie that expressing frustration towards the religious right. Like, you you might flatten them out to be, like, easy villains or whatever. But, like, generally speaking, religious people, are, are they're not any more or less stupid than anyone else. And I think the, uh, the clarity with which uh, you can live forever examines like why people believe these things and what it means for them in their life was was very impressive it is also to me like it's another queer coming out coming of age thing and i just that was like oh, i've seen this like a couple dozen times oh i completely understand that oh yeah, yeah so yeah, have yeah, i yeah. i mean yeah we it's not know. like again yeah it's not a story i haven't i i knew where it was going i mean i right. didn't quite see the ending but yeah i just i just liked it yeah lots of these movies i feel like i've seen before but they're done well you want to know a movie i had never seen before uh oh, what is it? My number six, Eric LaRue, directed by Michael oh, Shannon. Oh yeah, the movie that's not out. It's yeah. <laughs> it played at the Chicago International Film Festival. It does not have a distributor right now. Don't know when you're gonna get to see it. However, if you are so interested in Eric LaRue that you want to know every gritty detail, we did an episode on 96 Six Greers, Greers, which is a podcast where we look at every feature film starring Judy Greer in the cast. Uh, Judy Greer is the female lead of Eric LaRue. We go into great detail there. Uh, I would I would urge you to read that. We had a very interesting conversation. We didn't agree on a lot of things, so we, we really like dove into it. Um, this is an example of a very tonally challenging movie that is on my list. This the closest movie that I have like this uh, from this year would be something like May December. Um, it is a movie about a school shooting and the fallout of a school shooting, but it is it is less we need to talk about Kevin. And it is more, um, I'm trying to think, like, I, again, if you went, went back and watched, listened to the episode on Eric LaRue that we recorded right after we saw it, I'd probably have the examples come right to mind. But, like, the thing it is, number one, this is based on a play that was written in the 90s. And so this hmm. is not actually about America's gun culture in 2023, nor is it about sort of the increasing prevalence of mass shootings. This is, in fact, about a kid who gets bullied and then brings a gun to school and targets two people who bullied him and kills him. And it is about his mother who is trying to figure out a way to still exist in this community. And it's about his father who has sort of retreated into uh, his faith. You want to talk about movies that uh, are maybe not as generous <laughs> towards the religious right. This is a very angry movie about religion and its place in America and its sort of way that people use it as this sort of like salve uh, and, and like it, like religion is the thing that gives us permission to turn our brains off and not think about how horrible everything is. And that's actually what this movie is about. It's not about... Uh, gun culture or mass shootings as much as it is about when you are looking at something that is irresolvable and cannot be fixed 
or something that could be fixed, but you just know will not be fixed. For example, gun control in America will not be fixed. Global warming will not be fixed. There's all these things that you look at and you go, it seems like there is an answer, but the people who are in charge of coming up with solutions don't like that answer. So I guess nothing will happen and we just have to live with the existential dread that comes with like the the results of that. Um, this is a movie about the delusions and uh, the denials that people retreat into in order to deal with irresolvable horror of modern life. And it is extremely funny. It's extremely bleak. Uh, it's got a weird style to it. Michael Shannon, first time director. I don't want to call him like, oh, yeah, he's a visionary like he is. There's there's some cliches he dips into. He dips into some indie movie cliches, but like it does have a style. I thought he was going to be the kind of director who was like, oh, yeah, he mostly does handheld and because he wants to give his actors freedom to move around. And like I thought it was going to be sort of stylish and styleless and uh, focus on performance. But it, in fact, has a very specific comedic point of view. Um and uh, Judy Greer's incredible in it. Alexander Skarsgård's incredible in it. Uh, I love Tracy Letts in it. There's all these really great performances um, throughout. It's, it is a very dark and thorny and weird movie. And reading the letterbox reviews from other people who were at the same screening I was, a lot of people had the gym reaction, which is like, I don't what? think people should be laughing at this. I saw this yeah. in the theater and everyone was laughing. And that's terrible. And like... I think this is going to be a it's a I think it's a movie that a lot of people just won't like and they'll have valid reasons for not liking it. But I also think a lot of movies will go into it with preconceptions about what the material is and how one should approach it. And I think it's a movie about something different than you might think. And I think the way it approaches it is sensible. And I love the hell out of it. I found it very challenging and interesting. It's amateurish in certain ways, but all the performances are really good and it was just like again when you go through so many movies and it feels like they exist in an alternate reality where everything is fine actually when you see a movie that is specifically about how everything is fucked and nothing is ever going to fix it and now what like there's something very comforting and validating about that in fact and so i actually found this uh movie to be um kind of a, a comfort it, it is as uh, dark as it gets and it sounds like it's a surprise like just in terms of the tonal balance that it manages i was surprised i was definitely expecting something closer to i don't know we need to talk about kevin or sure. Car- or carnage or there's another movie about mass there was another movie called mass i want to say that was Basically, four people in a room. I think with- I think that is based off the play that I was thinking of. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was going to be a lot more straightforward than it actually is. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, hey, Michael Shan's my favorite actor. I I'm all for it. I hope it comes out. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's going to come out. In I mean, some yeah, eventually. Format. Yes, I know. I know. I just hope it's this year. Yeah, it'd be nice to see it. I wish I had gone to that screen because I'd planned on maybe going. But it was a very fun Q and A afterwards as well. Oh, I'm sure. But at any rate, uh, check out the episode of Ninety Six Greers on Eric Larue to get all the fucking dirt. We don't spoil the ending, but we do talk about it in detail. Allison Pill. Allison Pill. Oh, I like Allison Pill. She's so fucking funny in Eric Larue. I, uh, I want to see more Allison Pill in the world. Maybe the secret MVP of Eric Larue is Allison Pill. Aww. So anyway, that was my number. She might be the MVP of uh, Scott Pilgrim too. Really. Is that my number six or is that my number seven? That was my number six. Number six. What's your number six, Jim? Past lives. 
Hey. Have you heard of it? I have. It's good. It's it a, is. It's a delicate and uh, very sourful. You know, sourful? Sour? It sounded like I said sourful. Like the word sour. Well, good thing you're going to be thoroughly editing this and you can just cut yeah, that I can out. Yeah, I can cut out. I do like past lives. I thought it was uh, beautiful. Um, a real assured debut for Celine's song. And it premiered to like just rapturous applause that my expectation, you know, it was one of those Sundance indie darlings that I had high expectations and they were met. Um, just tells a simple story. Again, a lot of these movies are just simple stories to where there isn't a lot of plot. It's really a, a lot about character and interaction and just we grow with them as they change and we learn about just like what, what it means to let go again. It's another one of those movies that I feel like thematically just resonates very strongly with me at this point in my life because I know what it's like to be like thinking about, Hmm, that person, I wonder, and then realizing, Oh, wait a minute. No, (laughs) I don't think that would have been good. I don't know if I, we, if we reunited, I don't think we would have the same, feelings that we had all those years ago when we were skyping or whatever you know i think in a way it is like a before sunset kind of idea um of like well should we connect because or should we reconnect after having such a strong connection in the past i don't know let's see where it goes and then when they interact together towards the end we i, I feel like i'm right on this the same level with them the same wave, wavelength as these characters maybe because i've felt something similar that that I feel like this is a very relatable movie, which is probably why it's resonating with so many people who see it. Um, And just again, three great central performances, all different, all distinctive and just well-observed. Not every connection that we have in life is meant to be lifelong or even romantic. I think we should just be grateful for any connection that we have in this life. And, you know, it doesn't have to become something profound. It doesn't have to become something that defines us. It just, you know, it, it, it's good to realize that what we have in this moment is is enough. And I think that um, it's just one of those great sort of, you know, simple love stories that um, I think it's going to be like like one of those movies. I feel like it's going gonna, it's gonna to be timeless. I think people will be talking about it years from now and feeling very similarly about it. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot of, I mean, it's a a lot of wordy monologues, a lot of talking, a lot of, uh, conversations here, but they're all the kind of conversations that I find interesting and wonderful. And, um, it is great. It is a movie that I think, um, yeah, like I said, will be remembered for years to come and that is past lives. I have a feeling it's going to win awards. Oh, sorry. Fuck you. Damn it. I did it again. Yeah, what did you what did you think about past lives? Yeah, I liked think? it. I liked it. I mean, I I it's not a film that I loved as much as its biggest fans, but I definitely uh, was engaged when I saw it in the theater. I I, I found it moving, and uh, yeah, yeah, no, I liked it. Um, it's nice and simple and sweet, you know. Yeah, no, I mean, I, it's funny to me just because I live in the sticks in like Delaware, and it's like it, it felt like fairly art house to play in a multiplex in my town. I, mm. I mean, that's one thing I thought, but uh, in a, in a good way, like I was like, Oh, yeah. that's, we're making progress here in this, in this town. But I'd say um, that's yeah, another no. thing about 2023 was, you know, non-English language films sort of uh, uh, made some headway with American audiences in a way that was uh, heartening. 
Yeah, it's an upside of the uh, writer strike, I guess. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I, w- I was surprised that they played the um, El Modovar or Almodovar film in uh, like. Yeah, the multiplex. They played his short film. I think they combined it maybe. Oh, it's because it has American movie stars. It yeah, that makes hurt. sense. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But a program of two shorts is still quite yeah, unusual. That for is. When, yeah, that's true. When uh, Taylor Swift era's tour is playing next door. Right. I know. That I is that's true. Really interesting. Yeah, no, you, you got a point there. Um, My number six. So I didn't put. Uh, fallen leaves on my list, although I know Patrick is a big fan of it. But like, I, I, uh, I was thinking, I was thinking while watching that, and and my number six is Perfect Days from Ben Benders. The um, I was thinking about how um, they both seem to evoke a kind of art house film I associate maybe with the eighties, and I think of Jarmish falling yeah. into this too. Yeah. And I was thinking about like a kind of art film that's come out in recent years that seems to occupy like, remember when they made films like this and like, I think of Philip, Philippe Garrel doing this. And I think of uh, Powell Pavlovsky, the guy that made Ida and Cold War, like these kind of like self-conscious throwbacks to a kind of art house film that you just don't really see a whole lot now. Um, and I thought Perfect Days kind of does that. Like it feels like Aki Karasmaki doing you know, the kind of like low-key, bittersweet, atmospheric romance kind of film. I, I liked it a lot, but I didn't put it on my list. But um, but Perfect Days feels kind of like that to me in, it, at first. It, and it's, it's, you know, this low-key thing about like a guy that cleans toilets for a living in Tokyo. And it in, it first it comes off kind of like a Japanese take on Patterson, the Jim Jarmusch film. Because yeah, it's like that's what I thought. a film about... Uh, you know, this guy that, in, you know, enjoys his life, he does kind of like this blue collar work, but then he's, he's friends with his community. And it feels like a, um, like a recycling at first of, uh, you know, pleasant tropes from earlier Vim Bender's movies. Like he's the loner, he's driving around, he's listening to oldies on a tape deck. He's listening to Kinks and Patty Smith and Otis Redding. Um, you know, and it, so it feels kind of like, oh, it's another one of these Vin Bender's characters. But by the end, it's really pointing out the disconnect from reality that is presented in, in, in living this way. And it becomes um, maybe a little bit more bittersweet than I was expecting. I feel like it's kind of critiquing that kind of like way of living um, in a way that I was kind of surprised by. It felt like, uh, I don't know, it made me think about cinema as an art that feels like it feels communal, but it often is isolating, you know, like it can trap us in a time in our past that maybe we resist moving forward from. So mm-hmm. I think about this film as kind of like this, um, you know, late period Vim Benders where it's like taking the things that were so joyful in the 70s uh, and early 80s. And it's like, they're still great and pleasurable, but like they're... Um, you can't live this way. It's crazy to live this way. Um, it's, 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 uh, like you're forcing yourself to smile, you know, to live that, those perfect days. Um, so I thought it was kind of touching in that way. And it just, um, kind of surprised me that it, it kind of went deeper than, I mean, I enjoyed it on a surface level for the first half, but I think that it just kind of framed it in a way that I was not expecting and in a way that I can't imagine, uh, like Jarmish doing that with with something similar. Like I think he just 
I love Jarmish's stuff, but it's like he's just happy to be in the in those surface pleasures. But I think that it's interesting that his hero would take this same kind of material and then flip it in a little way. But uh, yeah, no, nice surprise. And Vin Vendors is somebody that I ch- check in and out with. I mean, I love Kings of the Road and Alice in the Cities and, you know, the, the 80s films like Wings of Desire and Paris, Texas, American Friend. But like he makes so many films that I just don't like keep up with. And he even had a film after this, a 3D film that I did not see. So yeah, that's definitely actually opening at the music box soon. Yeah. So he's somebody that I take for granted. He's just someone that's always cranking him out in and out of fashion. Yeah. This was one I heard was like a return to form. I don't know what that always means. Cause I like some of the ones that, you know, like, was it don't come a knocking or whatever? Like, I mean, I like ones that people think, think are like, so 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 um but Do this you one, like the million dollar hotel i've never seen million dollar oh, okay. hotel that's the i've one never that seen I that like. one i've never yeah. even seen um yeah there's a lot of his i haven't seen but mm. um but yeah no this one was a nice surprise and um so yeah I, it's very pleasant for the most six. part um yeah. another another <sighs> i feel like he's mostly just content and it's another celebration of that in a way but i mean it's clear that he has something from his past right i mean he's also drinking and well it's you know what it's like it's it's and and this is like a connection no one would ever you know want to make but it it reminded me of say anything in that say anything's character the john cusack character seems to be um real kind of optimistic and in love with his life but Mm. um I know that when John Cusack talked about it, like he thought that the only way that that would make any sense to play that character at that point in his life was to like, he's choosing optimism in a fucked up world. Like it's like, he's, yeah, he, 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 he's, he's aware of everything that's bad around him, but he's, he's forcing optimism as a radical act. And I mean, I don't know if that comes across and say anything, but I know that's what the actor tells himself to, to take another romantic comedy when he's 29 or whatever. (laughs) But like, um, yeah, perfect days. I felt like that's kind of what it was doing. That like at first you're thinking, oh, he's just got it made. Like he's like it's kind of like Hannah, haha. Like it's yeah, just like that's what I low ambitions, but perfect life because you, you don't need more than that. That's good. Uh, my number five is Past Lives. Oh, good. Um, unfortunately, this is a movie I saw a long time ago. Yes, and it is. A, I didn't get to rewatch it too, and that's why I couldn't come. With, it's like, a very specifics. intimate movie, and it's it it was. There's nothing spectacular about it, so I don't I don't have a lot of specifics i do think the the key thing that i'm really into with paz lives is the way that Celine's song builds the story out of little details and like allows you to intuit mm-hmm. things about the characters and what their life is like and what their what is not in their life and what compromises they have made um without anyone ever a- outright stating you know how they feel about any given thing i think as you know, cinema is full of people taking swings at brief encounter, and I think this is just sort of yeah, one yeah. of the more nimble ones. And uh, I, I'm just I was very impressed by Past Lives, and I I don't have a lot more to say than that. Um, but uh, yeah, no, it's great. So that was my number five. My number five is Asteroid City. Freight train, freight train, going so fast. Freight train, freight train, going so fast I don't know what train he's on Won't you tell me where he's gone? Mm-hmm. 
favorite Wes Anderson films since maybe Moonrise Kingdom. That's not a movie. (laughs) (laughs) See, this is what happens when you podcast for this long. You just forget how to say titles. This, to me, felt like a surprise to see him almost go into Charlie Kaufman territory with his usual Russian doll approach to narrative. Uh, And a lot of people... Yeah, I I agree. The first time I watched this, I was a little confused and found it jarring to go into like the backstage and Edward Norton as the writer and all this stuff. And he like, yeah, Brian Cranston narrating it. And it's just kind of like the story process itself is coming into the film. Oh, my God. How are we going to handle all this? And there's so many things going on. But uh, as it went along and especially on a second viewing, I just kind of like went, I, I really do love this movie. Even if it's not really ultimately trying to say a whole lot outside of just tell the story you want to tell <laughs> and don't worry if other people aren't getting it. Don't worry if maybe you're not even getting it. I think that was like kind of what Adrian Brody is trying to say to Jason Schwartzman as, as the actor in that moment. And maybe that's what Wes Anderson was telling himself as he was writing it in a way. Um, I like the, I like, I love the production design and the setting. I thought the performances were all around great. Uh, I, I, I was surprisingly moved by um, a speech given by someone I didn't even realize was in this movie that makes a cameo practically at one point. Uh, and I just, I don't know how he combine how he continues to combine uh, the sense of childlike wonder and playfulness with melancholy. I know people are like kind of, again, rolling their eyes at like, oh, it's a Wes Anderson movie. He's going to be whimsical. Oh, this is going to happen. He's going to have an ensemble cast. And I, I eat it up. I think he's one of my favorite uh, writer-directors, and I thought he really went into an interesting territory this time by sort of exploring his own artistic process within the film itself. Um, and I just liked the idea of him doing an alien invasion throughout all of it. Um, and the alien invasion kind of being about like inventory maintenance with, with the asteroid and the, and the alien deciding to pick it up and then just return it. I don't know. There's just something about the choices he made throughout this movie. Uh, like just the little, like hoedown song at one point. And, you know, Matt Dillon's line of, um, everything is connected, but nothing is working. I don't know. Uh, there's just like little things throughout this movie, I don't know if I could like sum it up in a way that makes sense or like this is precisely what he's trying to say or this is the ultimate thesis. I just found it in, in thoroughly entertaining. Um, and yeah, I, I like I like what Wes Anderson does. I know people are sick of it. I'm not. I, I liked his role doll shorts. Uh, I saw all of them but one. And uh, I just love Asteroid City. What can I say? I, it's just that's why it's on my list. I liked it. What this is my number f- <laughs> uh, 42. Okay. I, I did I did like it. Um I would say across his entire career, uh Wes Anderson um sort of leans towards emotional incoherence for me. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. whether and is all of his movies look great and I always enjoy looking at them. Um but generally speaking, how much I enjoy his movies, there's like there's Rushmore and Moonrise Kingdom and those are perfect. And then everything else I just find emotionally incoherent and the question is, but is it funny? And if the answer is yes, it is funny, then There's okay, we'll funny. proceed. Yeah. And so like Grand Budapest Hotel, emotionally incoherent, extremely funny. Yeah. Um, French Dispatch, emotionally incoherent, quite funny. Um, Asteroid City, 
not funny to me at all. Mm-hmm. And I I found the visuals of this more appealing than French Dispatch or even uh, Grand Budapest Hotel. Like I think this is probably of his little doll houses. This is the best theme he's had in a bit. Yeah. Um. But I just like. It didn't make me laugh, and therefore everything else falls apart for me. Um, and other than just like the most base level surface pleasure for me, mm-hmm. yeah. I laughed. Did you laugh at the alien? No. Oh, it just again not okay. Just didn't was not on the wavelength of this okay. movie. It happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is not one of those like I would a- avidly defend because I get it. I understand why people don't love it. Mm-hmm. How about you, Bill? What do you think? Uh, well, I'll talk about it later. Oh, oh, oh okay. Oh, 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 okay. Bill, what is your number five? Thank you. Uh, my number five is Sam Now, uh, Reed Harkness. Oh, excellent. Um, I'm so glad to see it this high. Yeah, no, I really like this one. Um, I think I went into it with no... I think when it started, I thought it was going to be like a true crime film. Yeah, I didn't. I, I didn't know too. anything about the plot, but it's about a woman's disappearance and how it affects a family. Initially, I, th- I was afraid it was going to be a little bit too cute because it's about brothers who make all these little movies from childhood up until you know adolescence and so it's got lots of little kids running around with guns and you know like the it's 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 meant to be cute and it is kind of cute but it's like oh okay this could be a little bit overkill but um it it, it, mo- it moves in places i was not expecting i don't want to give it away any of the twists in it but i thought it was um I just found all these people really interesting, especially the woman at the center of the mystery. Yeah. Um, I just haven't seen very many fictional characters like this person. And, you know, what, how the film kind of treats her, I thought was kind of what elevated the entire thing for me. And I, it felt like even uh, more touching the second time I watched it. Um, I don't want to, it's one of those ways I really want to spoil because it, it, it does have an element of surprise to it that I don't want to ruin any of the twists, but it's, it's, I, I wasn't expecting to love it going into it by the end. I really was quite taken by it. So, um, I think you've already kind of brought this one up, but yeah, I, I, I'll second your endorsement of Sam. Now it's very good. Yeah, movie. I hope people seek this out. It's, it's really special. My number four is Happer's Comet. Um, hmm. I want to talk about one of the most surreal experiences I've ever had watching a movie. Which is, uh, (laughs) I want to say 2015, 2016 or whatever, I made a short film called Number 12 Looks Just Like You. And while we were shooting that, I came up with, we we were trying to get shots of, there's a lot of rabbits around the north side of Chicago just hopping around late at night. And we were trying to get, like, just get wildlife footage of of these urban rabbits. And as we were doing that, I came up with a different script that I ended up writing and I never tried to make. And it was called Night Rabbits. And it was, uh, it had a brief setup that was more cliche than what Happer's Comet does. And then it sort of dipped in and out of all these different people's apartments. And it's these people who are up late at night and all of their different lives that are going on during this time. And they're sort of all lonely and, you know, cloistered or whatever. And then another thing happens and then it's, and it has sort of a cliche outro or whatever. And I was like looking at the script I wrote and I was saying, you know, this is so nonverbal. This is so visual. I don't think I am capable of making a movie like this. Like, I feel like getting the tone of what I'm trying to do here would be extremely difficult. Getting the lighting right. Like, I'm just, I'm just too much of an amateur to actually do this. So I just like left it in my, you know, Google Docs, whatever, and didn't think about it until I saw Happer's comment. And to see something that you 
wrote uh or at least something not something that you wrote because this is not my script but like when you see something that you were hoping to achieve but felt you couldn't uh achieved much better than you ever could um it was it was like oh my god i get all the payoff without any of the work i was fucking (laughs) thrilled Uh. i was so fucking happy watching this movie because it was like the thing i actually want the reason i wanted to make night rabbits to begin with was i wanted the moment of sitting down and seeing the finished thing and seeing a movie that is like a movie i would like to see but doesn't quite exist in that way and happer's comet is like guess what we're gonna do that and we're gonna do it one better um bill ackerman uh bill ackerman i used your full fucking christian (laughs) name bill ackerman get in here right now um (laughs) bill already talked about this uh earlier in the episode about it feeling like sort of like the opening scenes of the fog and the lighting is very expressive in that sort of dean cundy kind of a way um, the movie I thought about was my favorite Deborah Stratman movie, In Order Not to Be Here. Oh, um, that's so good. Which is this really great uh, avant-garde, or exper- maybe not avant-garde is the right word, maybe just experimental, um, sort of documentary um, about uh, the suburbs and about the surveillance state and about the illusion of safety. Oppressiveness of the environment is overwhelming. Um, that was mostly the movie I was thinking about, but the thing about Happer's Comet that's really remarkable is it is not a bleak movie. It is not a pessimistic movie. I find it, in fact, to be a very optimistic movie. Um, it was shot during COVID lockdown, and it feels like a... If it To me, it is the best cinematic reaction to COVID that I have seen that I can think of. I might I might be missing something, but like... It is about the feeling of being trapped inside and the release of leaving, specifically leaving your home at a time of night when the social construct says, no, no, stay inside. It's fucking three in the morning. What are you doing? And like there, the sense of liberation, the sense of jailbreak that you get from these characters who are leaving their homes after seeing so many different scenes of people's like stuck in their homes and their private lives and what they are like when no one else is around. Um, it felt like this very optimistic arc to the movie that is like we are in a moment right now and we will get out of it and there is a sense of what does out of it mean out of it doesn't mean a return to normal there is no going back to the pre-covid world but like maybe out of it means something new maybe there can be a sense of rebirth maybe maybe we can come out of this better than before Mm. there is this very it's it's a non-narrative film happers comet so like these are all the vibes I get more than like this is uh, textually what the movie's about, but it feels like this very um, warm, empathetic uh, presentation of like a uh, possible rebirth in the best possible way. And so like the first you know 30 minutes or so of this hour long movie, I was just going like, holy shit, someone made Night Rabbits, except they made it good. (laughs) And that was very (laughs) exciting for me. And then where it goes was like, holy shit, someone made a COVID movie that I've been wanting to see as well. And they made it fucking great. Um, It's on Mubi right now. If you have not seen Happer's Comet, uh, it's definitely worth checking out. It's absolutely gorgeous looking like. It's it's one of those things, uh, Bill. You you were on the Chiming Liang episode of Directors Club with me, yes. And we talked about uh, what time is it there, and the fact that most of the 
scenes play out in like a single shot and the camera doesn't move and what the advantage that chiming liang had during that is like he could actually light the shit out of every single setup because there are so relatively few setups uh in a day um when he's doing these long takes and everything and that's kind of what happers comet feels like it's like it's fucking lockdown. We got nothing but time. Let's really light the shit out of this. And uh-huh. and the the lighting is so beautiful and expressive and it's colorful, but like it's this it's slightly um above reality. It's like it's it's like slightly uh heightened um in a way that you look at it and you still recognize as like this is what a home looks like at night, but it's just this like very gorgeous, fascinating, uh magical version of it. I, I fucking love Happer's Comet, and I appreciate, Bill, you sent me a list of movies. You were I was like, what am I missing? What should I check out? And you sent me a long list of movies. Not all that I could see, but this one I could, and mm-hmm. I just absolutely fell in love with it. Oh, that makes you so happy, and I, I was, you totally surprised me when you said that, cause like, yeah, you didn't comment when I had said it on my list, so yeah, that makes me really happy. I thought you would like it. Um, and uh, it's it's coming out on Blu-ray through Factory Twenty Five, one of the um, oh yeah. uh, partner labels of Vinegar Syndrome. So um, if you have any listeners that are oh yeah. you know doing their shopping on the Vinegar Syndrome site, you can I guess get the yes, fancy slipcover edition if you see it you know streaming and want to own it. But uh, yeah, which is one I would like to get at some point myself. But oh yeah, no, that, I think and Jim, you I think this will definitely be something that you would enjoy. Ah, um, ah. You, you talked about the catharsis of like seeing a short movie. The like Happer's Comet is like this is a complete fucking statement. I want to end this episode. No you guys can leave time. so I can watch this. Now. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, this just sounds wonderful. That it's- was my number. Number four is Poor Things, the latest from Yorgos Lanthimos, a very weird, whimsical movie that happens to be very horny, very funny. Um, and I know and I, I, I'm hearing a lot of like ick reactions to this movie now. Like, so essentially she's got a baby's brain in her and she's going around being sexual. Like people are really like, harping on just that aspect of it and i kind of go i i i didn't feel that way because it's just like a a crazy fantastical frankenstein like story uh to where i wasn't like thinking in those terms of it being like 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 this is how you would react in reality with if this really happened but this is just such a weird fantastical world that's like very terry gilliam or like you mentioned bill to start like you know it starts off really heightened with a tim burton kind of energy that i could see being off-putting and i it sort of made me wonder like what kind of movie are we in for here if this is the tone it's gonna maintain throughout the entire film but it does sort of settle down and it becomes something else once mark ruffalo shows up and i i was like 
laughing fairly consistently every time Mark Ruffalo uh, spoke. <laughs> like I thought his over the top Lothario character reminded me like at times of like a cross between Kevin Klein and Gene Wilder. And I, I thought like, I mean, I, m- I might be elevating that performance more than uh, m- most people would credit, be- you know, like, I just think that I think he's hilarious in this movie. That's all it came down to. Like a lot of this movie was just simply entertaining and I didn't really think about it on a deep level where afterwards it's like, well, this, this probably means this, this is that, you know, obviously it's about, you know, sexual discovery and autonomy and self-actualization and trying to move forward, even though like certain circumstances or certain people are going to hinder your abilities to evolve as a person. Um, and certainly like I, I thought this movie was going to end at a certain point and then suddenly Christopher Abbott shows up and there's like a whole other aspect to the movie. So I can see this being like thought of as maybe a little, it goes on a little too long, but I didn't feel that way because I was so into Emma Stone's performance into just about every person in this movie. It's like another Alice down the rabbit hole kind of a story where she meets all these kind of strange characters along the way. Many want to take advantage of her. Uh, and she's just trying to grow and develop as a human being, whatever that's going to be, however messy and flawed it is. Uh, and by the end, I just thought it was, I just had a good time and it felt like a lot of the movies around this time of year were just making me sad, depressed and miserable. And then this comes along and I'm like, Oh, this is nice. I like, I really had a good time with this movie and it's almost like the feature length, like offshoot of the weird Barbie character that Kate McKinnon plays, you know, it's kind of like takes that and rolls with it for two and a half hours. And I never was restless with this movie. Um, I just enjoyed the hell out of it. Poor things. It's, it's weird. It's wonderful. It's Lanthimos. This is my number 27. I really enjoyed this movie. I kind of had a similar thing with Bill where like the first 10, 15 minutes or so. I yeah, was, yeah, yeah, I can see I that. was sort of sinking in my seat being like, oh boy. He loves he, his fisheye lens. Let's see it all. He I really, I, I mean, I like the fisheye lens. I like the style. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I eventually got on its wavelength and I did find it quite funny. And I did think Emma Stone in particular was really good. I think my opposition to this movie in principle is like, I think emotional catharsis is a bad look for Yorgos Lanthimos. It, it feels uneasy. This feels like the movie you make when you're tired of your movies only making $20 million at the box office. And you go, all right, I will take an additional step. It seems like you were a little bit like I took one step towards you folks already with the favorite. And it seems like you are responding to that. I am now going to water down my thing slightly more. And it's like, and it's like to me, it's like if it doesn't leave you feeling fucking disgusting at the end, is it really a Yorgos Lanthimos movie? Um, sure. <laughs> um, so that that would be my opposition to it. It's also just like I think it's a little too long and repetitive, yeah, yeah, especially yeah. during the whole sex worker sequence. I think like I I think there are real diminishing returns on that. Um, but in general, I a very winning movie that I I enjoyed the hell out of. Oh yeah, yeah. Um. So my number four is, um, it's already come up twice now, is, is Nobody's Hero, uh, Alain uh, Um I, I, I don't have a, a whole lot more to add. I just, I think it was something where I just thought the way it unfolded, like I just never predicted where it was going. And I thought like as a, as a, as a social satire and, and how it's dealing with it, terrorism and Islamophobia and um, like that, that kind of like, I mean, it, I thought of Fassbender in the way that, like, he's got this fixation on this 
on this older uh, sex worker. Like I thought mm-hmm. of Ali Fierce's soul in a way. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, I thought of like uh. some, like the way that like just different elements that seem like they shouldn't work as like, they feel like writerly conceits, but like it's played all so much. It felt like, like if Fassbender did a rewrite on a Preston Sturges farce, like it felt like it, it, like it had like all the elements of screwball comedy, but just done in a way that felt like more political and, and more queer and more provocative than, than like a, uh, than a Hollywood studio comedy of that period. But like that's what the same pleasure, um, like it didn't feel like didactic or, yeah. mm-hmm. um, you know, like it, it, it just felt like, like a really well-written, well-crafted film that like, I just, it just felt satisfying on every level. Uh, and it was such a nice surprise. I mean, I liked, I think staying vertical is probably a better film, but I, I, I this was like at the time that I said it was like I really needed a film this good. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, sure. So I'm, I'm probably putting a little higher, like than I maybe, but I, I, I feel like this is one of those films that like is so good and so much better than a lot of things I keep hearing about that I feel like well, everyone should at least have this on their radar or something to check out, especially if you only know what is Stranger by the Lake is still like what he's best known for and like that I felt like and I felt like that's kind of like just more because of the the envelope pushing sexuality of it where I I feel like he got a lot more I mean I like that movie but it's like I feel like it got a lot more interesting after that as far as his writing I agree yeah I Preston Sturges is not a touchstone I would have thought of but it is in fact like there's a specific tenor of like just loopiness to what happens at any given moment that uh that i do think yeah that's that uh 40 screwball feeling uh (laughs) really applies agreed yeah like palm beach story but like with like (laughs) a a dose of fassbender it's kind of like what i thought and i'm like oh well it's just like like and all the characters are interesting like and it's not just yeah but like but it was the second film i saw that week dealing with terrorism in france as well and i can't remember what the other one was off the top of my head it might have been something slightly older but I, I always take for granted like that's that's like a real hotbed of racial tension yeah. and um to tackle it this way i thought was i don't know there's another film that is on my list that deals with like um maybe i don't know about touchy political issues but like that but handles it like like with a light touch as comedy but like in, in a way that i think you know isn't like edge lordish or um provocative for its own sake like it was asking questions but like but it knowing that it's like it's it's liberals tweaking other liberals like it's not like pitched to the to the uh q kind of audience or whatever right but mm. uh um yeah i thought this was yeah like one of the nicest surprises of of you know of my watching in 2023 so yeah I, i'm glad that i found out that he had a new movie i was really excited yeah found that out yeah like, <gasps> yes we need more of his work. <laughs> Agreed. Mm-hmm. My number three is May, December. Oh, wow. Um, a crucial point is I knew zero about this movie. I thought it was going to be a slightly kinkier, slightly more De Palma-y take on Adam Agoyan's Chloe, where the May, December <laughs> oh. romance in question was Natalie Portman and julianne moore julianne moore which is which is weird because it's like natalie portman's nearly 40 or or (laughs) she like 40 so it didn't it didn't quite fit for me but like all i saw was a poster with two women one obviously older than the other and i was like oh may december okay so they're 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 lovers and i hear that it's a 
got a weird De Palma-y, thrillery aspect to it. So, like, the way it unfolds in terms of, at, I would, like, the the act of watching this movie not knowing the central premise and seeing the relationship dynamic that goes on in the household it is actually like i think like 15 minutes before it is actually spelled out to the audience like what their history is and that was like so just like those first 15 minutes of me slow i'm like wait is he's kind of like and then mm, I think she was his teacher. Like I'm like I'm like I'm like putting these things together. It was so pleasurable and cool. On top of that, like the real thing that just had my jaw open the entire fucking movie is I do not understand how Todd Haynes is able to balance. I did find this movie extremely funny. And like it is like shocked gasps of laughter. Like the scene with Natalie Portman in the high school. That scene is so like her initial reaction to that like cat, that creepy sex uh, scene question yeah. is like the it is like this portrait of narcissism that is so perfect and complete. I was just cackling because it's so fucking weird and like you you creep like shut up and like the idea that these are like two women who are sort of made for each other because they are both toxic narcissists who everything is filtered through what they want and and their desire to and like and their uh, their belief that they deserve whatever they want and like everything in their lives circles around that fact and the fact that like they mirror each other in ways uh, in those ways, I, I was just like absolutely in love with and the way it balances all of that stuff, which is very deeply funny with a really genuinely, I believe, sensitive and empathetic look at um, what's what's the name of the uh, actor? Uh, Charles Melton. Charles Melton. Charles Melton's character is so tragic and so fucking sad and just he breaks my heart in That's every what single I scene. Gravitated more towards than the comedic. <laughs> like, I know it's darkly funny, and I know we can laugh at their narcissism throughout. But it was more of just I was so like my heart was breaking. Yeah, but like to me, the, they amplify each other. Yes, his story is sadder because of how like just cosmically. It is just a cosmic Oblivious, joke where yeah, he has are. landed and like the people that has that have controlled his destiny. Mm-hmm. It is it is like a really bleak existential joke. And every time he tries to like reach out to his children and they're like just he is so clearly just still fucking 13 years yeah, old and yeah. like all of that shit is so heartbreaking but it's like it's I, I don't know how he did it, but it feels like Todd Haynes found a way like the idea of humor of, of a way of dealing with the darkness of reality is like that's a very old hat kind of idea. But like I feel like this movie does it in a completely different way than I've ever seen it done before. And I really think that like the reason this movie is so fascinating to me is that these two things should not work together and they do. And I to me, that is like. This is not a queer movie, but like the sensibility of it feels extremely queer in a way a Todd Haynes movie hasn't felt to me in a while. Would you use the word camp? 
Uh, I I wouldn't because he'd yell at me. Yeah, <laughs> that's it been is, a big debate. Well, I I look a camp is like a comp. Like I didn't fucking go to college and I barely graduated high school, and so like I'm just not prepared to like step up here and deliver a monologue about what is and isn't camp and I like neither <laughs> and that sort of thing and like postmodernism and all that. Like I'll save that shit for Susan Sontag. She's she's free to it. I'm not, I can't do it. But I will say that like. It does not shock me that uh, in a world where people react to material in a very flattened way and people take things at face value and they say, this is a movie endorsing this. And it's like, why is that? Because it depicts it. And it's like, I feel like in that world, the thing you don't want to do as a filmmaker who's trying to still have a career is talk about how much your child molestation comedy is hilarious. Like you probably should not like talk about how funny it is to tell this story of abuse of child abuse. And I understand why politically everyone involved with the movie would just, the memo gets out. It's like, look, let's not emphasize the comedy. The people who get the movie, get the movie and the people who won't get the movie. Let's not like, Let's not provoke them. <laughs> um, that is how I have received the conversation mm. about camp. I can tell you right now, Todd Haynes is a lot more educated than me. And Todd Haynes could fill volumes of encyclopedias on what he knows about camp that I don't. So, like, yeah. if, if, if he sincerely believes that his movie isn't camp, then I'm like, all right, cool. I'll take your word for it. But at any rate, it's – I – this um, ability to take like really heartbreaking, absurd, aggressively unpleasant, just like deeply disgusting material and turn it into this like grand melodrama as filtered through these two narcissists and not lose sight of the heartbreak at the center of it is just it is absolutely fucking captivating and fascinating it is the greatest magic trick i've seen pulled in movies this year i'm just i'm totally in awe of this movie um a lot of people are yeah and and it's this is this was just like yeah from the very start again not knowing anything and having no preconceptions um like the way it unfolds and the way you begin to realize what kind of actor natalie portman is and like what you know like all of these things are just so fucking delicious and so much fun and so funny um, that it's just like I don't. This is not my number one on my list. I think this is the like quote unquote highest cinematic achievement of the year uh, and to the extent that that's a phrase that means anything at all, which is very little. But like <laughs> that, I I feel like in a way that mostly in the past you know five or so years, I look at new films and I go. That was a great film. It didn't really surprise me. It didn't really move me. It didn't feel like a way of pushing the medium forward. May, December feels like this is something brand fucking new that I've never seen before. Huh. Interesting. I mean, what have you seen before <laughs> that is like, I mean, oh, this is I, just, I, he's I, just the doing only this. Thing I, the only thing that came to mind was my uncertainty of... <laughs> Like how to respond to something like the portrayal of a pedophile in happiness with Todd Salons. I think that's a good call. I think like Todd Salons is I, I don't think Todd Salons I, is 
is I don't think Todd Salons is the director that Todd Haynes is and I don't think Todd Salons gets the performances that oh. Todd Haynes gets like Natalie Portman I think is usually bad I will say most Natalie Portman movies I've seen her I've seen her in I go that is someone who is doing a bad job and I haven't seen all of them but like my general opinion of her is low and this is I think the best uh, performance she's ever given hmm. um it <clears throat> yeah i don't know the score turned me off there's a lot of talk about the score and it was funny <sighs> i don't remember what the score is it did not it's, 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 any so impression it's, on me it's the music from the go-between it's the low right. movie. yeah yeah right so, so it's that's all the so, stuff I read in the interviews, and I'm like, I don't remember anything about it. Hmm. Well, do you, it's it's honestly, I think it's like this. It's when it, it it's first used in the kitchen, um, within the first five minutes of the film, and it's like a moment of Julianne Moore alone in the kitchen with that music coming in, and it's it's so dramatic. We have enough hot dogs. It's so dramatic for such a mundane situation yeah. that I think that's where people start laughing because they think that there must be something funny about that because it's such a disconnect between what we're seeing and what we're hearing. And they were almost conditioned. At least my crowd I saw it with, as I mentioned, they started laughing at a lot of things, and especially when that score would come on. Like they'd start <laughs> laughing. Like they started laughing at Nally Portman reenacting you know, what happened in the back of that pet shop, you know, when she's pretending she's, you know, <laughs> having sex uh, and that score kicks in, everybody started laughing. I'm like, uh, that's kind of gross what she's doing. <laughs> you know, I don't find it funny, but if other people do, I'm not like saying that they're wrong either. But yeah. just... I like, I like this movie. I mean, I've seen it twice. Oh, yeah, I, I, do will, too. I will definitely see it again. I mean, I, I like it. I'm happy that, um, I find the discussions of it really interesting. Yes. Like it's another one of those films like Barbie or Oppenheimer where it's like on all these lists and I'm, I'm not mad about it. Like these are interesting films to talk about. Like if this is what, you know, this is what film culture is now, like that's progress. I mean, but like, uh, but I, yeah, I, something about it. I mean, I feel like compared to dark waters, which is a more straightforward film, I thought like that was actually, I don't know, for some reason, like that one snuck up on me more, even Agreed. though it's like the most anonymous thing he ever made. I thought like, it was interesting that he could make something that was just like a smart Sidney Pollock type movie, yeah. <laughs> like that it wasn't self-conscious. Because I think that when when you have things like the music, like it's things that remind me that Todd Haynes is at the wheel, whereas like that that Dark Waters movie just felt like invisible and i thought that was and it actually wonderstruck actually felt that way too the one before mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. um like i but i think i was wondering as these recent films were coming out like what happened to todd haynes the writer and i know that the new film is going to be a, a, a um one that he wrote and not, not that this makes a huge amount of difference but i do think he's an interesting kind of screenwriter and i thought it was kind of what was the last one he wrote like I'm not there. The Bob Dylan thing. Like did people hurt his so. feelings so badly with that one that he just turned to outside material going forward. And I, I mean, I, I, he's picked interesting things. I'm not saying it's like a, you know, a, a great tragedy to Todd Haynes, the director that he's not writing the films, but I do kind of miss hearing his voice as a writer. Um, but no, I love the conversations that have resulted with this movie without a doubt. I just, yeah, still, yeah, don't feel as like 
overwhelmed by the experience of watching it. Like I thought that there are things about it I love and I certainly love all the performances, especially um, on, on rewatch. I did think Natalie Portman stood out even more. Like uh, initially my first thought was like, Oh, that was a great moment in the mirror. And like, I thought of it. And I, I think a couple of people, even on letterbox, in, including Reg to sort of describe this as like a lifetime movie mixed with persona. <laughs> and I thought like, that's an interesting like because it almost feels like Natalie Portman's acting style or the types of movies that she makes as a character is like in- invading this dramatic world to where like I thought her uh, it's hard to describe but like just we see glimpses of the kind of work that she does as an actress and that was almost like becoming a part of the movie itself if that makes any sense right like, yeah. it just felt like she was, yeah, like her sensibility was invading this I th- world. I think that might be why, like, that might be why it gets away with being gross. There might be, like, the built-in auto-critique of mm. a, I don't know, this is a, this is a wild film to compare to May, December, but, like, Son of Saul is a movie that's, oh. like, we're not going to, sh- we're not going to point the camera at what is happening and in not pointing the camera at what is happening, we are acknowledging that pointing the camera at what is happening is diminishing it hmm. because it flattens it into something fictional. And instead, we're going to focus on this one face. And it's like there's almost something about May, December that is like uh, child abuse is like so horrific that if you try to make a movie dramatizing child abuse, what you are doing is like a mockery of it. And like. There might be some like self. I, it, this isn't based on a true story or anything, so it's it's a little different than a, uh, a, a than the than the existential question of how do you depict the Holocaust on film, um, yeah. you know. And obviously, Zone of Interest is another uh, example of that sort of thing, where it's like you're you're specifically not seeing things yeah. and stuff like that. Um, yeah, but like you say, saying not seeing or not see. But at any rate, like. I don't know. I this is a movie I saw the one time and I think this is a movie that I do want to see again cuz I do think it will play differently a second time knowing where it's going. Yes. Um but like I liked it a lot more the second time. I, again, my list is like what were the big experience cinematic experiences of my year and this was just like every additional scene was just like flooring me more and I couldn't mm. believe where it was going, where it was willing to go and like how how far and and with such deafness and still and still be so fucking funny and like even the moment towards the end where it's like we are gonna flatten everything out it turns out this is all due to this one tragic backstory and you know this one tragic thing in julianne moore's backstory and then later just be like it's all it's like the uh, funny games thing where it's like how did it feel in that uh in that 10 minutes of the movie where you as an audience member thought you had a handle on why this was happening because guess what you were wrong that's not what the kind of movie you know like that's not mm. you can't actually explain this sort of thing away like everything about this movie just fucking floored me and i'm excited to see it again and you know maybe with the shock gone, I will see it and I will be less impressed. I don't know. But like for me right now, May, December is just like an astounding work. Hmm. Yeah. No, I, 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 I'm, I'm glad that you liked it. And I mean, I, I, I've seen it twice. I liked it more the second time. I mean, I liked it the first time. I I think it's one I've kind of wrestled with my reaction to, because I, I see all the points everyone's making and I just, I, I like it, but I don't, yeah. It's something, something about it. Like I don't quite 
I, I'm a little bit outside it a little bit. Like I, I'm, I'm kind of observing how it's all working so perfectly, but I don't feel as emotionally impacted by it as I think I should for something like that. But I still, I still like it. Um, whereas the Briant film is a little bit more of a sledgehammer. And, and actually that had walkouts because that does actually, without getting too far into that, like it does dramatize things that Haynes only kind of implies. Right. Um, mm. I don't know. That and sounds like you mentioned. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, she, she's she's out to create f- problems. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's her job. And like, um, it, it's funny you mentioned Son of Saul because that's all I think about when I think about the the dialogue around Son of Interest, which I mean isn't yeah. on my list, but I thought I thought it was brilliantly made. I mean, that was a film where I thought that the um, like the whole conceit of it is just like another Holocaust movie, but done as a 24 art horror. <laughs> like it's just like all of the tropes of that kind of style, you know, of like suggestion horror, uh, applied to the, the period epic. Like it's like, you know, with the costume period history films of the year, we have Oppenheimer doing it as like action movie pacing. And then you have, uh, you know, the, um, zone of interest is kind of doing it like art, art house horror, but like, which is a weird way to tackle that subject, but it hasn't been done before. It's not like Nazi exploitation films. Like there's not any, um, anything graphic in it, but it's just so horrible in it's just, yeah, uh, by not, by it, not seeing it. Yeah. 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 But, yeah. but I, I don't know, like a definitely a tricky one to chew over. Cause I'm like, it's perfect, but I'm also like, will I ever go back to it? And, and I don't know. Are the people, are the people that like have an issue with this? Right. <laughs> I mean, that was the thing that was a Q&A at New York Film Festival for that film was like, the last question was like, you know, about ethics of Holocaust representation. Like, all right, we got to go. Thank you all for coming. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. and, I mean, <laughs> Son of Saul gets got got hit with the same controversy. Same thing. Yeah. Son yeah. of Saul is, oh, Peter is like, hates is, is like a, it's like a roller coaster ride uh, of a Holocaust yeah. movie. Yeah. Uh, for me, I have not seen Zone of Interest. I have not had the opportunity yet. I just everything I've read about it, I have wondered is a mo- is a movie theater the correct context for this? Is this actually like an installation that mm. should exist in a museum somewhere rather than like sit down, pay your ticket and watch it start to finish? Should it just be a thing that as you're walking through a museum you sit down and exist in for 15 minutes and that you know what I mean? I haven't sure. seen it. So this this is but this is that's the vibe it's I good, got from what I've read. Yeah. Yeah. I it's, can buy that. It's it's one of the most interesting films of the year for sure. And it's brilliantly made. So it's definitely worth your time, but I can understand every reaction, positive and negative with it. It might like be my favorite sound design and score. Oh, it's yeah. yeah no, the there's year. nothing close to it. Yeah. I mean, I think it's technically a, a Marvel. I mean, there's yeah. no question, but it's, yeah, I, I, I get, I get people's reservation, especially the son of Saul argument. Cause it's even, even more so, but, uh, because this is actually like a lot easier to watch, I think, than that film was. Sure. And should it be easier? I'll be curious to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, the, I feel like the, my top three movies, I don't, I'm not going to go on too long about. Because uh, I don't know if I would necessarily even say like, oh, they're, they're profound works of art. Everybody should be you know, seeing them. I just personally responded strongly to them. And mm. for you know reasons that reflect my own experience or my own interests... Number three is uh, Dream Scenario, and it's a movie that I feel like only a handful of people think it's you know would, would be in their top five or whatever. Um, I, I just like what this movie is uh, about, and <laughs> like I felt 
I know I know a friend of mine who absolutely hated this movie because it's another portrayal of a narcissist and like why would you decide to go that route with this idea of somebody invading their dreams when it could I don't know be somebody more likable and somebody more layered and interesting but I don't know I I was all for even based on the concept when I found out what this was about, because I'm fascinated by dreams, I'm fascinated by psychology. These are the kind of stories that Charlie Kaufman has told time and time again. And when people dismiss this as Kaufman light, I am not arguing that. I was just fully on board from beginning to end, including the very dark turn it kind of takes when it becomes very jarring for a lot of people, um, when it becomes sort of more of a treatise on cancel culture and the way the people respond to media saturation uh, or in this case, dream saturation, nightmare saturation. Uh, and I don't know. I think Nicolas Cage gives one of the better performances that he's given in a long time. Um, not a likable character, not, not somebody that I would want to hang out with in, in this in this situation. And I found the sex scene to be one of the funniest. I mean, that's the hardest I might've laughed all, all year, not just the farts, but the uh, post orgasm face that Nicholas cage gives is just, <laughs> I just laughed so hard at that. And I don't know. It's just one of those, it's one of those moments that kind of shows like how we think something is going to happen is not the way it's going to happen in reality. Like the idea of what we've created in our minds or idealized in some way, that's just not, it's just not going to happen in that way. Like what we experience in our dreams is certainly not possible in reality. And that moment is really indicative of the themes, but then it sort of goes down another road that I think people are torn about. Whereas I kind of went with it. I was taken aback by the fact that uh, very similar to what Patrick was talking about, um, with his screenplay idea for Night Rabbits, my my own idea was surrounding this idea of dream influencers. And for the last 15 minutes, I was feeling very uncomfortable. I was like, ooh, wow, this is so close to what I kind of wanted to do at some point uh, where I had like, you know, an outline written and just kind of went, I, I want to take the idea of inception and make it a little e like way darker and weirder and more surreal. And just like the idea of an app that takes control of people and manipulates their dreams to where suddenly they're being exploited in different ways. So in, in essence, I almost wanted the last 15 minutes to be its own movie too, because that was my idea. But I also just found everything about it to be um, fun and funny and weird and interesting. And uh, I, 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 can't, I have to admit, I really like the final moment of this movie. I was surprisingly touched by it, even though I don't know if it, it fits really with everything else that's going on. Uh, I still thought it was really sweet. And, and I don't know. There's also a monologue that Nicolas Cage gives in front of his computer um, where he's just, you know, saying, I didn't, I didn't even do anything and I'm being hurt by what's going on in the world. And yet it's like his wife calls him out on it being very selfish of him to present his, you know, feelings in that way. So there's just a lot going on in this movie personally. And, uh, I, I know people who just think it's fine and that's fine too, but I happen to love dream scenario. So that's where I stand. Patrick, tell me about your experience trying to see dream scenario and did you end up seeing dream scenario y'all like oh henry 
check this shit out. All right, gift, it's gift of the Magi time. I uh, I like I said before, I have this AMC Stubbs A list thing or whatever, and it allows you to buy tickets advance. You don't have to pay a, an online fee or anything. So I'm like. Cool. I'm going to get off work. I'm going to head downtown. I'm going to go see Dream Scenario. Jim says it's great. And I reserve my ticket and something goes wrong. Public transportation. I can't make the showing. No big loss. I didn't actually pay for the ticket. Whatever. I'll do it next time. A couple days later, I go, all right, round two. Let's go. Dream Scenario. It's not going to be in theaters forever. And same thing happens. I get stuck at work longer than I thought was going to happen. I couldn't fucking see Dream Scenario. And I go, I guess fate is trying to tell me not to see Dream Scenario, and who am I to argue against fate? Fine. I get a text from Jim. He goes, you got a surprise coming, and you got a uh, birthday present coming. And I received the birthday present. It was a Blu-ray copy of Fiend by Don Dohler. Thank you so much, Jim. Beautiful gift. I'm a big fan of Night Beast. I can't wait to watch Fiend. (laughs) surprise didn't arrive and i'm like hey jim when's what's the surprise and he's like it's a surprise trust me i think it should have arrived turns out he sent it to my old address so i started texting with my old landlord be like hey can you tell me who you lives in my apartment now he just gave me her phone number which is a weird thing to do uh don't do this don't contact people and be like you live where i used to live because that i felt like i was starting a de palma movie uh when i started doing this i started texting her She's like, yeah, I just got out of town at 6 a.m. It's somewhere in the vestibule because I saw it was addressed to my address, but it's not it's it's not to me. Um, So I'm going to go ahead and, uh, uh, you know, you go ahead and have fun with that. I'm in Minneapolis and I go, fuck. okay, cool. I'm going to contact the maintenance guy. And and he's like, "Okay, meet me here at 530 and I'll let you in and then show me your ID and we'll match it with the name on the package and then i'll give you the package i go all right cool it is 20 degrees out It is the first cold day of the year and i am i am walking half a mile (laughs) to my old apartment so i can get this package uh guy does not show up so i'm waiting outside my old apartment building for 20 (laughs) minutes hoping desperately someone walks in and out and i could just like run in and grab it and run off um, like a creepy package thief, uh, hoping they don't have some kind of ring camera or whatever. Guy eventually does show up. He lets me in. I get the package. Soon as I pick it up, I'm like, "This is a motherfucking screener for Dream Scenario." I know this cardboard sleeve. <laughs> I look at the. I look at the. I look at the uh, cost of shipping, $9.89. Jim, I live 10 minutes away from you. I can walk over and pick it up. But Jim is committed to the surprise. He wanted a magical Christmas moment for me. So he spent nearly $10 shipping this to the wrong address. Here's the O. Henry part that Jim doesn't know. Jim wanted to surprise me. He was dedicated to the surprise. I wanted to surprise Jim. I had already seen Dream Scenario in the movie theaters. I didn't think it was going to be playing another week. It, in fact, was playing another week. And I said, rather (laughs) than tell Jim I finally saw it, what if I sprung this on him? And it would be like a fun little thing. Maybe you'll be high up on my list, too, and we'll get to like talk about this. Here's the final twist of this gift of the Magi scenario. Mm -hmm. I fucking hate Dream Scenario. This movie sucks. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love it so much. <laughs> this is the best thing ever. I walked out of that movie in the theater. I'm like, I definitely need to hold on to this and not just text Jim about how his favorite movie of the year is trash. Um, and uh, lo and behold, uh, 
uh, Jim had already spent ten dollars uh, shipping this fucking screener to the wrong address. <laughs> the thing about Charlie Kaufman is Charlie Kaufman has wit, and this movie is really witless. The thing about movies about dreams is dreams give you license to be very imaginative, and the dreams in this movie are really fucking boring, and they are shot uh, in a very uninteresting way. Um, I the the idea of like a cancel culture parable is like total bullshit because he didn't do anything. Yeah. Nicholas Cage did nothing. That's not what. That's not anything. That's not that, even in the dreams. He's not doing anything. There's no relation between the scenario in this movie and cancel culture. There's like there. There's no one to one. There's no celebrity you can point to and be like, oh yeah, just like Nicholas Cage, people. Like there's, it just doesn't translate. Hmm. So it's a bad place to go. Uh, the dream influencer thing is really underwritten. There's one great point, which is Kate Berlant, and Kate Berlant's fucking great, and she upstages oh, yeah. Nicolas oh, yeah. Cage. Uh, you go back and watch Once Upon Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. She upstages Margot Robbie. Kate Berlant is the reason to watch this movie, but don't watch this movie. It's bad. Um. So the director of this film might listen to this. Oh, I did not. Hey, dude, I guess what? I'm adding more to this. Uh, oh, no, 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 no. Like, let, me, let me walk this back. I 100% back up everything I said, but also I'm the guy who almost made a short film and then didn't. Like, my little story was like, I wrote a little script called Night Rabbits and then someone did it better. So, like, you're winning. You, this guy's fine. Okay. <laughs> 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 he, he, he could live with it. Um, uh, I, I I thought I thought I, I thought it was I, I thought it was quite bad. I'm glad you like it. It's uh, it is uh, maybe on my you list. Hate my script if I wrote it, if I ever wrote it. Uh, my on my list it is number seventy seven. It is better than the Outwaters, but it's not as good as Joyride. Hmm. Well, I mean, it wouldn't <laughs> be a normal show if we didn't have some major disagreement, right. of but, course. But specifically, that being the punchline <laughs> that of was trying of trying to that was just wow. It was it was real gift to the Magi shit. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it, it's definitely up there with my reveal of an email that we got the last time we did this with Bill. I guess so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just like the surprise element. Of I don't it. like thinking about uh, that guy no, anymore. No, no, we don't like. To, we're, we're not going to mention his name anymore. No, of course not. <laughs> oh my God, Shane Carruth, my idol. That's me in 2015. <laughs> That's a good impression. Uh, Bill, you like Dream Scenario a little bit more than Patrick, though. I would. I did. Okay. Yeah. No. I. I thought it was. I thought it was fun. I mean, yeah. I. 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 I do think it's kind of like Kaufman-y, um, but I. I don't know. I, I saw it at the Philadelphia Film Festival, and it, I I didn't know anything about it going in other than it was from the director of Sick of Myself, and yeah, I thought it was fine. I mean, I I, I knew you were a big fan of it, and Elric Kane is a big fan of it. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't have a whole lot to add about it. I mean, I think I think it was like the of the of the two Kaufman films this year. I thought. I thought it was more coherent than Bo is Afraid, but I thought Bo is Afraid took bigger swings and like the highs of that connected more, but it also yeah. was like a mess. <laughs> oh, it's a mess, but I love the first um, hour in Bo is Afraid. But yeah, and, and too long and but 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 it has scenes that I'm like, okay, well there's there's things here that are interesting. It just doesn't kind of add up. Mm -hmm. Um and yeah, a lot of people have felt that way, but I don't know. Yeah. I just felt differently. So, <laughs> Sue me world.
better than Bo is afraid. I'll I'll say it right now. All right, the, that's a good. That's what I want to hear. What's this dude's name? Um, what's this dude's name? Christopher uh, Borgley. Christof- Christopher Borgley. Christopher, listen, buddy. <laughs> I don't I know if he's. Some, I really don't know if he's I said listen, some harsh things about him. your movie, but. That's nothing compared to some of the shit I've said about Ari Aster in the past. And we'll continue to say in the future, Christopher, you're better than Ari Aster. That's all. You can take that to the bank. Put it on the poster of your next movie. Yeah, well, guess who happened to have been a producer on Dream Scenario? No, I I did. I did. I did notice that. But like, whatever. What does producer mean? Yeah. Just gave him some money. Be like, here, make your movie. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. Thank you, Ari Aster, for introducing me to people who made the movie. You get a producer credit. I don't know. <laughs> um, thank you, Ari Aster, for doing something other than writing a trash screenplay. You're saving us all a lot of heartache. Uh, if he could move into producing full time, that would really. You should watch uh, watch Christopher's other movie. Maybe you'll like it more. I, I really I know Bill, wanted to, but yeah. it wasn't streaming anywhere. I well, was that's ready. Weird. To, I was ready to fork over, you know, six ninety nine or whatever to Amazon to rent it. But I just had no way of watching. Sick of myself. I was really excited to. And from the description, it sounds like I think you'd like it. more. I would really like it more than Dream Scenario. Yeah. So. A lot of people well, do, including Bill. Yeah. Wouldn't be hard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, this is just. Oh, this hurts. You I'm might have sorry, to give me a Christopher. bit of that cookie. Whatever. I'm, I'm a fuck. I'm, I'm a fucking douche with a podcast, Christopher. You can you can take it. Yeah. That podcast being 96 Greer's, the film podcast <laughs> where we tackle every feature film with Judy Greer in the cast. You so. realize I'm going to edit all this, all the 96 Greer's plugs out. Of You're not going to edit shit. That's no. the only <laughs> consolation I have. You're going to have this on the feed. Now in that two I know days. your thoughts on Dream Scenario, I just might surprise you. <laughs> um, what number are we on? What, what's happening? Number three. Yes, for you. So my number three is Asteroid City. Oh, cool. Um, I, uh, this is the one of the only ones on my list that is like definitely like an autorist, you know, checking in with someone I've followed their work for a long time and I uh, thought it was interesting to kind of fit it in that larger context. Um, I, I don't know. I think I went into this with low expectations because a friend of mine really hated it when it played at Cannes. And so I was like, okay, well, maybe this will be, you know, you know, not not one I'll necessarily uh, connect with, or, or 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 maybe it'll be one I struggle to you know to enjoy. But I I think I don't know. I, watching it, I I felt like it was um, like a quieter film than his other films. Like it felt like um, like there was a lot of whimsical humor, but it felt like um, almost kind of like like uh, like cracking jokes at awake. Like it just felt like there was like a like a heavy a heavy heartedness to it that, I mean, a lot of his films have that. I mean, the one it reminds me most of is the Royal Tenenbaums, at least the, the, the movie star heavy kind of color story within the story. I mean, the surrounding material like that takes us into the writer's uh, process and the things that deal in the theater world that are black and white don't feel like that. But the, the one fiction uh, in the center of it feels kind of like a return to that, feel for me i mean i mean so much of it like down to the um uh like the the widower and the kind of gruff father figure and like I mean, there's so much that seems like the the early films of his but kind of um like this kind of meta component is something i i don't really associate with him it felt like i'm i mean all of his films feel like um 
like recombining com- different elements from the previous films with like some new ingredients. I mean, this has like the precocious kid element of Moonrise Kingdom. It has the kind of inventor element, like the, uh, you know, I mean, there's so much that kind of resonates with all of the other films I and mean, even French yeah. Dispatch. But um, I, I don't find it like, it doesn't feel like self-referential. Like there's no callbacks to the other films. Like it's not like a Kevin Smith kind of thing, what he does. Like it doesn't feel like, they all feel like they're meant to be sincere standalone films. It's just like he just has certain things he reincorporates. But um, I don't know. I think I think it's just like the way he handles that that courtship between the Schwartzman and Scarlett Johansson characters, I found kind of touching. I mean, I do find it funnier than, I mean, I know I, humor is subjective. I, I I don't know if it's as funny as some like Grand Budapest Hotel, but um, I, I do think there's some funny lines in it. I mean, it's usually like just the inappropriate things people say that, I mean, that's kind of the jokes I find funny with this stuff. I mean, it gets a little cute, um, but not in a way that like feels like, uh, I don't know, like the the, the Roald Dahl shorts uh, almost kind of walk a fine line with me mm-hmm. as far as the preciousness of them. This one feels like, um, I, I, don't, I don't know what it is. It is something I just kind of, I think the, the melancholy of it I really like. I mean, I always kind of like that about his stuff anyway. I mean, that's the thing I always feel like the Wes Anderson parodies never quite get is like, I don't like them because of how the, the frame is arranged to be all quirky. Like, I like how they're sad. Um, and I think that that this is one of the ones that feels kind of most directly tapping into that. Um, so that's kind of what I like in his stuff. And I, I, I it was a nice surprise. And it also, I mean, it looks quite beautiful. I mean, I think what I thought of for a long time was Howard Hawks movies, like the Westerns, like the films like, uh, El Dorado or even, um, Hatari, like things like were just like, it's there is a plot, but it's just kind of an excuse to get a bunch of people like in one location that's totally <laughs> yeah. artificial to hang out and like fall in love or make wry comments and uh, drink martinis. And that's, I mean, that's a lion's share of the center of it. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, I think what Jason Schwartzman does is kind of the most interesting use of him as an actor. Um, and I, 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 you know, so it's fun to see like new actors try to find their way into his work. I always am amazed that he gets such sweet performances from such difficult actors as Edward Norton and Adrian Brody. Um, like they, they just seem like quite content and I only hear horror stories about how they are to work with, but, um, you know, and I like Matt Dillon and, you know, I thought it was fun to have a day trippers reunion with Hope Davis and Lee Schreiber, like just like, basically, you know, surface level kind of things but like yeah i mean as a thing to return to because i feel like all of his films even the ones i don't like initially seem to get some kind of depth when i go back to them and this one i don't know like i mean maybe just because it feels like almost self-consciously elegiac i i i can't tell like how it will age for me but i i i think of the two times I've seen it, it's only gotten better for me um, on a rewatch. So um, it feels like one I will probably return to more often than some of his films post Grand Budapest Hotel. Like it feels, um, yeah, I mean, I, it's, and, and this year, as far as like, you know, auteur kind of things, like I, it was kind of a wasteland for me. So this one, you know, I, I do kind of uh, 
and the card carrying uh, tourist. So I, I had to have at least one like that on my list. Yeah. I like this movie a lot. My number two is When You Left Me on That Boulevard by Kayla Abuda Galang. Um, this is a short film. It won the Grand Jury Prize at Sundance for Best Short, Best Dramatic Short, I believe. Oh. There's, they have a separate category for documentary. Um, this, I saw a program of Sundance shorts uh, at the Gene Siskel, and this was the final one. And it is like. As an aside, like we gotta fucking figure out a way to get short films available because I want everyone to see this, and it's just nowhere. And the problem is, you make these short films, and they play festivals, and then they're like, actually, what we want to do is we want to tuck them away because we want to develop on them and make them a feature, and we don't want them out there muddying oh. the waters or anything. So, uh, Kayla Abuda Galang is working on a feature at a not adaptation of this, but like. Uh, on her profile, who, whoever her uh, agent who wrote this is, uh, talks about two features that she's developing. And one of them, it says, is 0607, a coming-of-age comedy set in the mid-2000s southeast San Diego, which sounds to me like a feature-length um, sort of expansion of this short. Hmm. But, like, if hmm. the writing world can... you know, There's a thing called, like, the Kindle single, which is, like, sure. writers will write short stories and sell them for 99 cents on Kindle and their audiences will buy them. And like, we got to figure out a way for people to like make money off of short films. So they're available. Cause I want people to see this shit. It's so good. And maybe the feature, maybe Oh six Oh seven is going to be great too. But, uh, I remember the, uh, a previous Sundance shorts, uh, uh, series I saw one of the short films was a little thing called Whiplash by Damien Chazelle. Uh-huh. And that I was absolutely enamored with. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I wish I could show you Whiplash. It's not streaming online, but it's so good. And then when the feature was announced, I'm like, oh, holy shit, there's going to be a whole Whiplash feature length film. And then I saw it and I went, this is not as good as the short <laughs> film. Um, it's, it's a good, I, Whiplash is good, but it's not as good as the short. It's the expansion is unnecessary. So that might be the same here. But at any right when i left you on that boulevard is like 17 minutes long uh oh it says right here 13 minutes long it is uh thanksgiving in san diego it is this uh sort of shy girl and her massive family who have all uh gathered into this one house to celebrate thanksgiving it's a filipino thanksgiving so there's you know interesting details in that or whatever but really the thing it captures more than anything is the feeling of being overwhelmed uh, in a family gathering where you mm. like everyone is just like so excited to see each other and they're so loud and so boisterous and everything and you are sort of like shrinking into the furniture um, she goes out with her cousins and she smokes weed and she's not used to smoking weed and she gets too high and she takes a phone call from this boy that she kind of likes and it's like not until she's high that she realizes that this boy is kind of trouble um, there's a lot of, it's just it's just packed with really gorgeous details um, that are like period details of like them sitting and playing the PlayStation 2 and they're playing Tekken or something like that. And like there's, you know, there's the like the first shot where you see the one person's white husband and it's like the only white face in the entire movie is like that's just like a very funny like there's just stories upon stories about like how these ants are relating to each other and who the cousins are and who this girl is. And it's all told in these just like well-observed details and images and flashes and moments. 
Um, and I was absolutely fucking in love with it. And for most of the year, it was my favorite film of the year. Um, and I hope Kayla Abuda Galang uh, goes on to make m- more work and uh, do features and stuff. The one thing of hers that is available online is this uh, short she made called Learning Tag Along with Kayla. That is amusing, but it's like it's just not on the same level. It's it's more of like a almost like a YouTube sketch comedy sort of a thing. Um, it's fine, but it's just like uh, when you left me on that boulevard. It, it's expressive and it's joyful and it's fun and it's emotional and it's like just really, really detail oriented. And I was absolutely fucking in love with it. So when you left me on that boulevard, if someday it pops up on a Vimeo or a YouTube or a Daily Motion or whatever, like watch that shit. It's fucking great. Maybe it'll be a special feature on a Blu ray of 0607 when that movie gets made, if that movie is in fact an expansion of this, which I have, I don't know, but, uh, I, I loved it. So I apologize for telling you all about the movie. You can't see, uh, I hate it when that happens. Uh, I hate it when that happens. Uh, I hate it when that happens. I liked um, my number two choice, and I won't talk about it too much as I'm getting sleepy. It's called You Can Live Forever mm-hmm. from Canadian writer-director Sarah Watts and Mark Slutsky. This is um, one of two movies from this year at the top of my list that probably have made it this high for very personal reasons, I would say, in that they're similar and. I feel like I've experienced what these characters have experienced at that particular place, at that particular time. The um, growing up and experiencing first love and intense attraction and desire uh, all factor into both of my movies, really. But uh, no, the the two leads in this just, uh, I just, they, they really, um, they just stood out as being some of the best, more naturalistic performers I've seen. And they slowly developed this romantic connection that uh, felt very real to me. And uh, one of my earliest relationships um, that, that I had around this time in the mid-90s, uh, her family was devoutly Christian to the point of her feeling and saying to me that God may not want us to be together. And I talked to him about this. And there was just a lot of... And to, and the family itself, like when I came to dinner one night, they all you know prayed and everything, and of course I I, I participated in everything, and then they talked to me a lot about what do I believe, and it I felt very uncomfortable and I was like struggling to you know be on the right level with everybody and get along with everybody and compromising some of my beliefs in that moment. Um, just because I wanted to be in a relationship because I hadn't really been in one. And this all happened around the same time that this movie takes place to the point of remembering when we made out in the backseat of a car to the same breeder song. So I think a lot of it is just very personal and me remembering certain things about my past. And yeah, it, it just really, I found this delicate balance and like we talked about already, it doesn't turn religious faith into something inherently evil, quote unquote. Um, 
because like yeah this is just it's just we see it as a force that is set on keeping our you know star-crossed lovers apart but there's just a sense of community built around it that you understand why they're so connected to it um, and it's just a great queer love story that uh, I, I just personally think is special and I want people to see it. And that's why it's my number two. It's for great. sure. Yeah, definitely yeah. worth checking out. Thank you. Um, my, my number two is uh, The Iron Claw by Sean Durkin. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, that's that's on my I need to see it. I'm going to catch up with it soon. Yeah, yeah, unfortunately, I love Sean Durkin, love wrestling, did not get a chance to see it yet. Yeah, I mean, I I went into it not knowing anything about it, um, other than that it was the Sean Durkin film that had just you know come out with you know a wrestling theme. That's all I knew about it, and I don't know anything about the Von Erich brothers going into it. I don't know anything about the cast, so I don't know how this plays if you know the actors like i didn't recognize a person that i've seen in lots of films before um or not a lot but i've seen I, there was there was people in it that i had seen that i didn't recognize them and then the plot i don't know if this is like a really well-known s- family story i feel like you know um my friend who went with me like she knew the whole story and like it actually was um even kind of lightened compared to the real tragedy of the story. But I, for me, I think I just went into it and I, I don't really have any feeling about wrestling either. Um, I just went into it just curious because it was the director of the nest and Martha, Marcy, May Marlene. And, you know, I, I heard maybe some critical buzz about it, but um, I think I just liked it because it's a downbeat Americana film. Like it's got um, the, the, the thing that reminded me most of was at close range, the, uh, the, the film oh, really? the Christopher Walken a story of like the, like this unyielding kind of father figure and just a series of tragedies that ensue because uh, of this of this character I mean I, I feel like it's the kind of story you probably have seen told before as far as the the impossible patriarch and their desire to live vicariously through the successes of their children kind of just breaks everybody apart um, like it's not like a story that is unique but i i guess it's something that um you know resonates with a lot of people because i feel like there is kind of just a very relatable um soap opera aspect to it and i i i i don't know i i it was just something that kind of struck me like watching it with no real expectations and i just was reminded of what i felt like um uh like it's kind of what i always hoped james gray would pull off as far as like this kind of like slow burn period set kind of brooding drama of real power. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't want to oversell it, but I, I, I mean, I, I was really knocked out by it. Um, so that's my number two. All right. I look forward to catching up with it for sure. So my number one is Jawan, which is the first Indian action movie I ever saw. Again, I have this AMC pass I was like, what is playing this afternoon? Oh, I guess I could try this out. I've never really, I've like seen two Bollywood movies in my life and it's, you know, I let's, let's try it out. People liked RRR. Maybe there's something to Indian action. I was wholly unprepared f- for a movie. Like we talked about how film critics and I think by in the same tact uh, cinephiles, maybe overvalue the novelty of surprise. 
and maybe overvalue like movies that deliver something they aren't expecting. And Jawan is a movie that is two hours and 40 minutes long. And at least every five minutes, something happens that totally fucking surprises me. Um, it is extremely synthetic. It is extremely tacky. Uh, it changes frame rates and like it's, it, it, it's very maximalist. Like it, it feels like speed racer, um, like Wachowskis meets, uh, Michael Bay, um, meets, you know, it is still a musical. There's like five musical numbers. I really like the first musical number comes in around like 47 minutes or whatever. I remember thinking like. Jim, because I told Jim about it, and Jim's like, I'll give it a shot. I don't think it might be my thing. And you were just like, immediately, you were like, this is really off-putting to me. Mm -hmm, and I mm -hmm. was like, just just watch through the opening part of the movie until you see the musical number. Uh, I was going to text that to you. And then I realized it's 47 minutes is what I considered the ah. introduction of this movie. Um there are so many nested flashbacks and backstories and twists and twist upon twists. And it is all built on around this actor, um, Shah Rukh Khan. Shah Rukh Khan is maybe the biggest actor in Bollywood, which puts him in the running for the biggest film star in the world. Um, he is a very strange presence. Uh, he has been a star for a long time, so he's kind of got that Tom Cruise thing where he's clearly in his like early 50s, but he's playing characters as if he's in his late 30s. Um, everything about this movie is about his ego. It is about him being like the greatest, most passionate, most skilled fighter, most uh, heartwarming, you know, sentimental uh, guy. Like it is, this, it is like an astounding work of. Uh, of ego he didn't direct the film at lee is the name of the uh director but like the movie is all about shah rukh khan and how great shah rukh khan is in a way that a tom cruise movie is all about how great tom cruise is um mm. and the whiplash between like really like hardcore misery porn kind of like poverty stuff and then that goes into like really, really silly Edgar Wright comedy. And then that goes into like really absurdly violent action. And then that goes into like these um, sequences that are like these political polemics where they're like talking about the corruption in India. And it like it is this really aggressive uh, movie about all of the ways that the elected officials of India are failing the people, but it's also extremely nationalistic. And also at the very end, it has this like moment where Shah Rukh Khan takes off all his makeup and looks directly into the camera and goes, what y'all got to do is vote harder, which is like, it's like, the, it's well, like, uh, it's so absurd. And it's like the most like weak neoliberal bullshit, uh, sort of like political <laughs> statement, but is delivered as if it's the end of a Spike Lee movie. Um, it's, there is it is maximalist cinema and I was just floored by everything and I do kind of like everything there's like an there's a weird like true lies style romance where the chief detective who's in charge of tracking him down because he runs this terrorist cell that's full of these women in this prison that he's the warden of but it's like the happiest prison in the world but it's still a prison which is good like the politics of this movie are fucking all over the place um <laughs> I had so much fucking fun. And is this the best Indian action movie? Couldn't say. I'm not an expert. I haven't even seen RRR yet. But like this was my introduction. And so it will permanently have a very special place in my heart. And every subsequent one I watched, like uh, 
Baganth uh, Kasari, or I, I probably might be mispronouncing that. The I think it was like my number twelve or my number eleven or something. The Tollywood uh, action film, like that one, is a little bit close to how crazy this is. And then there's another movie with Shah Rukh Khan called Pathan, which feels like if the MCU had no superheroes in it. It's like a Michael Bay movie MCU thing, but also like Looney Tunes. It's that movie's bizarre. Um, I really enjoyed that one. Pathan uh, donkey is a weird one because it's like a cl- culture clash comedy that also turns into Rambo for 15 minutes. Um, it is an approach to filmmaking that I find extremely appealing. Um, and this was my introduction to that approach. And it has become a new obsession and you know five years from now after i have seen you know 50 indian action movies i might look back at Jawan and be like actually that's kind of mid there's it's really not that good but um the excitement i felt in the movie theater and the cons- and the idea that that excitement sustained itself for two hours and 40 minutes straight like non-stop something happens that i'm like what the fuck is this now why is bane in this movie and he has a pet leopard on a leash um, I adore Jawan. I recommend everyone check it out. And uh, if you if you don't like it, you don't like it. That's fine. But like, uh, I I you you might find a new obsession. So uh, Jawan is my number one movie of the year. Highly personal, subjective take there, but I just I fucking loved it. Hmm. And I know you didn't watch it, Jim. You not in not in not in its entire. How far did you end up getting? Um, the uh, train sequence. Okay, so the very beginning of the movie. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, that was that was the other funny thing is when the movie started and it becomes this weird taking of the Pelham one two three thing. I was like, oh, so it's like a weird Bollywood remake of taking the Pelham one two three, and it's like, motherfucker, that is one of a dozen movies. It is. Um, I, I don't know if my brain can handle it. That's fine. That's again, I'm not. I don't necessarily need to convince anyone to like to love it. I just do want to convince people to give it a shot because it is wholly unlike anything you're going to get out of mm. America. Yeah, I saw the director's cut. The like, it's a little shy of it's. It's two hours and forty nine minutes. So I don't know if that's the longest cut or. I, so I I saw it in theaters and then I did watch that director's cut on Netflix. I could not detect the difference. So there might be an additional scene. I it wouldn't surprise me if I didn't pick up on additional scene, but it it's more or less the same movie. Okay. Yeah, and I yeah I I, I don't know. I mean. I I knew that you were a fan of it, and I I enjoy hearing your yeah <laughs> your, me too I enjoyed your that love a lot. for it more than I uh I it it wasn't it wasn't um I don't know how to so I I think I think aesthetically it's just what do you call it when action just suddenly moves into slow motion is that bullet time that's a speed ramping like the 300 Zack snyder yeah. thing yeah. i can't get, yeah i can't get into that yeah that that style i i i don't really care for and it's like all over this yes action that is, and, 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 so, and most indian cinema or most i should i can't say most indian cinema, most of the indian action films that i have seen they are the action is heavily built around that speed ramping and it does annoy me in a movie that is expecting me to take it seriously um, mm-hmm. like a 300 it's like very corny like Watchmen like a lot of those Zack Snyder movies Zack Snyder takes himself very seriously and this and the speed ramping is silly Um, in this context I love it hmm. yeah but no yeah it's I get you I get I get it it's not for everybody that's for sure Um, but someone out yeah. there who hears this 
has Netflix and is going to give it a shot. And what they're going That's to true. see in the first 10 minutes why we do is this. a random fight scene in a village where a horse on fire runs past the camera for no reason. <laughs> yeah, that was cool. And that might that might fucking sell them on it. Who could say? Yeah. No, it's it's not timid filmmaking for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and also just, and I do think the way it is in conflict with itself is part of, like, I I love watching it, but I also find it a fascinating object. Um, yeah, maybe yeah. I was watching it with the wrong spirit because I think I was trying to make sense of its arguments politically. Yeah, um, no, that's a, that is, that, that is a bad time because this movie is all, <laughs> like, b- utterly bizarre. Uh, and yeah, again, it's just like the, the idea of, like, Actually, it's good these women are in prison, even though they all have backstories that show they don't belong there. They all improve themselves and are better, and everyone's happy in prison. It's the happiest prison there is. Um, just fucking bizarre. But uh, yeah. It sounds bizarre. Anyway, that's my number one, Juwan. Uh Jim, what's your number one? It's Falcon Lake. It sure is. You know, I can't help it. It just... <laughs> I love this movie. And I, I guess... Um, the more and more I explore Canadian cinema, French Canadian cinema, movies from Quebec, I kind of go, hmm, maybe this could be my new obsession. I don't know. Something that as I'm watching it, it just felt like, oh, this, I'm, I'm, I know this world. I know these people. They're an extension of my own experience, but also just the way the story is being told is really unique to me. And there's no, like, necessarily, like, I could just. Out here is my thesis on why sure. this type of filmmaking works for me. It just yeah, does. Yeah, yeah. And I'm hoping like I can actually sit down and maybe watch other movies and sort of see why it happens. I mean, we did a whole episode on Guy Madden, you know, and mm-hmm. I just... Obviously, it's a very different approach to filmmaking right. than something like Falcon Lake, but still, um, it, it just really moved me. It, it, it kind of haunted me. It made me cry. It made me cringe. It made me happy. Um, it captured my own experience of spending a summer on a lake with my family in a rented cabin in Michigan at a resort where I could just walk around freely, swim, ride on, like, you know, do some water surfing or, you know, uh, this was around the age of 11 or 12. I can't remember, but I started to just my, like my thoughts and interests were drifting elsewhere and uh, sitting you know, at, at breakfast one morning, there was this, you know, long haired brunette that was very close to my age that I, I mean, I, she might've been like a couple of years older, but, uh, at the same time I would be thinking about her late at night as opposed to like, Oh, I can't wait to go out and do things and play sports or hang out with the kids and figure things. I, I just was thinking about her and this movie really captured a lot of what we did together. Um, I, outside, um, we weren't drinking together, doing those types of things at all. But um, it just felt like looking through a photo album at times, um, and then just the just some of the things that they say to one another felt real. Like again, kind of like an all the real girls situation for me, where it was just like, oh, I've said that, or I've done that, or that was very close to my first experience with physical intimacy, even if it's just too the two of us lying in bed together and, you know, just talking about how we feel and what our biggest fears are and things like that. Um, so really 
it was just a, a reflection and extension of my own personal experiences in a way that kind of does bring to mind something like the myth of the American sleepover where adolescence felt like this time of possibility, but anxiety. Mm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, I don't know what these feelings are and I don't know what to deal, how to deal with them. And I'm probably going to be a jerk about them. And, and there's seemingly no resolution. Every no. single time he gets close to her, those fucking older boys show up and yep. it's like, Oh, I'm, I'm just a fucking little kid again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that yeah. happened. That really did happen. <laughs> like I, there were guys that were cooler and of closer to her age. Yes. And just that would, I understand. I understand why that happened. I understand why she was drawn to them more. Um, but yeah, there's like, or really even captures. just like the resentment of like they have been there multiple summers together, mm-hmm. and like they have this like shared history that you're not a part of, and they start talking about the shared history yeah, in yeah, front yeah. of you, and it's like it's like they're slamming a door shut on your face. Like, right? This movie gets that so well <laughs> that like just like no, no, we were connecting, and now you're pulling her away from me. Like, I know, that, and I get so angry. I, it's so it's like <laughs> it 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 really captures. There's. There, so one of the most moving concepts of the movie, I actually am not going to go into because I don't want to spoil it. But yeah, like, yeah, don't. Um, it's it is it's deceptively straightforward. Um, but like, yeah, it's really well observed and beautiful. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful movie. Great score, great cinematography from uh, I believe a first time director, Charlotte Lebon. Um, I think the only thing other thing she did was a short, and it's very different. It's very her short is. Uh, gosh i can't remember the name of it but it's very yorgos lanthimos so um but this is a very different type of film for her and i hope she continues to make great movies because i love falcon lake with all my heart it's my favorite movie of the year the end bye (laughs) (laughs) it's a great movie yeah yeah um and my number one is The Sweet East, uh, directed by Sean Price Williams. I really want to see this. Uh, written by Nick Pinkerton, the uh, film critic and author. And uh, it's this strange black comedy road movie starring Talia Ryder, who plays the friend in um, Never Rarely, Sometimes Always, I think is the only thing I've ever seen her from. Yeah. She talks and looks so much like Winona Ryder that I still don't quite understand how they're not related at all, but they're not related at all. Um, But it's a, it's just a film that unfolds in a really surprising way. I mean, I don't, I don't want to spoil any of the gags, but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a film that kind of um, like, it conveys the spirit of someone who's excited to be making a film without the promise of ever being able to make another one. So it tries a lot of things out. Like it has that kind of spirit. Um, it is dealing without giving too much into plot is dealing with political extremes. And it's, so it's satirizing different extreme groups of, um, political, uh, ideology. Um, as, as she moves further up the coast, she gets in these different adventures. Um, it's kind of, um, I guess you could compare it to some of the other films we're talking about as far as like narcissism or actors or people acting kind of cruelly in self-interested ways. Um, it's also dealing with some of the, I mean, I don't want to spoil any of the plot stuff, but because you haven't seen it and it's a film that I knew nothing about going into it. And uh, it was just a series of pleasant surprises. Um, I, I guess I, I don't know if I should say that I, I mean, I have some, 
I've had some interaction with the people that made it, but I I wouldn't say like it's you know like I'm friends with them and that that's why I like it so much. I think it was it was just that I thought it was funny and look you know this and returned to the notion of surprise like just a lot of surprises to it um it seems to have gotten like some mixed responses from critics and i can't tell if that's because nick pinkerton comes from their world and it's like some kind of weird issue there or if it's just the fact that it's i mean what what patrick was saying about nobody's hero and how it's it's playing around with ideas that um like maybe like the depiction of like say um like like muslims you know or something that's like you know not all muslims are terrorists but like we can we can play with this idea like i don't know if it's if it's if it's just some of the ideas like of the characters that that are i i, I think compared to 90s films like todd salon's films i could think the sweet east is not hmm. remotely a controversial type film but i mean maybe Maybe I'm just jaded with that kind of stuff, but I don't know. It, it feels like it's got some some spark to it as far as like the ideas it's playing with, but it's not like it's not edge lordy or like needlessly kind of like contrarian. I think it's smart. I mean, it's a smartly written film. Um, great performances. Um, I don't know. I mean, it was it's one that I think it's going to have more. Uh, availability in in this year so maybe more people will be seeing it and talking about it i've seen it twice in the theater but it's it seems to have been kind of like moving around the country so i don't know when it's coming to chicago but uh yeah i'll be curious to hear what you think of it i think you'll definitely have things to say but you'll either really like it or really hate it it's probably not the kind of film that you would have a wishy-washy feeling about (laughs) i like movies like that all right yeah the sweet east yep Good times. Yep. Well, that's funny because the uh, dir- dir- the director did what uh, he was the DP on Good Time, and uh, there we and go. Uh, Queen Queen of Earth, our favorite movie. Oh that's no! Right. Queen of Earth is really <laughs> the best film of twenty twenty three and every year. <laughs> hey, it, people love that movie. You know what? Twenty fifteen. That was the last time we all did this. People love Hitler. Um, what oh, is Alex, wow! What is that's that's ridiculous. That was, <laughs> I can't wait for the pavement documentary coming out by Alex Ross Perry. Was, Patrick will be first in line. Is is that a real thing? Yeah. My least favorite '90s band as covered by my <laughs> not least, not, <laughs> le- not least favorite. I don't know. Oh if, man! Uh, oh man! Can Not for go? me. I I don't know. Not for me. Maybe we should bring some edibles. I'll calm you down. Maybe you'll enjoy it. I don't think that's going to improve Stephen Malkmus's guitar playing. Mm. Ouch. Yeah. Oh man, so many great Silver yeah. Jew songs just fucking ruined. <laughs> oh wait, no. I meant no. You're wrong. I'll just say that uh, I could have easily said a fire, all of us strangers, close your eyes, evil does not exist, here, hitman, killers of the flower moon, Orlando, my political biography, safe place, and youth, spring, uh, were all films that I I like just as much as uh, anything I had on the list. I just, I I honored the 25 film rule. Other films that I really loved were Perfect Days, Sick of Myself, Priscilla, Barbie, 
All of Us Strangers, Godzilla Minus One, John Wick Chapter Four, The Boy and the Heron, Fallen Leaves, Rye Lane, You Hurt My Feelings. I think people should watch The Worst Ones. What? The Worst Ones. It's a French film that came out oh, this year. Oh, I thought you meant the worst movies. I thought you were like, oh, co- Cocaine Bear. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. What, what is? Um, if you, uh, I, I think the worst ones in May, December would be a, a very interesting pairing. Oh. Um, in terms of the worst ones, the, uh, the, the pitch of it is sort of like, um, like a Ken, like what if a Ken Loach? Ken Loach is respected, and I think the director, uh, the character of the director in The Worst Ones is not necessarily a Ke- of Ken Loach status, but like, what if someone was like, I'm really going to depict what it's like in lower ca- class France, and I'm going to go out into the tenements and the, and the, you know, the apartment complex and all that, and I'm going to cast the real kids who would do it, and I'm hmm. going to make them play out their real story, and it's, and... It is not like a raucous, like state and main kind of satire of the film industry, but it is a very smart and funny uh, look at the uh, sort of dis, uh, distorting effect of the film industry on people's real lives. And uh, if you are interested in movies about, you know, people making movies and movies about uh, trying to depict something and and the fictionalizing that goes on with that, like The Worst Ones was a really good movie that I oh, didn't okay. see a lot of people's lists. Gosh, I got to write down a lot of titles for the both of you to watch at some point in the future. Sure. Yeah. I hope other people do too, and I hope other people really enjoyed this episode. I hope people enjoy 96 Greers, the podcast where we cover every feature film with Judy Greer and the cast. Have you seen Elizabeth Town? You haven't seen Elizabeth Town with us. We have some things to fucking say about Elizabeth Town. But we talked about Elizabeth Town. I know. And that was an early Directors Club episode. The very and first. therefore, my, my no one. one should listen to it. I disagree because you just never know what you can find in those old episodes. That's how I know you guys. Yeah. Probably us saying offensive shit that we shouldn't be saying. You are absolutely right. <laughs> yeah. There are examples of that in the De Palma episode, the very first De Palma episode. I bet. Yeah. We, uh, Matt Gamble loves the R word. Don't listen to uh, old episodes of Director's Club. That's still the rule. There they are a, still downloading them, and I can confirm. No, I know. This is a problem. I you you keep telling me about this fucking Tarkovsky episode. People are listening to. They shouldn't. It's bad. We did a bad job. Um, me and maybe Bill, they love it. I maybe they listen to it and they go, "Oh, good. We shouldn't listen to anymore." I'm just saying, floating three year window, whatever mm. the current date is, subtract three years. That is the cutoff point. And well, now I gotta find out what that is. Yeah, and then as as we go on, we'll we'll keep cutting out the old episodes, and they get a, appropriately embarrassing. Mm. In three years, we can cut this one out of the feed. No, I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> no, I like us even when we're flawed. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for having my flawed self on. Jim. Where can people find you, Patrick? Uh, you can find me on Instagram and Blue Sky at Uptown Song Club, and you can find me hosting 96 Greers, which never is some podcast that you've never it. heard of. Yeah. It's great. Thank you. Yeah. How about you, Bill? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's my feelings me. right now. It's like, I don't know either. I'll tell you one way not to get Bill's work. Do not order the limited edition version of Messiah of Evil from Deep Discount because those yeah. fuckers still haven't sent me my Blu-ray. <laughs> and oh, I no. don't know who to contact to figure that out. Damn it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, yeah. I don't know. Um, 
That sucks, though. It, it's we'll we'll talk offline about it. I'm just saying, Bill Ackerman does a great job doing commentary. He tracks. sure does. You should check out from Fun City Editions, Natural Enemies. Yeah, that's a great one. Um, really fascinating movie. Hal Holbrook giving a stirring performance, and Bill Ackerman doing a great job on the commentary track. There's well, something that's a play. Here's and an, Jim is holding one. up the uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. One yeah. day I will have a 4K player and I can enjoy it too. Love it. Love, love this. <laughs> right but, now it's just yeah. on my shelf looking pretty. Yeah. It's oh, fantastic. Yeah. So there you go. Uh, where do you find <laughs> Bill uh, on your uh, local uh, boutique uh, Blu ray label? Yeah. Yeah. There we go. We'll find you. <laughs> we'll find you. We'll find you. Uh, but yeah, you'll, you'll be back. Patrick will be back. Mm-hmm. I'll be back. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, Enjoy the Directors Club podcast by visiting directorsclubpodcast.com. Send me an email, directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. Stop monkeying with those wires, Jim. You're going to. You're, you're gonna, right. <laughs> I, I just felt like the need to start playing with something. <laughs> Got to uh, do something else. We're going we're gonna to die at the end. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. Yeah, Patrick, everybody. why don't you do the outro? Just for old time's sake. What is really important is that we together share our love of this art form and we understand that every time we think we have a grapple on what the possibilities of the medium are, the medium will prove us wrong. And there are more worlds for you to discover. Maybe it's Indian action, maybe it's late period Vim Vendors movies, but what you need to do is start chasing that and realize that the world is so much bigger than you think it is. Get off the Criterion channel. Get off whatever uh, A24 is promoting, whatever. Like, find your fucking lane and get fascinated. And I think our wide, diverse titles that we have listed as our 25 favorite of the year are proof that the, the movies that everyone's talking about, the awards contenders, boo, are just scratching the surface of what is possible. So go out and love cinema, just like me, on 96 Greers, a podcast where we cover <laughs> every feature film with Judy Greer in the title. Thank you for having me, Jim. Yeah, thank you for being here. And uh, yeah, maybe you can join me on an adventure to Quebec someday. Or you can, yeah, check out a bunch of great films from... I'm just going to promote Canada. That's all I'm going to do from this point on. <laughs> Just be like, go to Canada, watch their movies. <laughs> they seem like really nice people. I really like the guy from Blackberry. He's really cool. I interviewed him. He was very nice. Good. Yeah. That's good. Yeah, I know. Right? Thank you, everybody. Bye. We're, Bye. we're done. We're done with that. We're it's done. over. It's over. <laughs>